This is Audible. Harper Audio presents Think Like a Freak, the authors of Freakonomics Offer to Retrain Your Brain by Stephen D. Levitt and Stephen J. Dubner. This is Stephen Dubner. Chapter 1. What does it mean to think like a freak? After writing Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics, we started to hear from readers with all sorts of questions. Is a college degree still worth it? Short answer, yes. Long answer, also yes. Is it a good idea to pass along a family business to the next generation? Sure, if your goal is to kill off the business, for the data show it's generally better to bring in an outside manager. Whatever happened to the carpal tunnel syndrome epidemic? Once journalists stopped getting it, they stopped writing about it. But the problem persists, especially among blue-collar workers. Some questions were existential. What makes people truly happy? Is income inequality as dangerous as it seems? Would a diet high in omega-3 lead to world peace? People wanted to know the pros and cons of autonomous vehicles, breastfeeding, chemotherapy, estate taxes, fracking, lotteries, medicinal prayer, online dating, patent reform, rhino poaching, using an iron off the tee, and virtual currencies. One minute, we'd get an email asking us to solve the obesity epidemic. And then five minutes later, one urging us to wipe out famine right now. Readers seemed to think no riddle was too tricky, no problem too hard, that it couldn't be sorted out. It was as if we own some proprietary tool, a Freakonomics forceps, one might imagine, that could be plunged into the body politic to extract some buried wisdom. If only that were true. The fact is that solving problems is hard. If a given problem still exists, you can bet that a lot of people have already come along and failed to solve it. Easy problems evaporate. It is the hard ones that linger. Furthermore, it takes a lot of time to track down, organize, and analyze the data to answer even one small question well. So rather than trying and probably failing to answer most of the questions sent our way, we wondered if it might be better to write a book that can teach anyone to think like a freak. What might that look like? Imagine you are a soccer player, a very fine one, and you've led your nation to the brink of a World Cup championship. All you must do now is make a single penalty kick. The odds are in your favor. Roughly 75% of penalty kicks at the elite level are successful. The crowd bellows as you place the ball on the chalked penalty mark. The goal is a mere 12 yards away. It is 8 yards across and 8 feet high. The goalkeeper stares you down. Once the ball rockets off your boot, it will travel toward him at 80 miles per hour. At such a speed, he can ill afford to wait and see where you'll kick the ball. He must take a guess and fling his body in that direction. If the keeper guesses wrong, your odds rise to about 90%. The best shot is a kick toward a corner of the goal with enough force that the keeper cannot make the save even if he guesses correctly. But such a shot leaves little margin for error, a slight miskick and you'll miss the goal completely. So you may want to ease up a bit or aim slightly away from the corner, although that gives the keeper a better chance if he does guess correctly. You must also choose between the left corner and the right. If you are a right-footed kicker, as most players are, going left is your strong side. That translates to more power and accuracy, but of course the keeper knows this too. 
And that's why keepers jump toward the kicker's left corner 57% of the time, and to the right, only 41. So there you stand, the crowd in full throat, your heart in hyperspeed, preparing to take this life-changing kick. The eyes of the world are upon you, and the prayers of your nation. If the ball goes in, your name will forever be spoken in the tone reserved for the most beloved saints. And if you fail, well, better not to think about that. The options swirl through your head, strong side or weak. Do you go hard for the corner or play it a bit safe? Have you taken penalty kicks against this keeper before? And if so, where did you aim? And where did he jump? As you think all this through, you also think about what the keeper is thinking, and you may even think about what the keeper is thinking about what you are thinking. You know the chance of becoming a hero is about 75%, which isn't bad, but wouldn't it be nice to jack up that number? Might there be a better way to think about this problem? What if you could outfox your opponent by thinking beyond the obvious? You know the keeper is optimizing between jumping right and left, but what if... What if, what if you kick neither right nor left? What if you do the silliest thing imaginable and kick into the dead center of the goal? Yes, that is where the keeper is standing now, but you're pretty sure he will vacate that spot as you begin your kick. Remember what the data say. Keepers jump left 57% of the time and right 41%, which means they stay in the center only two times out of 100 a leaping keeper may, of course, still stop a ball aimed at the center, but how often can that happen? If only you could see the data on all penalty kicks taken toward the center of the goal. Okay, we just happen to have that. A kick toward the center, as risky as it may appear, is seven percentage points more likely to succeed than a kick to the corner. Are you willing to take the chance? Let's say you are. You trot toward the ball, plant your left foot, load up the right, and let it fly. You are instantaneously gripped by a bone-shaking roar. Goal! The crowd erupts in an orgasmic rush as you are buried beneath a mountain of teammates. This moment will last forever. The rest of your life will be one big happy party. Your children will grow up to be strong, prosperous, and kind. Congratulations. While a penalty kick aimed at the center of the goal is significantly more likely to succeed, only 17% of kicks are aimed there. Why so few? One reason is that, at first glance, aiming centered looks like a terrible idea. Kicking the ball straight at the goalkeeper? That just seems unnatural, an obvious violation of common sense. But then, so did the idea of preventing a disease by injecting people with the very microbes that cause it. Furthermore, one advantage the kicker has on a penalty kick is mystery. The keeper doesn't know where he'll aim. If kickers did the same thing every time, their success rate would plummet. If they started going center more often, keepers would adapt. There's a third and important reason why more kickers don't aim center, especially in a high-stakes setting like the World Cup. But no soccer player in his right mind would ever admit it. It's the fear of shame. Imagine again you are the player about to take that penalty kick. At this most turbulent moment, what is your true incentive? The answer might seem obvious. You want to score the goal to win the game for your team. If that's the case, the statistics plainly show that you should kick the ball dead center. But 
Is winning the game your truest incentive? Picture yourself standing over the ball. You have just mentally committed to aiming for the center, but wait a minute. What if the goalkeeper doesn't dive? What if for some reason he stays at home and you kick the ball straight into his gut and he saves his country without even having to budge? How pathetic you will seem. Now the keeper is the hero and you must move your family abroad to avoid assassination. So you reconsider. You think about going the traditional route toward a corner. If the keeper does guess correctly and stops the ball, well, you will have made a valiant effort, even if it was bested by a more valiant one. No, you won't become a hero, but nor will you have to flee the country. If you follow this selfish incentive, protecting your own reputation by not doing something potentially foolish, you are more likely to kick toward a corner. If you follow the communal incentive, trying to win the game for your nation, even though you risk looking personally foolish, you will kick toward the center. Sometimes in life, going straight up the middle is the boldest move of all. If asked how we'd behave in a situation that pits a private benefit against the greater good, most of us won't admit to favoring the private benefit. But as history clearly shows, most people, whether because of nature or nurture, generally put their own interests ahead of others. This doesn't make them bad people, it just makes them human. But all this self-interest can be frustrating if your ambitions are larger than simply securing some small private victory. Maybe you want to ease poverty or make government work better or persuade your company to pollute less or just get your kids to stop fighting. How are you supposed to get everyone to pull in the same direction when they are all pulling primarily for themselves? We wrote this book to answer that sort of question. It strikes us that in recent years, the idea has arisen that there is a right way to think about solving a given problem and, of course, a wrong way too. This inevitably leads to a lot of shouting and, sadly, a lot of unsolved problems. Can this situation be improved upon? We hope so. We'd like to bury the idea that there's a right way and a wrong way, a smart way and a foolish way, a red way and a blue way. The modern world demands that we all think a bit more productively, more creatively, more rationally, that we think from a different angle, with a different set of muscles, with a different set of expectations, that we think with neither fear nor favor, with neither blind optimism nor sour skepticism, that we think like, well, a freak. Our first two books were animated by a relatively simple set of ideas. Number one, incentives are the cornerstone of modern life, and understanding them, or often deciphering them, is the key to understanding a problem and how it might be solved. Number two, knowing what to measure and how to measure it can make a complicated world less so. There is nothing like the sheer power of numbers to scrub away layers of confusion and contradiction, especially with emotional hot-button topics. Number three, the conventional wisdom is often wrong, and a blithe acceptance of it can lead to sloppy, wasteful, or even dangerous outcomes. And number four, correlation does not equal causality. When two things travel together, it is tempting to assume that one causes the other. Married people, for instance, are demonstrably happier than single people. Does this mean that marriage 
causes happiness? Not necessarily. The data suggests that happy people are more likely to get married in the first place. As one researcher memorably put it, if you're grumpy, who the hell wants to marry you? This book builds on these same core ideas, but there's a difference. The first two books were rarely prescriptive. For the most part, we simply used data to tell stories we found interesting, shining a light on parts of society that often lay in shadow. This book steps out of the shadows and tries to offer some advice that may occasionally be useful, whether you are interested in minor life hacks or major global reforms. That said, this isn't a self-help book in the traditional sense. We are probably not the kind of people you'd typically want to ask for help. And some of our advice tends to get people into trouble rather than out of it. Our thinking is inspired by what is known as the economic approach. That doesn't mean focusing on the economy, far from it. The economic approach is both broader and simpler than that. It relies on data rather than hunch or ideology to understand how the world works, to learn how incentives succeed or fail, how resources get allocated and what sort of obstacles prevent people from getting those resources, whether they're concrete, like food and transportation, or more aspirational, like education and love. There is nothing magical about this way of thinking. It usually traffics in the obvious and places a huge premium on common sense. So here's the bad news. If you come to this book hoping for the equivalent of a magician spilling his secrets, you may be disappointed. But there's good news, too. Thinking like a freak is simple enough that anyone can do it. What's perplexing is that so few people do. Now, why is that? One reason is that it's easy to let your biases, political, intellectual, or otherwise, color your view of the world. A growing body of research suggests that even the smartest people tend to seek out evidence that confirms what they already think rather than new information that would give them a more robust view of reality. It is also tempting to run with a herd. Even on the most important issues of the day, we often adopt the views of our friends, families, and colleagues. You'll hear more on this in chapter six. On some level, this makes sense. It's easier to fall in line with what your friends and family think than to find new friends and family. But running with the herd means we are quick to embrace the status quo, slow to change our minds, and happy to delegate our thinking. Another barrier to thinking like a freak is that most people are too busy to rethink the way they think or to even spend much time thinking at all. When was the last time you sat for even an hour of pure, unadulterated thinking? If you're like most people, it's been a while. Is this simply a function of our high-speed era? Perhaps not. The absurdly talented George Bernard Shaw, a world-class writer and a founder of the London School of Economics, noted this thought deficit many years ago. Few people think more than two or three times a year, Shaw reportedly said. I have made an international reputation for myself by thinking once or twice a week. We, too, try to think once or twice a week, though surely not as cleverly as Shaw, and encourage you to do the same. Now, this is not to say that you should necessarily want to think like a freak. It presents some potential downsides. You may find yourself way, way out of step with the prevailing winds. You might occasionally say things that make other people squirm. Perhaps, for instance, you meet a lovely, conscientious couple with three children and find yourself blurting out that, child car seats are a waste of time and money. 
At least that's what the crash test data say. Or at a holiday dinner with your new girlfriend's family, you blather on about how the local food movement can actually hurt the environment, only to learn that her father is a hardcore locavore and everything on the table was grown within 50 miles. You'll have to grow accustomed to people calling you a crank or sputtering with indignation, maybe even getting up and walking out of the room. We have some firsthand experience with this. Shortly after the publication of Super Freakonomics, while on book tour in England, we were invited to meet with David Cameron, who would soon become Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. While it is not uncommon for people like him to solicit ideas from people like us, the invitation surprised us. In the opening pages of Super Freakonomics, we declared that we knew next to nothing about the macroeconomic forces, inflation, unemployment, and the like, that politicians seek to control by yanking a lever this way or that. What's more, politicians tend to shy away from controversy, and our book had already generated its fair share in the UK. We'd been grilled on national TV about a chapter that described an algorithm we created in concert with a British bank to identify suspected terrorists. Now, why on earth, the TV interviewers asked us, did we disclose the secrets that might help terrorists avoid detection? We couldn't answer that question at the time, but we do in Chapter 7 of this book. Hint, the disclosure was not an accident. We had also taken heat for suggesting that the standard playbook for fighting global warming was not going to work. In fact, the Cameron operative who collected us at the security post, a sharp young policy advisor named Rohan Silva, told us that his neighborhood bookshop refused to carry Super Freakonomics because the shop's owner so hated our global warming chapter. Silva took us to a conference room where roughly two dozen Cameron advisors waited. Their boss hadn't yet arrived. Most of them were in their 20s or 30s. One gentleman, a once and future cabinet minister, was significantly more senior. He took the floor and told us that upon election, the Cameron administration would fight global warming tooth and nail. If it were up to him, he said, Britain would become a zero-carbon society overnight. It was, he said, a matter of the highest moral obligation. This made our ears prick up. One thing we've learned is that when people, especially politicians, start making decisions based on a reading of their moral compass, facts tend to be among the first casualties. We asked the minister what he meant by moral obligation. If it weren't for England, he continued, the world wouldn't be in the state it's in. None of this would have happened. He gestured upward and outward. The this, he implied, meant this room, this building, the city of London, all of civilization. We must have looked puzzled, for he explained further. England, he said, having started the Industrial Revolution, led the rest of the world down the path toward pollution, environmental degradation, and global warming. It was therefore England's obligation to take the lead in undoing the damage. Just then, Mr. Cameron burst through the door. All right, he boomed. Where are the clever people? He wore crisp white shirt sleeves, his trademark purple tie, and an air of irrepressible optimism. As we chatted, it became instantly clear why he was projected to become the next prime minister. Everything about him radiated competence and confidence. He looked to be exactly the sort of man whom deans at Eton and Oxford envision when they are first handed the boy. 
Cameron said the biggest problem he would inherit as prime minister was a gravely ill economy. The UK, along with the rest of the world, was still in the grip of a crushing recession. The mood from pensioners to students to industry titans was morose. The national debt was enormous and climbing. Immediately upon taking office, Cameron told us, he would need to make broad and deep cuts. But, he added, there were a few precious, inalienable rights that he would protect at any cost. Like what, we asked. Well, the National Health Service, he said, his eyes alight with pride. This made sense. The NHS provides cradle-to-grave health care for every Briton, most of it free at point of use. The oldest and largest such system in the world, it is as much a part of the national fabric as association football and spotted dick. One former chancellor of the Exchequer called the NHS the closest thing the English have to a religion, which is doubly interesting since England does have an actual religion. There was just one problem. UK healthcare costs had more than doubled over the previous 10 years and were expected to keep rising. Although we didn't know it at the time, Cameron's devotion to the NHS was based in part on an intense personal experience. His eldest child, Ivan, was born with a rare neurological disorder called Otahara syndrome. It is marked by frequent violent seizures. As a result, the Cameron family had become all too familiar with NHS nurses, doctors, ambulances, and hospitals. When your family relies on the NHS all the time, day after day, night after night, you really know just how precious it is, he once told the Conservative Party's annual conference. Ivan died in early 2009, a few months shy of his seventh birthday. So perhaps it was no surprise that Cameron, even as head of a party that embraced fiscal austerity, should view the NHS as sacrosanct. To monkey with the system, even during an economic crisis, would make as much political sense as drop-kicking one of the Queen's corgis. But that didn't mean it made practical sense. While the goal of free, unlimited, lifetime health care is laudable, the economics are tricky. We now pointed this out, as respectfully as possible, to the presumptive prime minister. Because there is so much emotion attached to health care, it can be hard to see that it is, by and large, like any other part of the economy. But under a setup like the UK's, health care is virtually the only part of the economy where individuals can go out and get nearly any service they need and pay close to zero, whether the actual cost of the procedure is $100 or $100,000. Now, what's wrong with that? When people don't pay the true cost of something, they tend to consume it inefficiently. Think of the last time you sat down at an all-you-can-eat restaurant. How likely were you to eat a bit more than normal? The same thing happens if healthcare is distributed in a similar fashion. People consume more of it than if they were charged the sticker price. This means that the worried well crowd out the truly sick, wait times increase for everyone, and a massive share of the costs go to the final months of elderly patients' lives, often without much real advantage. This sort of overconsumption can be more easily tolerated when healthcare is only a small part of the economy, but with healthcare costs approaching 10% of GDP in the UK and nearly double that in the United States, you have to seriously rethink how it is provided and paid for. We tried to make our point with a thought experiment. 
we suggested to Mr. Cameron that he consider a similar policy in a different arena. What if, for instance, every Briton were also entitled to a free, unlimited lifetime supply of transportation? That is, what if everyone were allowed to go down to the car dealership whenever they wanted and pick out any new model free of charge and drive it home? We expected him to light up and say, well, yes, that would be patently absurd. There'd be no reason to maintain your old car and everyone's incentives would be skewed. I see your point about all this free health care we're doling out. But he said no such thing. In fact, he didn't say anything at all. The smile did not leave David Cameron's face, but it did leave his eyes. Maybe our story hadn't come out as we'd intended, or maybe it did, and that was the problem. In any case, he offered a quick handshake and hurried off to find a less ridiculous set of people with whom to meet. Could hardly blame him. Fixing a huge problem like runaway healthcare costs is about a thousand times harder than, say, figuring out how to take a penalty kick. That's why, as we argue in Chapter 5, you should focus on small problems whenever you can. We also could have profited from knowing then what we know now about persuading people who don't want to be persuaded, which we cover in Chapter 8 of this book. That said, we fervently believe there is a huge upside in retraining your brain to think differently about problems, large and small. In this book, we share everything we've learned over the past several years, some of which has worked out better than our brief encounter with the Prime Minister. Are you willing to give it a try? Excellent. The first step is to not be embarrassed by how much you don't yet know. Chapter 2. The Three Hardest Words in the English Language Imagine you are asked to listen to a simple story and then answer a few questions about it. Here's the story. A little girl named Mary goes to the beach with her mother and brother. They drive there in a red car. At the beach, they swim, eat some ice cream, play in the sand, and have sandwiches for lunch. Okay, now the questions. One, what color was the car? Two, did they have fish and chips for lunch? Three, did they listen to music in the car? And number four, did they drink lemonade with lunch? All right, how'd you do? Let's compare your answers to those of a bunch of British school children aged five to nine who were given this quiz by academic researchers. Nearly all the children got the first two questions right. That was red for the color of the car and no for did they have fish and chips. But the children did much worse with questions three and four. Why? Those questions were unanswerable. There simply wasn't enough information given in the story. And yet, a whopping 76% of the children answered these questions either yes or no. Kids who try to bluff their way through a simple quiz like this are right on track for careers in business and politics where almost no one ever admits to not knowing anything. It's long been said that the three hardest words to say in the English language are, I love you. We heartily disagree. For most people, it's much harder to say, I don't know. That's a shame. For until you can admit what you don't yet know, it's virtually impossible to learn what you need to. Before we get into the reasons for all this fakery and the costs and the solutions, let's clarify what we mean when we talk about what we know. There are, of course, different levels and categories of knowledge at the 
top of this hierarchy are what might be called known facts, things that can be scientifically verified. As Daniel Patrick Moynihan was famous for saying, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not to their own facts. If you insist that the chemical composition of water is HO2 instead of H2O, you will eventually be proved wrong. Then there are beliefs, things we hold to be true, but which may not be easily verified. On such topics, there's more room for disagreement. For instance, does the devil really exist? This question was asked in a global survey. Among the countries included, here are the top five for devil belief, ranked by share of believers. Number one was Malta with 84.5%, two, Northern Ireland, 75.6%, three, the United States, 69.1%, number four, Ireland, 55.3%, and Canada, 42.9%. And here are the countries with the fewest devil believers. Number one, Latvia, only 9.1%. Number two, Bulgaria, 9.6%. Number three, Denmark, 10.4%. Number four, Sweden, 12.0%. Number five, the Czech Republic, 12.8%. Now, how can there be such a deep split on such a simple question? Either the Latvians or the Maltese plainly don't know what they think they know. Okay, so maybe the devil's existence is too otherworldly a topic to consider at all factual. Let's look at a different kind of question, one that falls somewhere between belief and fact. Here's the question. According to news reports, groups of Arabs carried out the attacks against the USA on September 11. Do you believe this to be true or not? Now, to most of us, the very question is absurd. Of course it's true. But when asked in predominantly Muslim countries, the question got a very different answer. Only 20% of Indonesians believe that Arabs carried out the 9-11 attacks, along with 11% of Kuwaitis and just 4% of Pakistanis. When asked who was responsible, respondents typically blamed the Israeli or U.S. government or non-Muslim terrorists. All right, so what we know can plainly be sculpted by political or religious views. The world is also thick with entrepreneurs of error, as the economist Edward Glazer calls them, political and religious and business leaders who, quote, supply beliefs when it will increase their own financial or political returns. On its own, this is problem enough. But the stakes get higher when we routinely pretend to know more than we do. Think about some of the hard issues that politicians and business leaders face every day. What's the best way to stop mass shootings? Are the benefits of fracking worth the environmental costs? What happens if we allow that Middle Eastern dictator who hates us to stay in power? Now, questions like these can't be answered merely by assembling a cluster of facts. They require judgment, intuition, and a guess as to how things will ultimately play out. Furthermore, these are multidimensional cause and effect questions, which means that their outcomes are both distant and nuanced. With complex issues, it can be ridiculously hard to pin a particular cause on a given effect. Did the assault weapon ban really cut crime, or was it one of 10 other factors? Did the economy stall because tax rates were too high, or were the real villains all those Chinese exports and a spike in oil prices? 
In other words, it can be hard to ever really know what caused or solved a given problem, and that's for events that have already happened. Just think how much harder it is to predict what will work in the future. Prediction, as Niels Bohr liked to say, is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. And yet, we constantly hear from experts, not just politicians and business leaders, but also sports pundits, stock market gurus, meteorologists, of course, who tell us that they have a pretty good idea of how the future will unspool. Now, do they really know what they're talking about? Or are they, like the British school kids, just bluffing? In recent years, scholars have begun to systematically track the predictions of various experts. One of the most impressive studies was conducted by Philip Tetlock, psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania. His focus is politics. Tetlock enlisted nearly 300 experts, government officials, political science scholars, national security experts, and economists, to make thousands of predictions that he charted over the course of 20 years. For instance, in Democracy X, let's say it's Brazil, will the current majority party retain, lose, or strengthen its status after the next election? Or for undemocratic country Y, Syria perhaps, Will the basic character of the political regime change in the next five years, the next 10 years? If so, in what direction? The results of Tetlock's study were sobering. These most expert of experts, 96% of them had postgraduate training, thought they knew more than they knew, Tetlock says. Now, how accurate were their predictions? They weren't much better than dart-throwing chimps, as Tetlock often joked. Oh, the monkey with a dartboard comparison. That comes back to haunt me all the time, he says. But with respect to how they did relative to, say, a baseline group of Berkeley undergraduates making predictions, they did somewhat better than that. Did they do better than an extrapolation algorithm? No, they did not. Tetlock's extrapolation algorithm is simply a computer programmed to predict no change in current situation, which, if you think about it, is a computer's way of saying I don't know. A similar study by a firm called CXO Advisory Group covered more than 6,000 predictions by stock market experts over several years. It found an overall accuracy rate of 47.4%. Again, the dart-throwing chimp likely would have done just as well and, when you consider investment fees, at a fraction of the cost. When asked to name the attributes of someone who is particularly bad at predicting... Philip Tetlock needed just one word. Dogmatism, he says. That is, an unshakable belief they know something to be true, even when they don't. Tetlock and other scholars who have tracked prominent pundits find that they tend to be massively overconfident in Tetlock's words, even when their predictions prove stone-cold wrong. Now, that is a lethal combination, cocky plus wrong, especially when a more prudent option exists. Simply admit that the future is far less knowable than you think. Unfortunately, this rarely happens. Smart people love to make smart-sounding predictions, no matter how wrong they may turn out to be. This phenomenon was beautifully captured in a 1998 article for Red Herring magazine called Why Most Economists' Predictions Are Wrong. It was written by Paul Krugman, himself an economist, who went on to win the Nobel Prize. Krugman points out that too many economists' predictions fail because they overestimate the impact of future technologies. And then he makes a few predictions of his own. Here's one. 
The growth of the Internet will slow drastically as the flaw in Metcalfe's law, which states that the number of potential connections in a network is proportional to the square of the number of participants, becomes apparent. Most people have nothing to say to each other. By 2005 or so, it will become clear that the Internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than the fax machines. As of this writing, the market capitalization of Google, Amazon, and Facebook alone is more than $700 billion, which is more than the GDP of all but 18 countries. If you throw in Apple, which isn't an internet company, but couldn't exist without it, the market cap is $1.2 trillion. That could buy a lot of fax machines. Maybe we need more economists like Thomas Sargent. He too won a Nobel for his work measuring macroeconomic cause and effect, Sargent has likely forgotten more about inflation and interest rates than the rest of us will ever know. When Ally Bank wanted to make a TV commercial a few years ago touting a certificate of deposit with a raise-your-rate feature, Sargent was cast in the lead. The setting is an auditorium whose stage evokes a university club, ornate chandeliers, orderly bookshelves, walls hung with portraits of distinguished gentlemen. Sargent, seated regally in a leather club chair, awaits his introduction. A moderator begins. Tonight, our guest, Thomas Sargent, Nobel laureate in economics and one of the most cited economists in the world. Professor Sargent, can you tell me what CD rates will be in two years? Sargent, no. And that's it. As the ally announcer points out, if he can't, no one can. Thus, the need for an adjustable rate CD the ad is a work of comic genius. Why? Because Sargent, in giving the only correct answer to a virtually unanswerable question, shows how absurd it is that so many of us routinely fail to do the same. It isn't only that we know less than we pretend about the outside world. We don't even know ourselves all that well. Most people are terrible at the seemingly simple task of assessing their own talents. As two psychologists recently put it in an academic journal, Despite spending more time with themselves than with any other person, people often have surprisingly poor insight into their skills and abilities. One classic example, when asked to rate their driving skills, roughly 80% of respondents rated themselves better than the average driver. But let's say you are excellent at a given thing, a true master of your domain like Thomas Sargent. Does this mean you are also more likely to excel in a different domain? A sizable body of research says the answer is no. The takeaway here is simple but powerful. Just because you're great at something doesn't mean you're good at everything. Now, unfortunately, this fact is routinely ignored by those who engage in what is called ultra-crepidarianism, or the habit of giving opinions and advice on matters outside of one's knowledge or competence. Making grandiose assumptions about your abilities and failing to acknowledge what you don't know can lead, unsurprisingly, to disaster. When school children fake their answers about a trip to the seashore, there are no consequences. Their reluctance to say, I don't know, imposes no real costs on anyone. But in the real world, the societal costs of faking it can be huge. Consider the Iraq War. It was executed primarily on U.S. claims that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and was in league with al-Qaeda. To be sure, there was more to it than that, politics, oil, perhaps revenge. But 
It was the Al-Qaeda and weapons claims that sealed the deal. Eight years, $800 billion, and nearly 4,500 American deaths later, along with at least 100,000 Iraqi fatalities, it was tempting to consider what might have happened had the purveyors of those claims admitted that they did not in fact know them to be true. Just as a warm and moist environment is conducive to the spread of deadly bacteria, the worlds of politics and business especially, with their long time frames, complex outcomes, and murky cause and effect, are conducive to the spread of half-cocked guesses posing as fact. And here's why. The people making these wild guesses can usually get away with it. By the time things have played out and everyone has realized they didn't know what they were talking about, the bluffers are long gone. If the consequences of pretending to know can be so damaging, why do so many people keep doing it? That's easy. In most cases, the cost of saying, I don't know, is higher than the cost of being wrong, at least for the individual. Think back to the soccer player who was about to take a life-changing penalty kick. Aiming toward the center has a better chance of success, but aiming toward a corner is less risky to his own reputation. So that's where he shoots. Every time we pretend to know something, we're doing the same, protecting our own reputation rather than promoting the collective good. None of us want to look stupid or at least overmatched by admitting we don't know an answer. The incentives to fake it are simply too strong. Incentives can also explain why so many people are willing to predict the future. A huge payoff awaits anyone who makes a big and bold prediction that happens to come true. If you say the stock market will triple within 12 months and it actually does, you will be celebrated for years and paid well for future predictions. Now, what happens if the market crashes instead? No worries. Your prediction will already be forgotten. Since almost no one has a strong incentive to keep track of everyone else's bad predictions, it costs almost nothing to pretend you know what will happen in the future. In 2011, an elderly Christian radio preacher named Harold Camping made headlines around the world by predicting that the rapture would occur on Saturday, May 21st of that year. The world would end, he warned, and 7 billion people, everyone but the hardcore believers, would die. One of us has a young son who saw these headlines and got scared. His father reassured him that Camping's prediction was baseless, but the boy was distraught. In the nights leading up to May 21st, he cried himself to sleep. It was a miserable experience for everyone. And then, Saturday dawned, bright and clear, the world still in one piece. The boy, with the false bravado of a 10-year-old, declared he'd never been scared at all. Even so, his father said, what do you think should happen to Harold Camping? Oh, that's easy, the boy said. They should take him outside and shoot him. This punishment may seem extreme, but the sentiment is understandable. When bad predictions are unpunished, what incentive is there to stop making them? One solution was recently proposed in Romania. That country boasts a robust population of witches, women who tell fortunes for a living. Lawmakers decided that witches should be regulated, taxed, and, most important, made to pay a fine or even go to prison if the fortunes they told didn't prove accurate. The witches were understandably upset. One of them responded as she knew best, 
by threatening to cast a spell on the politicians with cat feces and a dog corpse. There's one more explanation for why so many of us think we know more than we do. It has to do with something we all carry with us everywhere we go, even though we may not consciously think about it, a moral compass. Each of us develops a moral compass, some stronger than others, to be sure, as we make our way through the world. This is, for the most part, a wonderful thing. Who wants to live in a world where people run around with no regard for the difference between right and wrong? But when it comes to solving problems, one of the best ways to start is by putting away your moral compass. Why? When you are consumed with the rightness or wrongness of a given issue, whether it's fracking or gun control or genetically engineered food, it's easy to lose track of what the issue actually is. A moral compass can convince you that all the answers are obvious, even when they're not, that there is a bright line between right and wrong, when often there isn't. And worst, that you are certain you already know everything you need to know about a subject, so you stop trying to learn more. In centuries past, sailors who relied on a ship's compass found it occasionally gave erratic readings that threw them off course. Why? The increasing use of metal on ships, iron nails and hardware, the sailors' tools, even their buckles and buttons, messed with the compass's magnetic read. Over time, sailors learned to go to great lengths to keep metal from interfering with the compass. With such an evasive measure in mind, we are not suggesting that you toss your moral compass in the trash, not at all, but only that you temporarily set it aside to prevent it from clouding your vision. Consider a problem like suicide. It is so morally fraught that we rarely discuss it in public. It's as if we've thrown a black drape over the entire topic. This doesn't seem to be working out very well. There are about 38,000 suicides a year in the United States, more than twice the number of homicides. Suicide is one of the top 10 causes of death for nearly every age group. Because talking about suicide carries such a strong moral taboo, these facts are little known. As of this writing, the U.S. homicide rate is lower than it's been in 50 years. The rate of traffic fatalities is at a historic low, having fallen by two-thirds since the 1970s. The overall suicide rate, meanwhile, has barely budged. And worse yet, suicide among 15 to 24-year-olds has tripled over the past several decades. One might think, therefore, that by studying the preponderance of cases, society has learned everything possible about what leads people to commit suicide. David Lester, a psychology professor at Richard Stockton College in New Jersey, has likely thought about suicide longer, harder, and from more angles than any other human. In more than 2,500 academic publications, he has explored the relationship between suicide and, among other things, alcohol, anger, antidepressants, astrological signs, biochemistry, blood type, body type, depression, drug abuse, gun control, happiness, holidays, internet use, IQ, mental illness, migraines, the moon, music, national anthem lyrics, personality type, sexuality, smoking, spirituality, TV watching, and wide open spaces. Has all this study led Lester to some grand unified theory of suicide? Hardly. So far, he has one compelling notion 
It's what might be called the no-one-left-to-blame theory of suicide. While one might expect that suicide is highest among people whose lives are the hardest, research by Lester and others suggests the opposite. Suicide is more common among people with a higher quality of life. If you're unhappy, he says, and you have something to blame your unhappiness on, if it's the government or the economy or something, then that kind of immunizes you against committing suicide. It's when you have no external cause to blame for your unhappiness that suicide becomes more likely. I've used this idea to explain why African Americans have lower suicide rates, why blind people whose sight is restored often become suicidal, and why adolescent suicide rates often rise as their quality of life gets better. That said, Lester admits that what he and other experts know about suicide is dwarfed by what is unknown. We don't know much, for instance, about the percentage of people who seek or get help before contemplating suicide. We don't know much about the suicidal impulse, how much time elapses between a person's decision and action. We don't even know what share of suicide victims are mentally ill. There is so much disagreement on this issue, Lester says, that estimates range from 5% to 94%. I'm expected to know the answers to questions, such as why people kill themselves. Lester says. And myself and my friends, we often, when we're relaxing, admit that we really don't have a good idea why people kill themselves. If someone like David Lester, one of the world's leading authorities in his field, is willing to admit how much he has to learn, shouldn't it be easier for all of us to do the same? All right, then. On to the learning. The key to learning is feedback. It's nearly impossible to learn anything without it. Imagine you're the first human in history who's trying to make bread, but you're not allowed to actually bake it and see how the recipe turns out. Sure, you can adjust the ingredients and other variables all you want, but if you never get to bake and eat the finished product, how will you know what works and what doesn't? Should the ratio of flour to water be three to one or two to one? What happens if you add salt or oil or yeast or maybe animal dung? Should the dough be left to sit before baking? And if so, for how long? And under what conditions? How long will it need to bake? Covered or uncovered? How hot should the fire be? Even with good feedback, it can take a while to learn. Just imagine how bad some of that early bread was. But without it, you don't stand a chance. You'll go on making the same mistakes forever. Thankfully, our ancestors did figure out how to bake bread. Since then, we've learned to do all sorts of things. Build a house, drive a car, write computer code, even figure out the kind of economic and social policies that voters like. Voting may be one of the sloppiest feedback loops around, but it is feedback nonetheless. In a simple scenario, it's easy to gather feedback. When you're learning to drive a car, it's pretty obvious what happens when you take a sharp mountain curve at 80 miles an hour. Hello, Ravine. But the more complex a problem is, the harder it is to capture good feedback. You can gather a lot of facts, and that may be helpful, but in order to reliably measure cause and effect, you need to get beneath the facts. You may have to purposely go out and create feedback through an experiment. Not long ago, we met with some executives from a large multinational retailer. They were spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on U.S. advertising, 
primarily TV commercials and print circulars in Sunday newspapers, but they weren't sure how effective it was. So far, they'd come to one concrete conclusion. TV ads were about four times more effective, dollar for dollar, than print ads. Now, we asked how they knew this. They whipped out some beautiful, full-color PowerPoint charts that tracked the relationship between TV ads and product sales. Sure enough, there was a mighty sales spike every time their TV ads ran. Valuable feedback, right? Um, let's make sure. How often, we asked, did those ads air? The executives explained that because TV ads are so much more expensive than print ads, they were concentrated on just three days, Black Friday, Christmas, and Father's Day. In other words, the company spent millions of dollars to entice people to go shopping at precisely the same time that millions of people were about to go shopping anyway. So how could they know that the TV ads caused the sales spike? They couldn't. The causal relationship might just as easily move in the opposite direction, with the expected sales spike causing the company to buy TV ads. It's possible the company would have sold just as much merchandise without spending a single dollar on TV commercials. The feedback in this case was practically worthless. Now we asked about their print ads. How often did they run? One executive told us with obvious pride that the company had bought newspaper inserts every single Sunday for the past 20 years in 250 markets across the United States. So how could they tell whether these ads were effective? They couldn't. With no variation whatsoever, it was impossible to know. What if, we said, the company ran an experiment to find out? In science, the randomized controlled trial has been the gold standard of learning for hundreds of years. But why should scientists have all the fun? We described an experiment the company might run. They could select 40 major markets across the country and randomly divide them into two groups. In the first group, the company could keep buying newspaper ads every Sunday. In the second group, they'd go totally dark, not a single ad. After three months, it would be easy to compare merchandise sales in the two groups to see how much the print ads mattered. Are you crazy? One marketing executive said, we can't possibly go dark in 20 markets. Our CEO would kill us. Yeah, someone else said. It'd be like that kid in Pittsburgh. What kid in Pittsburgh? They told us about a summer intern who was supposed to call in the Sunday ad buys for the Pittsburgh newspapers. For whatever reason, he botched his assignment, failed to make the calls. So for the entire summer, the company ran no newspaper ads in a large chunk of Pittsburgh. Yeah, one executive said, we almost got fired for that one. So what happened, we asked now, to the company's Pittsburgh sales that summer? They looked at us, then at each other, and sheepishly admitted it never occurred to them to check the data. When they went back and ran the numbers, they found something shocking. The ad blackout hadn't affected Pittsburgh sales at all. Now that, we said, is valuable feedback. The company may well be wasting hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising. How could the executives know for sure? That 40 market experiment would go a long way toward answering the question. And so we asked them, are you ready to try it now? Are you crazy? The marketing executive said again, we'll get fired if we do that. To this day, on every single Sunday in every single market, this company still buys newspaper advertising, even though the only real piece of feedback they ever got is that the ads don't work.
The experiment we proposed, while heretical to this company's executives, was nothing if not simple. It would have neatly allowed them to gather the feedback they needed. There's no guarantee they would have been happy with the result. Maybe they'd need to spend more ad money, or maybe the ads were only successful in certain markets. But at least they would have gained a few clues as to what works and what doesn't. The miracle of a good experiment is that in one simple cut, you can eliminate all the complexity that makes it so hard to determine cause and effect. But experimentation of this sort is regrettably rare in the corporate and nonprofit worlds, government, and elsewhere. Why? One reason is tradition. In our experience, many institutions are used to making decisions based on some murky blend of gut instinct, moral compass, and whatever the previous decision maker did. A second reason is lack of expertise. While it isn't hard to run a simple experiment, most people have never been taught to do so and may therefore be intimidated. But there's a third grimmer explanation for this general reluctance toward experimentation. It requires someone to say, I don't know. Why mess with an experiment when you think you already know the answer? Rather than waste time, you can just rush off and bankroll the project or pass the law without having to worry about silly details like whether or not it'll work. If, however, you're willing to think like a freak and admit what you don't know, you'll see there's practically no limit to the power of a good randomized experiment. Granted, not every scenario lends itself to experimentation, especially when it comes to societal issues. In most places, most democracies at least, you can't just randomly select portions of the population and command them to, say, have 10 children instead of two or three or eat nothing but lentils for 20 years, or start going to church every day. So that's why it pays to be on the lookout for what's called a natural experiment, a shock to the system that produces the sort of feedback you'd get if you could randomly command people to change their behavior. A lot of the scenarios we've written about in our earlier books have exploited natural experiments. In trying to measure the knock-on effects of sending millions of people to prison, we took advantage of civil rights lawsuits that forced overcrowded prisons in some states to set free thousands of inmates, something that no governor or mayor would voluntarily do. In analyzing the relationship between abortion and crime, we capitalized on the fact that the legalization of abortion was staggered in time across different states. This allowed us to better isolate its effects than if it had been legalized everywhere at once. Alas, natural experiments as substantial as these are not common. One alternative is to set up a laboratory experiment. Social scientists around the world have been doing this in droves recently. They recruit legions of undergrads to act out various scenarios in the hopes of learning about everything from altruism to greed to criminality. Lab experiments can be incredibly useful in exploring behaviors that aren't so easy to capture in the real world. The results are often fascinating, but not necessarily that informative. Why not? Most of them simply don't bear enough resemblance to the real-world scenarios they're trying to mimic. They are the academic equivalent of a marketing focus group, a small number of hand-picked volunteers in an artificial environment who dutifully carry out the tasks requested by the person in charge. Lab experiments are invaluable in the hard sciences, in part because neutrinos and monads don't change their behavior when they're being watched, but humans do. 
A better way to get good feedback is to run a field experiment. That is, rather than trying to mimic the real world in a lab, you take the lab mindset out into the real world. You're still running an experiment, but the subjects don't necessarily know it, which means the feedback you'll glean is pure. With a field experiment, you can randomize to your heart's content. You can include more people than you could ever fit in a lab and watch those people responding to real world incentives rather than the encouragements of a professor hovering over them. When done well, field experiments can radically improve how problems get solved. Already, this is happening. In chapter six, you'll hear about a clever field experiment that got homeowners in California to use less electricity, and another that helped a charity raise millions of dollars to help turn around the lives of poor children. In chapter nine, we'll tell you about the most audacious experiment we've ever run in which we recruited people facing hard life decisions, whether to join the military or quit a job or end a romantic relationship. And with the flip of a coin, we randomly made the decision for them. As useful as experiments can be, there's one more reason a freak might want to try them. It's fun. Once you embrace the spirit of experimentation, the world becomes a sandbox in which to try out new ideas, ask new questions, and challenge the prevailing orthodoxies. You may have been struck, for example, by the fact that some wines are so much more expensive than others. Do expensive wines really taste better? Some years back, one of us tried an experiment to find out. The setting was the Society of Fellows, a Harvard outpost where postdoctoral students carry out research and once a week sit with their esteemed elder fellows for a formal dinner. Wine was a big part of these dinners, and the society boasted a formidable cellar. It wasn't unusual for a bottle to cost $100. Our young fellow wondered if this expense was justified. Several elder fellows, who happened to be wine connoisseurs, assured him it was. An expensive bottle, they told him, was generally far superior to a cheaper version. The young fellow decided to run a blind tasting to see how true this was. He asked the society's wine steward to pull two good vintages from the cellar. Then he went to a liquor store, bought the cheapest available bottle made from the same grape, cost $8.00. He poured the three wines into four decanters with one of the cellar wines repeated. So here was the layout. Decanter one was expensive wine A. Decanter two, expensive wine B. In decanter three was the cheap wine. And in decanter four was more of expensive wine A. Now, when it came time to taste the wines, the elder fellows couldn't have been more cooperative. They swirled, they sniffed, they sipped. They filled out marking cards, noting their assessment of each wine. They were not told that one of the wines cost about one-tenth the price of the others. The results? On average, the four decanters received nearly identical ratings. That is, the cheap wine tasted just as good as the expensive ones. But that wasn't even the most surprising finding. The young fellow also compared how each drinker rated each wine in comparison to the other wines. Can you guess which two decanters they judged as most different from each other? It was decanters one and four, which had been poured from the exact same bottle. 
Now, these findings were not greeted with universal good cheer. One of the elder connoisseur fellows loudly announced that he had a head cold, which presumably gummed up his palate, and he stormed from the room. All right, so maybe this experiment wasn't very sporting or scientific. Wouldn't it be nice to see the results of a more robust experiment along these lines? Robin Goldstein, a food and wine critic who has studied neuroscience, law, and French cuisine, decided to run such an experiment. Over several months, he organized 17 blind tastings across the United States that included more than 500 people, ranging from wine beginners to sommeliers and vintners. Goldstein used 523 different wines, from $1.65 a bottle to $150 a bottle. The tastings were double-blind, meaning that neither the drinker nor the person serving the wine knew its identity or price. After each wine, a drinker would answer this question. Overall, how do you find the wine? The answers were bad, one point, okay, two points, good, three points, and great, four points. The average rating for all wines across all tasters was 2.2, or just above okay. So, did the more expensive wines rack up more points? In a word, no. Goldstein found that on average, the people in his experiment enjoy more expensive wines slightly less than cheaper wines. He was careful to note that the experts in his sample, about 12% of the participants had some kind of wine training, did not prefer the cheaper wines, but nor was it clear that they preferred the expensive ones. When you buy a bottle of wine, do you sometimes base your decision on how pretty the label is? According to Robin Goldstein's results, this doesn't seem like such a bad strategy. At least it's easy to tell labels apart, unlike the stuff in the bottle. Goldstein, already bound for heretic status in the wine industry, had one more experiment to try. If more expensive wines don't taste better than cheap ones, he wondered, what about wine critics' ratings and awards? How legitimate are they? The best-known player in this arena is Wine Spectator magazine, which reviews thousands of wines and bestows its award of excellence to restaurants that serve, quote, a well-chosen selection of quality producers along with a thematic match to the menu in both price and style. Only a few thousand restaurants worldwide hold this distinction. Goldstein wondered if the award is as meaningful as it seems. He created a fictional restaurant in Milan with a fake website and a fake menu, a fun amalgamation of somewhat bumbling Nouvelle Italian recipes, he says. He called it Osteria L'Intrepido, or Fearless Restaurant, after his own fearless critic restaurant guides. There were two questions being tested here, he says. One was, do you have to have a good wine list to win a Wine Spectator Award of Excellence? And the second question was, do you have to exist to win a Wine Spectator Award of Excellence? Goldstein took great care in creating L'Intrepido's fictional wine list, but not in the direction you might imagine. For the reserve list, which is typically a restaurant's best, most expensive wines, he chose wines that were particularly bad. The list included 15 wines that Wine Spectator itself had reviewed using its 100-point scale. Now, on this scale, anything above 90 is at least outstanding. Above 80 is at least good. If a wine gets 75 to 79 points, Wine Spectator calls it mediocre. Anything below 74 is, quote, not recommended. 
So how had the magazine rated the 15 wines Goldstein chose for his reserve list? Their average wine spectator rating was a paltry 71. One vintage, according to Wine Spectator, quote, smells barnyardy and tastes decayed. Another had just too much paint thinner and nail varnish character. A 1995 Cabernet Sauvignon Il Fossaretti, which scored a lowly 58 points, got this review from Wine Spectator. Something wrong here. Tasted metallic and odd. On Goldstein's reserve list, this bottle was priced at 120 euros. The average cost of the 15 bottles was about 180 euros. How could Goldstein possibly expect that a fake restaurant whose most expensive wines had gotten terrible wine spectator reviews would win a wine spectator award of excellence? My hypothesis, he says, was that the $250 fee was really the functional part of the application. So he sent off the check, the application, and his wine list. Not long after, the answering machine at his fake restaurant in Milan received a real call from Wine Spectator in New York. He had won an award of excellence. The magazine also asked if, quote, you might have an interest in publicizing your award with an ad in the upcoming issue. This led Goldstein to conclude that the entire awards program was really just an advertising scheme. Does that mean, we asked Goldstein, that the two of us who don't know a thing about running a restaurant could someday hope to win a Wine Spectator Award of Excellence? Yeah, he said, if your wines are bad enough. Maybe, you're thinking, it's obvious that awards like this are to some degree just a marketing stunt. Maybe it was also obvious to you that more expensive wines don't necessarily taste better, or that a lot of advertising money is wasted. But a lot of obvious ideas are only obvious after the fact, after somebody has taken the time and effort to investigate them, to prove them right or wrong. The impulse to investigate can only be set free if you stop pretending to know answers that you don't. Because the incentives to pretend are so strong, this may require some bravery on your part. You remember those British schoolchildren who made up answers about Mary's trip to the seashore? The researchers who ran that experiment did a follow-up study called Helping Children Correctly Say I Don't Know to Unanswerable Questions. Once again, the children were asked a series of questions, but in this case, they were explicitly told to say I don't know if a question was unanswerable. The happy news is that the children were wildly successful at saying I don't know when appropriate while still getting the other questions right. Let us all take encouragement from the kids' progress. The next time you run into a question that you can only pretend to answer, go ahead and say, I don't know, and then follow up, certainly, with, but maybe I can find out, and then work as hard as you can to do that. You may be surprised by how receptive people are to your confession, especially when you come through with a real answer a day or a week later. But even if this goes poorly, if your boss sneers at your ignorance or you just can't figure out the answer no matter how hard you try, there is another, more strategic benefit to occasionally saying, I don't know. Let's say you've already done that on a few occasions, and the next time you're in a real jam facing an important question that you just can't answer, go ahead and make up something. 
And everyone will believe you because you're the guy who all those other times was crazy enough to admit that you didn't know the answer. After all, just because you're at the office is no reason to stop thinking. Chapter 3. What's your problem? If it takes a lot of courage to admit that you don't know all the answers, just imagine how hard it is to admit you don't even know the right question. But if you ask the wrong question, you are almost guaranteed to get the wrong answer. Think about a problem you'd really like to see solved. The obesity epidemic, perhaps, or climate change, or the decline of the American public school system. Now ask yourself how you came to define the problem as you see it. In all likelihood, your view was heavily influenced by the popular press. Most people don't have the time or inclination to think very hard about big problems like this. We tend to pay attention to what other people say, and if their views resonate with us, we slide our perception atop theirs. Furthermore, we tend to focus on the part of a problem that bothers us. So maybe you hate the idea of substandard schools because your grandmother was a teacher and she seemed so much more devoted to education than today's teachers. To you, it's obvious that schools are failing because there are too many bad teachers. But let's consider this a little more closely. In the U.S. push for education reform, theories abound as to the key factors, school size, class size, administrative stability, money for technology, and yes, teacher skill. It is demonstrably true that a good teacher is better than a bad teacher. And it's also true that overall teacher quality has fallen since your grandmother's day, in part because smart women now have so many more job options. Furthermore, in some countries, Finland and Singapore and South Korea, for instance, future school teachers are recruited from the best college-bound students, whereas a teacher in the United States is more likely to come from the bottom half of her class. So perhaps it makes sense that every conversation about school reform should focus on teacher skill. But a mountain of recent evidence suggests that teacher skill has less influence on a student's performance than a completely different set of factors, namely how much kids have learned from their parents, how hard they work at home, and whether the parents have instilled an appetite for education. If these home-based inputs are lacking, there's only so much a school can do. Schools have your kid for only seven hours a day, 180 days a year, or about 22% of the child's waking hours. Nor is all that time devoted to learning once you account for socializing and eating and getting to and from class. And for many kids, the first three or four years of life is all parents and no school. But when serious people talk about education reform, they rarely talk about the family's role in preparing children to succeed. That is in part because the very words education reform indicate that the question is, what's wrong with our schools? When in reality, the question might be better phrased as, why do American kids know less than kids from Estonia and Poland? When you ask the question differently, you look for answers in different places. So maybe when we talk about why American kids aren't doing so well, we should be talking less about schools and more about parents. Now, in our society, if someone wants to be a hairstylist or a kickboxer, or a hunting guide, or a school teacher, 
he or she must be trained and licensed by a state agency. No such requirement is necessary for parenthood. Anyone with a set of reproductive organs is free to create a child, no questions asked, and raise them as they see fit, so long as there are no visible bruises, and then turn the child over to the school system so the teachers can work their magic. Maybe we're asking too much of the schools and too little of our parents and kids. Here's the broader point. Whatever problem you're trying to solve, make sure you're not just attacking the noisy part of the problem that happens to capture your attention. Before spending all your time and resources, it's incredibly important to properly define the problem or better yet, redefine the problem. That is what an unassuming Japanese college student did when he took on the sort of challenge most of us wouldn't dream about or even want to. In the autumn of 2000, a young man who had come to be known as Kobe was studying economics at Yokaichi University in Mia Prefecture. He lived with his girlfriend, Kumi. They lit the apartment by candle since they could no longer afford the electricity bill. Neither of them came from a family of significant means. Kobe's father was a disciple at a Buddhist temple giving tours about its history, and they were behind on their rent as well. Kumi heard about a contest that paid $5,000 to the winner. Without telling Kobe, she sent in a postcard to sign him up. It was a televised eating competition. This was far from an obviously good idea. Kobe wasn't gluttonous in the least. He had a slight build and stood barely five foot eight. He did, however, have a strong stomach and a good appetite. As a child, he'd always cleaned his plate, sometimes his sister's plates too. He also believed that size could be overrated. One of his childhood heroes was the great sumo champion Chiona Fuji, a.k.a. the Wolf, who was relatively light but compensated with superior technique. Kobe reluctantly agreed to enter the contest. His only chance was to outthink the competition. At university, he had been learning about game theory, and now it came in handy. The contest would have four stages— Boiled potatoes, followed by a seafood bowl, Mongolian mutton barbecue, and noodles. Only the top finishers from each stage would advance. Kobe studied earlier multi-stage eating contests. He saw that most competitors went so hard in the early rounds that even if they did advance, they were too exhausted and stuffed to do well in the finals. His strategy was to conserve energy and stomach capacity by eating just enough at each stage to qualify for the next. It wasn't rocket science, but his competitors weren't rocket scientists either. In the final round, Kobe channeled his boyhood sumo hero and wolfed down enough noodles to win the $5,000 prize. The lights went back on in Kobe and Kumi's apartment. There was more money to be made in Japanese eating contests, but Kobe, having tasted amateur success, was eager to go pro. He set his sights on the Super Bowl of competitive eating, as the sport is known, the Nathan's famous 4th of July International Hot Dog Eating Contest. For some four decades, it had been held at Coney Island in New York City. The New York Times and others have written the contest goes back to 1916, but its promoters admit they concocted that history. And it routinely draws more than one million viewers on ESPN. The rules were simple. A contestant ate as many hot dogs and buns, HDB officially, as he could in 12 minutes. 
any HDB or portion thereof already in the eater's mouth when the final bell rang would count toward his total as long as he swallowed it eventually. An eater could be disqualified, however, if, during the contest, a significant amount of HDB that had gone into his mouth came back out, known in the sport as a reversal of fortune. Condiments were allowed, but no serious competitor would bother. Beverages were also allowed, any kind in unlimited quantity. In 2001, when Kobe decided to enter the Coney Island contest, the record stood at a mind-boggling 25 and 1/8 hot dogs and buns in 12 minutes. At home in Japan, he practiced. He had a hard time finding regulation hot dogs, so he used sausages made from minced fish. Instead of buns, he cut up loaves of bread. For months, he trained in obscurity, and he arrived at Coney Island in obscurity as well. A year earlier, the top three finishers were all Japanese. Kazutoyo the Rabbit Arai held the world record, but this newcomer was not considered a threat. Some thought he was a high school student, which would have made him ineligible. One contestant mocked him. Your legs are thinner than my arms, he said. So how did he do? In his very first Coney Island contest, Kobe smoked the field, set a new world record. Now, how many hot dogs and buns would you guess he ate? The record, remember, was 25 and one-eighth. A sensible guess might be 27 or even 28 hot dogs and buns. That would be more than a 10% gain over the old record. If you wanted to make a really aggressive guess, you might suppose a 20% gain which would mean a bit more than 30 hot dogs and buns in 12 minutes. But he ate 50. 50. That's more than four hot dogs and buns per minute for 12 straight minutes. The slender 23-year-old Kobe, full name Takeru Kobayashi, had essentially doubled the world record. Just think about that margin of victory. The Coney Island hot dog contest isn't as historically significant as say, the 100-meter dash. But let's put Kobayashi's feet in perspective. The 100-meter record is, as of this writing, held by Usain Bolt, the Jamaican sprinter with the perfect name, at 9.58 seconds. Even in such a brief race, Bolt often beats his rivals by a few strides. He is widely considered the best sprinter in history. Before Bolt, the record was 9.74 seconds, so his improvement was 1.6%. If he had treated that record as Kobayashi treated his, Usain Bolt would have run the 100 meters in about 4.87 seconds for an average speed of roughly 46 miles an hour. That's somewhere between a greyhound and a cheetah. Kobayashi won Coney Island again the following year and the next four years too, pushing the record to 53 and three-fourths hot dogs and buns. No past champion had won more than three times, much less six in a row. But it wasn't just the winning or the margin of victory that set him apart. The typical competitive eater looked as if he could gobble down Kobayashi himself. He was the kind of man famous in his fraternity house for consuming two entire pizzas and a six-pack at one sitting. Kobayashi, meanwhile, was soft-spoken, playful, and analytical. He became an international superstar. In Japan, the enthusiasm for eating contests cooled after a schoolboy choked to death, imitating his heroes. 
but Kobayashi found plenty of competition elsewhere. He set records in hamburgers, bratwurst, Twinkies, lobster rolls, fish tacos, and more. A rare defeat came in a one-on-one TV event. In roughly two and a half minutes, Kobayashi ate 31 bunless hot dogs, but his opponent ate 50. The opponent was a half-ton Kodiak bear. Initially, his dominance at Coney Island was perplexing. Some rivals thought he was cheating. Perhaps he took a muscle relaxant or some other foreign substance to quell the gag reflex. He was rumored to have swallowed stones to expand his stomach. There were even whispers that Kobayashi represented a Japanese government plot to humiliate the Americans, at a contest held on Independence Day, no less, and that Japanese doctors had surgically implanted a second esophagus or stomach. Alas, none of these charges seemed to be true. So why was Takeru Kobayashi so much better than everyone else? We met with him on several occasions to try to answer that question. The first meeting took place one summer evening in New York over dinner at Café Luxembourg, a quietly chic restaurant on the Upper West Side. Kobayashi ate daintily a small green salad, English breakfast tea, a bit of duck breast with no sauce. It was hard to imagine he was the same person who crammed so many hot dogs in his mouth when the bell rang. It was like watching a cage fighter doing needlepoint. Compared to the American eaters, he says, I don't eat very much regularly. To eat quickly is not very good manners. Everything I do is against the manners and morals of the Japanese people. His mother did not care for his chosen profession. I would never talk to her about my contests or the training, he said. But in 2006, when she was dying of cancer, she seemed to draw inspiration from it. She was taking the chemotherapy, so she would want to throw up a lot. And she would say, you're also fighting the urge to throw up from eating so much, so I feel like I can try and sustain. His features are delicate, soft eyes and high cheekbones that give him a sprightly look. His hair is cut stylishly and dyed red on one side and yellow on the other, representing ketchup and mustard. He begins to speak quietly but intensely about how he trained for his first Coney Island competition. Those months in isolation, it turned out, were one long bout of experimentation and feedback. Kobayashi had observed that most Coney Island eaters used a similar strategy, which was not really much of a strategy at all. It was essentially a sped-up version of how the average person eats a hot dog at a backyard barbecue. Pick it up, cram the dog and bun into the mouth, chew from end to end, and glug some water to wash it down. Kobayashi wondered if, perhaps, there was a better way. Nowhere was it written, for instance, that the dog must be eaten end to end. His first experiment was simple. What would happen if he broke the dog and bun in half before eating? This, he found, afforded more options for chewing and loading, and it also let his hands do some of the work that would otherwise occupy his mouth. This maneuver would come to be known as the Solomon Method, after the biblical King Solomon, who settled a maternity dispute by threatening to slice a baby into two pieces. More on that later in chapter 7. Kobayashi now questioned another conventional practice, eating the dog and bun together. It wasn't surprising that everyone did this. The dog is nested so comfortably in the bun, and when eating for pleasure, the soft blandness of the bun pairs wonderfully with the slick, seasoned meat. 
but Kobayashi wasn't eating for pleasure. Chewing dog and bun together, he discovered, created a density conflict. The dog itself is a compressed tube of dense, salty meat that can practically slide down the gullet on its own. The bun, while airy and less substantial, takes up a lot of space and requires a lot of chewing. So he started removing the dog from bun. Now he could feed himself a handful of bunless dogs broken in half, followed by a round of buns. He was like a one-man factory, working toward the kind of specialization that has made economists' hearts beat faster since the days of Adam Smith. As easily as he was able to swallow the hot dogs, like a trained dolphin slurping down herring at the aquarium, the bun was still a problem. If you want to win a bar bet, challenge someone to eat two hot dog buns in one minute without a beverage. It is nearly impossible. So Kobayashi tried something different. As he was feeding himself the bunless broken hot dogs with one hand, he used the other hand to dunk the bun into his water cup. Then he'd squeeze out most of the excess water and smush the bun into his mouth. This might seem counterintuitive. Why put extra liquid in your stomach when you need all available space for buns and dogs? But the bun dunking provided a hidden benefit. Eating soggy buns meant that Kobayashi grew less thirsty along the way, which meant less time wasted on drinking. He experimented with water temperature and found that warm was best as it relaxed his chewing muscles. He also spiked the water with vegetable oil, which seemed to help swallowing. His experimentation was endless. He videotaped his training sessions and recorded all his data in a spreadsheet, hunting for inefficiencies and lost milliseconds. He experimented with pace. Was it better to go hard the first four minutes, ease off during the middle four, and then sprint toward the end, or to maintain a steady pace throughout? A fast start, he discovered, was best. He found that getting a lot of sleep was especially important. So was weight training. Strong muscles aided in eating and helped resist the urge to throw up. He also discovered that he could make more room in his stomach by jumping and wriggling as he ate, a strange animalistic dance that came to be known as the Kobayashi Shake. Just as important as the tactics he adopted were those he rejected. Unlike other competitive eaters, he never trained at an all-you-can-eat restaurant. If I do that, he says, I don't know how much of what I ate. He did not listen to music while eating. I don't want to hear any extra sounds. He found that drinking gallons of water could expand his stomach, but the end result was disastrous. I started to have a sort of seizure, like an epileptic seizure, so that was a big mistake. When he put it all together, Kobayashi found that his physical preparations could produce an elevated mental state. In ordinary cases, eating so much for 10 minutes, the last two minutes are the toughest moments and you worry. But... If you have great concentration, then it's enjoyable. You feel pain and suffering. However, as you feel it, you feel more excited. And that's when highness is upon you. But wait a minute. What if Kobayashi, for all his methodological innovation, was simply an anatomical freak, a once-in-a-lifetime eating machine? The best evidence against this argument is that his competition began to catch up with him. After six years of domination at Coney Island, Kobayashi was overtaken by the American eater Joey Jaws Chestnut, who went on to win seven straight Coney Island contests as of this writing. 
Often, he beat Kobayashi by just a whisker. The two of them pushed the world record ever upward, with Chestnut scarfing a mind-boggling 69 hot dogs and buns in just 10 minutes. The contest was shortened by two minutes in 2008. Meanwhile, a handful of rivals, including Patrick Deep Dish Bertoletti and Tim Eater X Janice, routinely eat more hot dogs and buns than Kobayashi did when he first doubled the old record. So does the female record holder, 98-pound Sonia the Black Widow Thomas, who has eaten 45 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. Some of Kobayashi's rivals have copied certain strategies of his, all of them gained from the knowledge that 40 or 50 hot dogs and buns, once considered a fantasy, plainly isn't. In 2010, Kobayashi got into a contract dispute with the organizers of the Coney Island event. He claimed they limited his ability to compete elsewhere, and he wasn't in the lineup. But he showed up anyway, and in the excitement, he jumped on stage. He was promptly handcuffed and arrested. It was an uncharacteristically brash move for such a disciplined man. That night in jail, he was given a sandwich and milk. I'm very hungry, he said. I wish there were hot dogs in jail. Can the success of Takeru Kobayashi, as magnificent as it was, be applied to anything more significant than the high-speed consumption of hot dogs? We believe it can. If you think like a freak, there are at least two broader lessons to be gleaned from his approach. The first is about problem-solving generally. Kobayashi redefined the problem he was trying to solve. What question were his competitors asking? It was essentially, how do I eat more hot dogs? Kobayashi asked a different question. How do I make hot dogs easier to eat? This question led him to experiment and gather the feedback that changed the game. Only by redefining the problem was he able to discover a new set of solutions. Kobayashi came to view competitive eating as a fundamentally different activity than everyday eating. He saw it as a sport, a disgusting one, perhaps, at least to most people. But, as with any sport, it required specific training, strategy, and physical and mental maneuvers. Seeing an eating contest as an amplified version of everyday eating was, to him, like seeing a marathon as an amplified version of walking down the street. Sure, most of us walk well enough, and even for a long time if necessary, but completing a marathon is a bit more complicated than that. It is, of course, easier to redefine a problem like competitive eating than, say, a faltering education system or endemic poverty. But even with complex issues like these, a good start would be to assess the core of the problem as shrewdly as Kobayashi did with his. The second lesson to be drawn from Kobayashi's success has to do with the limits that we accept or refuse to. Over dinner that night at Café Luxembourg, Kobayashi said that when he started training, he refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of the existing Coney Island record of 25 and 1 8 hot dogs and buns. Why? He reasoned that the record didn't stand for much since his earlier competitors had been asking the wrong question about eating hot dogs. As he saw it, the record was an artificial barrier. So he went into the contest not thinking about 25 and 1 8 as any sort of upper bound. He instructed his mind to pay zero attention to the number of hot dogs he was eating and to concentrate solely on how he ate them. 
would he still have won that first contest if he had mentally honored the barrier of 25 and an eighth? Perhaps, but it's hard to imagine he would have doubled the record. In recent experiments, scientists have found that even elite athletes can be tricked into improvement by essentially lying to them. In one experiment, cyclists were told to pedal a stationary bike at top speed for the equivalent of 4,000 meters. Later, they repeated the task while watching an avatar of themselves pedaling in the earlier time trial. What the cyclists didn't know was that the researchers had turned up the speed on the avatar. And yet, the cyclists were able to keep up with their avatars, surpassing what they thought had been their top speed. It is the brain, not the heart or lungs, that is the critical organ, said the esteemed neurologist Roger Bannister, best known as the first human to run the mile in less than four minutes. All of us face barriers, physical, financial, temporal, every day. Some are unquestionably real, but others are plainly artificial. Expectations about how well a given system can function or how much change is too much, or what kinds of behaviors are acceptable. The next time you encounter such a barrier imposed by people who lack your imagination and drive and creativity, think hard about ignoring it. Solving a problem is hard enough. It gets that much harder if you've decided beforehand it can't be done. If you doubt the adverse power of artificial limits. Here's a simple test. Let's say you haven't been exercising. You want to get back in the groove. You decide to do some push-ups. How many? Well, you tell yourself, it's been a while. Let me start with 10. All right, down you go. When do you start getting mentally and physically tired? Probably around push-up number seven or eight. Imagine now that you had decided on 20 push-ups instead of 10. When do you start getting tired this time? Go ahead. Hit the floor. Try it you probably blasted right past 10 before you even remembered how out of shape you are. It was by refusing to accept the existing hot dog record that Kobayashi blasted right through number 25 that first year. At Coney Island, each eater was assigned a bonnet, a young woman who held aloft a signboard to show the audience each eater's progress. That year, the signboards didn't go high enough. Kobe's bonnet had to hold up plain sheets of yellow paper with hastily scribbled numbers. When it was all over, a Japanese TV reporter asked him how he felt. I can keep going, Kobe said. Chapter 4 Like a bad dye job, the truth is in the roots. It takes a truly original thinker to look at a problem that everybody else has already looked at and find a new avenue of attack. Why is this so rare? Perhaps because most of us, when trying to figure out a problem, gravitate toward the nearest and most obvious cause. It's hard to say whether this is learned behavior or if it dates to our distant past. In the caveman era, it was a matter of life or death to know if the berries on a particular bush were edible. The proximate cause was usually the one that mattered. Even today, the most proximate cause often makes perfect sense. If your three-year-old child is wailing and your five-year-old is standing nearby with a devilish grin and a plastic hammer, it's a good bet the hammer had something to do with the wailing. 
But the big problems that society cares about, crime and disease and political dysfunction, for instance, are more complicated than that. Their root causes are often not so nearby or obvious or palatable. So rather than address their root causes, we often spend billions of dollars treating the symptoms and are left to grimace when the problem remains. Thinking like a freak means you should work terribly hard to identify and attack the root cause of problems. Of course, this is far more easily said than done. Consider poverty and famine. What causes them? Now, a glib answer is the lack of money and food. So theoretically, you can fight poverty and famine by airlifting vast amounts of money and food into poor and hungry places. This is pretty much what governments and aid groups have been doing for many years. So why do the same problems persist in the same places? Because poverty is a symptom of the absence of a workable economy built on credible political, social, and legal institutions. It's hard to fix that, even with plane loads of cash. Similarly, the lack of food is usually not the root cause of famine. As the economist Amartya Sen wrote in his landmark book, Poverty and Famines, starvation is the characteristic of some people not having enough food to eat. It is not the characteristic of their being not enough food to eat. In countries whose political and economic institutions are built to serve the appetites of a corrupt few, rather than the multitudes, food is routinely withheld from the people who need it most. In the United States, meanwhile, we throw away an astonishing 40% of the food we buy. Alas, fixing corruption is a lot harder than airlifting food. So even when you do get to the root cause of a problem, you may still be stuck. But as we'll see in this chapter, the stars occasionally align and the payoff can be huge. In Freakonomics, we examined the causes of the rise and fall in violent crime in the United States. In 1960, crime began a sudden climb. By 1980, the homicide rate had doubled, reaching an historic peak. For several years, crime stayed perilously high, but in the early 1990s, it began to fall and kept falling. So what happened? A great many explanations were put forth, and in our book, we put a number of them under empirical scrutiny. Here are two sets of possible explanations. One had a strong impact on lowering crime, and one did not. Can you tell which is which? Okay, set A, tighter gun laws, a surging economy, and more capital punishment. And set B, more police officers, more people sent to prison, and the decline of the crack cocaine market. Now, each set is quite plausible, isn't it? Indeed, until you roll up your sleeves and crunch some data, it's virtually impossible to know the right answer. So what do the data say? The A factors, as logical as they may seem, did not contribute to the crime drop. Maybe this surprises you. Gun murders are down? Well, you think... That must be from all those tough new gun laws. Until you examine the data and find that most people who commit crimes with guns are almost entirely unaffected by current gun laws. You might also think the go-go economy of the 1990s would have helped, but historical data show there is a surprisingly weak relationship between economic cycles and violent crime. Indeed, as the Great Recession took hold in 2007, a chorus of pundits warned that our long, lovely reprieve from violent crime was over. But it wasn't. 
Between 2007 and 2010, the worst years of the recession, homicide fell an additional 16%. The homicide rate today is improbably lower than it was in 1960. The B factors from earlier, meanwhile, more cops, more people in prison, and a collapsing crack market did contribute to the crime drop. But once we tallied up the cumulative impact of these factors, they still couldn't account for the entire crime drop. There had to be something else. Let's take a closer look at the B factors. Do they address the root causes of crime? Not really. They might more plausibly be called present tense factors. Sure, hiring more cops and putting more people in prison may shrink the short-term supply of criminals, but what about the long-term supply? In Freakonomics, we identified one missing factor, the legalization of abortion in the early 1970s. The theory was jarring but simple. A rise in abortion meant that fewer unwanted children were being born, which meant fewer children growing up in the sort of difficult circumstances that increase the likelihood of criminality. Given the history of abortion in the U.S., there are few issues as morally and politically fraught. This theory was bound to be discomforting for abortion opponents and supporters alike. We steeled ourselves for a shouting match. Interestingly, our argument didn't generate much hate mail. Why? Our best guess is that readers were smart enough to understand that we had identified abortion as a mechanism for the crime drop, but not the actual root cause. So what is the root cause? Simply this, too many children were being brought up in bad environments that led them to crime. As the first post-abortion generation came of age, it included fewer children who'd been raised in such environments. It can be unsettling, even frightening, to stare a root cause in the eye. Maybe that's why we so often avoid it. It's a lot easier to argue about cops and prisons and gun laws than the thorny question of what makes a parent fit to raise a child. But if you want to have a worthwhile conversation about crime, it makes sense to start by talking about the benefits of good, loving parents who give their children a chance to lead safe and productive lives. This may not be a simple conversation, but when you are dealing with root causes, at least you know you're fighting the real problem and not just boxing with shadows. It may seem daunting to travel backward a generation or two in order to understand the root cause of a problem, but in some cases, a generation is barely the blink of an eye. Let's pretend you are a German factory worker. You're sitting in a beer hall with friends after a shift, demoralized by your financial standing. The national economy is humming along, but it seems as if you and everybody else in town is running in place. The people who live just a few towns over, meanwhile, are doing considerably better. Why? To find out, we must travel all the way back to the 16th century. In 1517, a distraught young German priest named Martin Luther levied a list of 95 grievances against the Roman Catholic Church. One practice he found particularly odious was the sale of indulgences, that is, the church's practice of raising cash by forgiving the sins of big-ticket donors. One senses that today, Luther would rail against the tax treatment enjoyed by hedge funds and private equity firms. Luther's bold move launched the Protestant Reformation. 
Germany at the time was made up of more than 1,000 independent territories, each ruled by its own prince or duke. Some of these men followed Luther and embraced Protestantism. Others stayed loyal to the church. This schism would play out for decades all over Europe, often with immense bloodshed. In 1555, a temporary settlement was reached, the Peace of Augsburg, which allowed each German prince to freely select the religion to be practiced in his territory. Moreover, if a Catholic family lived in a territory whose prince chose Protestantism, the peace allowed them to freely migrate to a Catholic area and vice versa. And so it was that Germany became a religious patchwork. Catholicism remained popular in the southeast and northwest, while Protestantism took off in the central and northeast regions. Other areas were mixed. Fast forward some 460 years to today. A young economist named Jörg Spenkuk discovered that if he laid a map of modern Germany over a map of 16th century Germany, he could see that the religious patchwork was largely intact. The old Protestant areas are still largely Protestant, while the old Catholic areas are still largely Catholic, except for the former East Germany, which took on a lot of atheism during its communist period. The choices the princes made centuries ago still hold sway. Now, perhaps this isn't so surprising. Germany, after all, is a nation steeped in tradition. But Spencook, while playing around with these maps, found something that did surprise him. The religious patchwork of modern Germany also overlapped with an interesting economic patchwork. The people living in Protestant areas earned more money than those in Catholic areas. Not a great deal more, about 1%, but the difference was clear. If the prince in your area had sided with the Catholics you were likely to be poorer today than if he had followed Martin Luther. How to explain this income patchwork? There could, of course, be present tense reasons. Perhaps the high earners got more education or had better marriages or lived closer to the high-paying jobs found in big cities. But Spencook analyzed the relevant data, and he found that none of these factors could account for the income gap. Only one factor could, religion itself. He concluded that the people in Protestant areas make more money than the people in Catholic areas simply because they are Protestants. Why? Was some kind of religious cronyism to blame with Protestant bosses maybe giving better jobs to Protestant workers? Apparently not. In fact, the data showed that Protestants don't earn higher hourly wages than Catholics, and yet they do manage to have higher incomes overall. So, how does Spencook explain the Protestant-Catholic income gap? He identified three factors. Number one, Protestants tend to work a few more hours per week than Catholics. Number two, Protestants are more likely than Catholics to be self-employed. And number three, Protestant women are more likely than Catholic women to work full-time. It appears that Jörg Spencook found living proof of the Protestant work ethic. That was the theory put forth in the early 1900s by the German sociologist Max Weber, which argued that capitalism took off in Europe in part because Protestants embraced the earthly notion of hard work as part of their divine mission. So what does all this mean for the disgruntled factory worker drowning his economic sorrows in the beer hall? Unfortunately, not much. For him, it's probably too late unless he wants to shake up his life and start working harder. 
But at least he can push his kids to follow the lead of the hardworking Protestants a few towns over. Once you start looking at the world through a long lens, you will find many examples of contemporary behaviors that are driven by root causes from centuries past. Why, for instance, are some Italian towns more likely than others to participate in civic and philanthropic programs? Because, as some researchers argue, during the Middle Ages, these towns were free city-states rather than areas ruled by Norman overlords. Such an independent history apparently fosters a lasting trust in civic institutions. In Africa, some countries that regained independence from their colonial rulers have experienced brutal wars and rampant corruption. Others have not. Why? One pair of scholars found an answer that goes back many years. When the European powers began their mad scramble for Africa in the 19th century, they carved up existing territories by looking at maps from afar. When creating new borders, they considered two essential criteria, landmass and water. The actual Africans who lived in these territories were not a major concern for the colonialists, since to them, one African looked pretty much like the next one. This method might make sense if you're cutting a cherry pie, but a continent is more problematic. These new colonial borders often split up large, harmonious ethnic groups. Suddenly, some members of the group became residents of one new country, others a second country, along with, often, members of a different ethnic group with whom the first group wasn't so harmonious. Ethnic strife tended to be tamped down by colonial rule, but when the Europeans eventually returned to Europe, the African countries where unfriendly ethnic groups had been artificially jumbled were far more likely to devolve into war. The scars of colonialism still haunt South America as well. Spanish conquistadors who found silver or gold in Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia would enslave the locals to work the mines. What kind of long-term effect did this have? As several economists have found, people in those mining areas are to this day poorer than their neighbors, and their children are less likely to be vaccinated or get an education. There is another case, a bizarre one to be sure, in which the long arm of slavery reaches across history. Roland Fryer, an economist at Harvard, is consumed with closing the gap between blacks and whites in education, income, and health. Not long ago, he set out to understand why whites outlive blacks by several years. One thing was clear. Heart disease, historically the biggest killer of both whites and blacks, is far more common among blacks. But why? Fryer crunched all sorts of numbers, but he found that none of the obvious stressors, diet, smoking, even poverty, could account for the entire gap. Then he found something that might. Fryer happened upon an old illustration called An Englishman Tastes the Sweat of an African. It showed a slave trader in West Africa who appeared to be licking the slave's face. Why would he do that? One possibility was that he was somehow screening the slave for illness, not wanting to contaminate the rest of his cargo. Fryer wondered if the slave trader was perhaps testing the slave's saltiness. That, after all, is what sweat tastes like. And if so, why? And might this answer inform the broader agenda Fryer was pursuing? 
The ocean journey of a slave from Africa to America was long and gruesome. Many slaves died en route. Dehydration was a major cause. Who, Fryer wondered, is less likely to suffer from dehydration? Someone with a high degree of salt sensitivity. That is, if you are able to retain more salt, you will also retain more water and be less likely to die during the Middle Passage. So perhaps the slave trader in the illustration wanted to find the saltier slaves in order to ensure his investment. Now, Fryer, who is black, mentioned this theory to a Harvard colleague, David Cutler, a prominent health economist who is white. Cutler at first thought it was absolutely crazy, he says, but upon deeper inspection, it made sense. Indeed, some earlier medical research made a similar claim, although it was in considerable dispute. Fryer began to fit the pieces together. You might think anyone who could survive a voyage like this would be very fit and therefore would have a longer life expectancy, he says. But actually, this peculiar selection mechanism says that you can survive an ordeal such as the Middle Passage, but it's horrible for hypertension and related diseases. And salt sensitivity is a highly heritable trait, meaning that your descendants, i.e. black Americans, stand a pretty good chance of being hypertensive or of having cardiovascular disease. Fryer looked for further evidence that might support his theory. American blacks are about 50% more likely to have hypertension than American whites. Again, this could be due to differences like diet and income. So what did the hypertension rates of other black populations look like? Fryer found that among Caribbean blacks, another population brought from Africa as slaves, hypertension rates were also elevated. But he noted that blacks who still live in Africa are statistically indistinguishable from whites in America. The evidence was hardly conclusive, but Fryer was convinced that the selection mechanism of the slave trade could be a long-lasting root cause of African Americans' higher mortality rates. As you can imagine, Fryer's theory is not universally popular. Many people are uncomfortable talking about genetic racial difference at all. People email me and say, can't you see the slippery slope here, he says? Can you see the perils of this argument? Fresh medical research may prove that the salt sensitivity theory isn't even right. But if it is, even in small measure, the potential benefits are huge. There's something that can be done, Fryer says, a diuretic that helps your body get rid of your salts, a little common pill. You might think that medicine, with such strong doses of science and logic, is one field in which root causes are always well understood. Alas, you would be wrong. The human body is a complex dynamic system about which a great deal remains unknown. Writing as recently as 1997, the medical historian Roy Porter put it this way. We live in an age of science, but science has not eliminated fantasies about health. The stigmas of sickness, the moral meanings of medicine continue. As a result, gut hunches are routinely passed off as dogma while conventional wisdom flourishes even when there's no data to back it up. Consider the ulcer. It is essentially a hole in your stomach or small intestine, producing a searing and surging pain. 
By the early 1980s, the causes of an ulcer were said to be definitively known. They were inherited or caused by psychological stress and spicy food, either of which could produce an overabundance of stomach acid. To anyone who's ever eaten a pile of jalapenos, this seems plausible. And, as any doctor would attest, a patient with a bleeding ulcer was likely to be stressed out. A doctor might just as easily note that shooting victims tend to bleed a lot, but that doesn't mean the blood caused the gunshot. Since the causes of ulcers were known, so too was the treatment. Patients were advised to relax, to cut down on stress, drink milk to soothe the stomach, and take a Zantac or Tagamet pill to block the production of stomach acid. How well did this work? To put it charitably, so-so. The treatment did help manage a patient's pain, but the condition wasn't cured, and an ulcer is more than a painful nuisance. It can easily become fatal due to peritonitis caused by a hole going clear through the stomach wall or complications from bleeding. Some ulcers required major surgery with all the attendant complications. Although ulcer patients didn't make out so well under the standard treatment, the medical community did just fine. Millions of patients required the constant service of gastroenterologists and surgeons, while pharmaceutical companies got rich. The antacids Tagamet and Zantac were the first true blockbuster drugs, taking in more than $1 billion a year. By 1994, the global ulcer market was worth more than $8 billion. In the past, some medical researcher might have suggested that ulcers and other stomach ailments, including cancer, had a different root cause, perhaps even bacterial. But the medical establishment was quick to point out the glaring flaw in this theory. How could bacteria possibly survive in the acidic cauldron of the stomach? And so, the ulcer treatment juggernaut rolled on. There wasn't much of an incentive to find a cure, not at least by the people whose careers depended on the prevailing ulcer treatment, Fortunately, the world is more diverse than that. In 1981, a young Australian medical resident named Barry Marshall was on the hunt for a research project. He had just taken up a rotation in the gastroenterology unit at Royal Perth Hospital, where a senior pathologist had stumbled onto a mystery. As Marshall later described it, we've got 20 patients with bacteria in their stomach where you shouldn't have bacteria living because there's too much acid. The senior doctor, Robin Warren, was looking for a young researcher to help find out what's wrong with these people. The squiggly bacteria resembled a species called Campylobacter, which can cause infection in people who spend time with chickens. Were these human bacteria indeed Campylobacter? What kind of diseases might they lead to? And why were they so concentrated among patients with gastric trouble? Barry Marshall, as it turns out, was already familiar with Campylobacter, for his father had worked as a refrigeration engineer in a chicken packing plant. Marshall's mother, meanwhile, was a nurse. We used to have a lot of arguments about what was really true in medicine, he told an interviewer, the esteemed medical journalist Norman Swan. She would know things because they were folklore, and I would say, that's old-fashioned, there's no basis for it in fact. Yes, but people have been doing it for hundreds of years, Barry. Marshall was excited by the mystery he inherited. 
Using samples from Dr. Warren's patients, he tried to culture the squiggly bacteria in the lab. For months, he failed. But after an accident, the culture was left in the incubator three days longer than intended. It finally grew. It wasn't Campylobacter. It was a previously undiscovered bacteria, henceforth known as Helicobacter pylori. We cultured it from lots of people after that, Marshall recalls. Then we could say we know which antibiotic kills these bacteria. We figured out how they could live in the stomach, and we could play around with it in the test tube, do all kinds of useful experiments. We were not looking for the cause of ulcers. We wanted to find out what these bacteria were, and we thought it would be fun to get a nice little publication. Marshall and Warren continued to look for this bacteria in patients who came to see them with stomach trouble. The doctors soon made a startling discovery. Among 13 patients with ulcers, all 13 also had the squiggly bacteria. Was it possible that H. pylori, rather than merely showing up in these patients, was actually causing the ulcers? Back in the lab, Marshall tried infecting some rats and pigs with H. pylori to see if they developed ulcers. They didn't. So, I said, I have to test it out on a human. The human, Marshall decided, would be himself. He also decided not to tell anyone, even his wife or Robin Warren. First, he had a biopsy taken of his stomach to make sure he didn't already have H. pylori, all clear. Then he swallowed a batch of the bacteria that he had cultured from a patient. In Marshall's mind, there were two likely possibilities. Number one, he would develop an ulcer, and then, hallelujah, it'd be proven. And number two, he wouldn't develop an ulcer. If nothing happened, my two years of research to that point would have been wasted. Barry Marshall was probably the only person in human history rooting for himself to get an ulcer. If he did, he figured it would take a few years for symptoms to arise. But just five days after he gulped down the H. pylori, Marshall began having vomiting attacks. Hallelujah! After 10 days, he had another biopsy taken of his stomach, and the bacteria were everywhere. Marshall already had gastritis and was apparently well on his way to getting an ulcer. He took an antibiotic to help wipe it out. His and Warren's investigation had proved that H. pylori was the true cause of ulcers, and, as further investigation would show, of stomach cancer as well. It was an astonishing breakthrough. Granted, there was much testing to come and an enormous pushback from the medical community. Marshall was variously ridiculed, pilloried, and ignored. Are we to seriously believe that some loopy Australian found the cause of ulcers by swallowing a batch of bacteria that he says he discovered himself? No $8 billion industry is ever happy when its reason for being is under attack. Talk about gastric upset. An ulcer, rather than requiring a lifetime of doctor's visits and Zantac, perhaps surgery, could now be vanquished with a cheap dose of antibiotics. It took years for the ulcer proof to finally take hold, for conventional wisdom dies hard. Even today, many people still believe that ulcers are caused by stress or spicy foods. Fortunately, doctors now know better. The medical community finally came to acknowledge that while everyone else was simply treating the symptoms of an ulcer, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren had uncovered its root cause. In 2005, they were awarded the Nobel Prize. 
The ulcer discovery, stunning as it was, constitutes just one small step in a revolution that is only beginning to unfold, a revolution aimed at finding the root cause of illness rather than simply swatting away symptoms. H. pylori, it turns out, isn't some lone wolf bacterial terrorist that managed to slip past security and invade the stomach. In recent years, enterprising scientists, aided by newly powerful computers that facilitate DNA sequencing, have learned that the human gut is home to thousands of species of microbes. Some are good, some are bad, others are situationally good or bad, and many have yet to reveal their nature. So just how many microbes do each of us host? By one estimate, the human body contains 10 times as many microbial cells as human cells, which puts the number easily in the trillions, perhaps in the quadrillions. This microbial cloud, as the biologist Jonathan Eisen calls it, is so vast that some scientists consider it the largest organ in the human body, and within it may lie the root of much human health or illness. In labs all over the world, researchers have begun to explore whether the ingredients in this sprawling microbial stew, much of which is hereditary, may be responsible for diseases like cancer and multiple sclerosis and diabetes, even obesity and mental illness. Does it seem absurd to think that a given ailment that has haunted humankind for millennia may be caused by the malfunction of a microorganism that has been merrily swimming through our intestines the whole time? Perhaps, just as it seemed absurd to all those ulcer doctors and pharmaceutical executives that Barry Marshall knew what he was talking about. To be sure, these are early days in microbial exploration. The gut is still a frontier. Think of the ocean floor or the surface of Mars. But already the research is paying off. A handful of doctors have successfully treated patients suffering from intestinal maladies by giving them a transfusion of healthy gut bacteria. Where do those healthy bacteria come from? And how are they sluiced into the sick person's gut? Before going further, let us offer two notes of caution. Number one, if you happen to be eating as you listen to this, you may want to take a break. And two, if you are listening to this book many years after it was written, assuming there are still people and they still read or listen to books, the method described below may seem barbarically primitive. In fact, we hope that's the case, for it would mean the treatment has proven valuable, but that delivery methods have improved. Okay, so a sick person needs a transfusion of healthy gut bacteria. What is a viable source? Doctors like Thomas Barodi, an Australian gastroenterologist who drew inspiration from Barry Marshall's ulcer research, have identified one answer, human feces. Yes, it appears that the microbe-rich excrement of a healthy person may be just the medicine for a patient whose own gut bacteria are infected, damaged, or incomplete. Fecal matter is obtained from a donor and blended into a saline mixture that, according to one Dutch gastroenterologist, looks like chocolate milk. The mixture is then transfused, often via an enema, into the gut of the patient. In recent years, doctors have found fecal transplants to be effective in wiping out intestinal infections that antibiotics could not. 
In one small study, Barodi claims to have used fecal transplants to effectively cure people who were suffering from ulcerative colitis, which, he says, was previously an incurable disease. But Barodi has been going beyond mere intestinal ailments. He claims to have successfully used fecal transplants to treat patients with multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease. Indeed, while Barodi is careful to say that much more research is needed, the list of ailments that may have a root cause living in the human gut is nearly endless. To Barodi and a small number of lake-minded brethren who believe in the power of poop, we are standing at the threshold of a new era in medicine. Barodi sees the benefits of fecal therapy as equivalent to the discovery of antibiotics. But first, there's much skepticism to overcome. Well, the feedback is very much like Barry Marshall's, says Brody. I was initially ostracized. Even now, my colleagues avoid talking about this or meeting me at conferences, although this is changing. I've just had a nice string of invitations to speak at national and international conferences about fecal transplantation, but the aversion is always there. It'd be much nicer if we could come up with a non-fecal-sounding therapy. Indeed, one can imagine many patients being turned off by the words fecal transplant, or as researchers call it in their academic papers, fecal microbiota transplantation. The slang used by some doctors, shit swap, is no better. But Barodi, after years of performing this procedure, believes he has finally come up with a less disturbing name. Yes, he says, we call it a transpusion. Chapter 5. Think Like a Child At this point, you may be asking yourself, seriously? The power of poop? A guy who swallows a beaker full of dangerous bacteria? And before that, a guy who swallows a year's supply of hot dogs in 12 minutes? Could things possibly get any more childish around here? Is thinking like a freak just code for thinking like a child? Well, not entirely, but... When it comes to generating ideas and asking questions, it can be really fruitful to have the mentality of an eight-year-old. Consider the kind of questions that kids ask. Sure, they may be silly or simplistic or out of bounds, but kids are also relentlessly curious and relatively unbiased. Because they know so little, they don't carry around the preconceptions that often stop people from seeing things as they are. When it comes to solving problems, this is a big advantage. Preconceptions lead us to rule out a huge set of possible solutions simply because they seem unlikely or repugnant, because they don't pass the smell test or have never been tried, maybe because they don't seem sophisticated enough. But remember, it was a child who finally pointed out that the emperor's new clothes were, in fact, no clothes at all. Kids are not afraid to share their wildest ideas. As long as you can tell the difference between a good idea and a bad one, generating a boatload of ideas, even outlandish ones, can only be a good thing. When it comes to generating ideas, the economic concept of free disposal is key. Come up with a terrible idea? No problem. Just don't act on it. Granted, sorting bad ideas from good isn't easy. One trick that works for us is a cooling-off period. Ideas nearly always seem brilliant when they're hatched, so we never act on a new idea for at least 24 hours. It is remarkable how stinky some ideas become after just one day in the sun. 
in the end, you may find that only one idea out of 20 is worth pursuing, but you might never have come up with that one unless you were willing to blurt out childlike everything that wandered through your brain. So when it comes to solving problems, channeling your inner child can really pay off. It all starts with thinking small. If you meet someone who fancies himself a thought leader or an intellectual, one of the nicest compliments you can pay is to call him a big thinker. Go ahead, try it. Watch him swell with pride. If he does, we can virtually guarantee you he has no interest in thinking like a freak. To think like a freak means to think small, not big. Why? For starters, every big problem has been thought about endlessly by people much smarter than we are. The fact that it remains a problem means it's too damned hard to be cracked in full. Such problems are intractable, hopelessly complex, brimming with entrenched and misaligned incentives. Sure, there are some truly brilliant people out there, and they probably should think big. For the rest of us, thinking big means you'll spend a lot of time tilting at windmills. While thinking small won't win you many points with the typical big thinker, there are at least a few noteworthy advocates of our approach. Sir Isaac Newton, for instance. To explain all nature is too difficult a task for any one man or even for any one age, he wrote. Tis much better to do a little with certainty and leave the rest for others that come after than to explain all things by conjecture without making sure of anything. Maybe the two of us are biased. Maybe we believe in the power of thinking small only because we're so bad at thinking big. There isn't a single big problem we've come close to solving. We just nibble around the margins. In any case, we've come to the conclusion that it is much better to ask small questions than big ones. Here are a few reasons. Number one, small questions are, by their nature, less often asked and investigated, maybe not at all. They are virgin territory for true learning. Number two, since big problems are usually a dense mass of intertwined small problems, you can make more progress by tackling a small piece of the big problem than by flailing away at grand solutions. Number three, any kind of change is hard, but the chances of triggering change on a small problem are much greater than on a big one. And number four, thinking big is, by definition, an exercise in imprecision or even speculation. When you think small, the stakes may be diminished, but at least you can be relatively sure you know what you're talking about. So all this sounds great in theory, but does it really work? We'd like to think our own track record says yes. While we haven't done much about the worldwide scourge of traffic deaths, we did highlight one category of high-risk behavior that was previously overlooked, drunk walking. Rather than attack the huge problem of corporate embezzlement, we use data from a mom-and-pop bagel delivery outfit in Washington to learn which factors lead people to steal at work, bad weather and stressful holidays, for instance. While we've done nothing to solve the tragedy of childhood gun deaths, we did single out an even greater childhood killer, backyard swimming accidents. These modest successes look even more trivial when compared with those of other like-minded small thinkers. Trillions of dollars have been spent on worldwide education reforms, usually focused on overhauling the system in some way, smaller classrooms, better curricula, more testing, and so on. But 
As we noted earlier, the raw material in the education system, the students themselves, are often overlooked. Might there be some small, simple, cheap intervention that could help millions of students? One in four children, it turns out, has subpar eyesight, while a whopping 60% of problem learners have trouble seeing. If you can't see well, you won't read well, and that makes school extra hard. And yet, even in a rich country like the United States, vision screening is often lax, and there hasn't been much research on the relationship between poor vision and school performance. Three economists, Paul Glevy, Albert Park, and Meng Zhao, happened upon this problem in China. They decided to do some hands-on research in Gansu, a poor and remote province. Out of the roughly 2,500 fourth, fifth, and sixth graders there who needed eyeglasses, only 59 wore them. So the economists ran an experiment. They offered free eyeglasses to half the students and let the other half carry on as before. The cost, about $15 per pair of glasses, was covered by a World Bank research grant. How did the newly bespectacled students do? After wearing glasses for a year, their test scores showed they learned 25 to 50% more than their uncorrected peers, thanks to a $15 pair of glasses. We're not saying that giving glasses to the school kids who need them will fix every education problem, not by a long shot. But when you are fixated on thinking big, this is exactly the kind of small bore solution you can easily miss. Here's another cardinal rule of thinking like a child. Don't be afraid of the obvious. The two of us are sometimes invited to meet with a company or an institution that wants outside help with some kind of problem. Walking in, we usually know next to nothing about how their business works. In most instances in which we wind up being helpful, it is the result of an idea that arose in the first few hours when, starting from complete ignorance, we asked a question that an insider would never deign to ask. Just as many people are unwilling to say, I don't know, nor do they want to appear unsophisticated by asking a simple question or making an observation that was hidden in plain sight. The idea for the abortion crime study we cited earlier arose from the simple observation of a simple set of numbers published in the Statistical Abstract of the United States, the kind of book economists leaf through for grins. What do the numbers say? Nothing more than this. Within 10 years, the United States went from very few abortions to roughly 1.6 million a year, largely because of Roe v. Wade the Supreme Court decision that made abortion legal in all 50 states. The average smart person seeing this spike might immediately jump to its moral or political ramifications. If, however, you are still in touch with your inner child, your first thought might be, wow, 1.6 million of anything is a lot, so that must have affected something. If you are willing to confront the obvious, you'll end up asking a lot of questions that others don't. Why does that fourth grader seem plenty smart in conversation, but can't answer a single question when it's written on the blackboard? Sure, drunk driving is dangerous, but what about drunk walking? If an ulcer is caused by stress and spicy foods, why do some people with low stress and bland diets still get ulcers? As Albert Einstein liked to say, everything should be made as simple as possible but not simpler. This is a beautiful way to address the frictions that bedevil modern society. As grateful as we are 
for the complex processes that have produced so much technology and progress, we're also dizzied by their sprawl. It's easy to get seduced by complexity, but there is virtue in simplicity, too. Let's return briefly to Barry Marshall, our bacteria-gulping Aussie hero who cracked the ulcer code. His father, you'll remember, was an engineer in a chicken-packing plant on whaling boats and elsewhere. We always had acetylene, oxyacetylene, electrical gear, machinery in our garage, he recalls. At one point, the family lived near a scrap metal yard with a lot of army leftovers. Marshall trawled it with vigor. You could find old torpedoes, he says, beautiful little motors, ACAC guns. He would sit there and wind the handles on them. In medical school, Marshall found that most of his peers came from families in which the parents were executives or lawyers with the upbringing to match. Most of them, he says, never had a chance to play around with an electrical device or tubes or pipes and pressure and things like that. Marshall's hands-on skills were in great demand when it came time to jolt a frog with electricity. This difference carried over to Marshall's view of the human body itself. The history of medicine is, of course, long and occasionally glorious, but for all its seeming embrace of science, medicine has also relied on strands of theology, poetry, even shamanism. As a result, the body has often been seen as an ethereal vessel animated by some ghostly human spirit. In this view, the body's complexities are vast and to some degree impenetrable. Marshall, meanwhile, saw the body as more of a machine, a wondrous machine, to be sure, operating on the basic principles of engineering, chemistry, and physics. While plainly more complicated than an old torpedo, the body could nonetheless be taken apart, tinkered with, and, to some extent, put back together. Nor did Marshall ignore the obvious fact that all his ulcer patients had a tummy full of bacteria. At the time, conventional wisdom held that the stomach environment was too acidic for bacteria to thrive. And yet, there they were. People who had seen them had always washed them off to look at the stomach cells underneath, says Marshall, and they just ignored the bacteria stuck all over the surface. So he asked a beautifully simple question. What in the heck are these bacteria doing here? By doing so, he went on to prove that an ulcer is not a failure of the human spirit. It was more like a blown gasket, easy enough to patch up if you knew how. You may have noticed a common thread in some of the stories we've been telling about solving ulcers, eating hot dogs, and blind-tasting wine. The people involved seem to be having a good time as they learn. Freaks like to have fun. This is another good reason to think like a child. Kids aren't afraid to like the things they like. They don't say they want to go to the opera when they'd rather play video games. They don't pretend they're enjoying a meeting when they really want to get up and run around. Kids are in love with their own audacity, mesmerized by the world around them, and unstoppable in their pursuit of fun. But in one of the strangest wrinkles of human development, these traits magically evaporate in most people by their 21st birthday. There are certain realms in which having fun or even looking like you're having fun is practically forbidden. Politics, for one. Academia, too. And while some firms have lately been spicing things up with gamification, most of the business world remains allergic to fun. Why do so many frown so sternly at the idea of having fun? 
perhaps out of fear that it connotes you aren't serious. But best as we can tell, there is no correlation between appearing to be serious and actually being good at what you do. In fact, an argument can be made that the opposite is true. There's been a recent surge in research into expert performance, hoping to determine what makes people good at what they do. The single most compelling finding? Raw talent is overrated. People who achieve excellence, whether at golf or surgery or piano playing, were often not the most talented at a young age, but became expert by endlessly practicing their skills. Is it possible to endlessly practice something you don't enjoy? Perhaps, although neither one of us is capable of it. Why is it so important to have fun? Because if you love your work or your activism or your family time, then you'll want to do more of it. You'll think about it before you go to sleep. And as soon as you wake up, your mind is always in gear. When you're that engaged, you'll run circles around other people, even if they're more naturally talented. From what we've seen personally, the best predictor of success among young economists and journalists is whether they absolutely love what they do. If they approach their job like, well, a job, they aren't likely to thrive. But if they've somehow convinced themselves that running regressions or interviewing strangers is the funnest thing in the world, you know they've got a shot. Perhaps the arena most in need of a fun injection is public policy. Think about how policymakers generally try to shape society by cajoling, threatening, or taxing people into behaving better. The implication is that if something is fun, gambling or eating cheeseburgers or treating the presidential election like a horse race, then it must be bad for us. But it doesn't have to be that way. Rather than dismiss the fun impulse, why not co-opt it for the greater good? Consider this problem. Americans are infamously bad at saving money. The personal savings rate is currently about 4%. We all know it's important to put away money for emergencies and education and retirement, so why don't we do it? Because it's a lot more fun to spend money than to lock it up in a bank. Meanwhile, Americans spend roughly $60 billion a year on lottery tickets. Now, it's hard to deny that playing the lottery is fun, but a lot of people also treat it like an investment. Nearly 40% of low-income adults consider the lottery their best chance to ever acquire a large sum of money. As a result, low earners spend a much bigger share of their income on the lottery than higher earners. Unfortunately, the lottery is a dreadful investment. It typically pays out only 60% of the take, far less than any casino or racetrack would dare offer. So for every 100 lottery dollars that you invest you can expect to lose 40. But what if the fun part of playing the lottery could somehow be harnessed to help people save money? That is the idea behind a prize-linked savings or PLS account. Here's how it works. Rather than spend $100 on lottery tickets, you deposit $100 in a bank account. Let's say the going interest rate is 1%. In a PLS account, you agree to surrender a small chunk of that interest, maybe 0.25%, which then gets pooled with all the other small chunks from fellow PLS depositors. And what happens to that pool of money? It is periodically paid out in a lump sum to some randomly chosen winner, just like the lottery. A PLS account won't deliver multi-million dollar jackpots since the payout pool is drawn from interest rather than principal. But here's the real benefit. 
even if you never win the PLS lottery, your original deposit and the interest remain in your bank account. That's why some people call it a no-lose lottery. PLS programs have helped people all over the world save money while at the same time not blowing their hard-earned salary on the lottery. In Michigan, a group of credit unions recently put together a PLS pilot program called Save to Win. Its first big winner was an 86-year-old woman named Billie June Smith with a deposit of just $75 into her account. She won a payout of $100,000. Alas, while a few states are experimenting with similar programs, PLS fever isn't exactly sweeping the nation. Why not? Most states prohibit a PLS because it is a form of lottery, and state law typically allows only one entity to run a lottery, the state itself. Nice monopoly if you can get it. Moreover, federal law currently prohibits banks from operating lotteries. You can hardly blame politicians for wanting to keep the exclusive right to that $60 billion in annual lottery revenue. Just keep in mind that as much as you may enjoy playing the lottery, the state is having even more fun because it always wins. Consider another big challenge, raising money for charitable projects. The standard approach, which we'll look at more closely in Chapter 6, involves a heart-rending pitch with pictures of suffering children or abused animals. It would seem that the secret to raising money is to make people feel so guilty that they can't hold out any longer. Might there be another way? People love to gamble. They especially seem to love to gamble online. But as of this writing, most online gambling that involves winning real money is illegal in the United States, and yet Americans love gambling so much that millions of them spend billions of real dollars to play fake slot machines and run virtual farms, even though they can't take home a penny. If they happen to win, the money is gobbled up by the companies that run the sites. So consider the following question. If you are willing to pay $20 for the privilege of playing a fake slot machine or running a virtual farm, do you want the money to end up in the hands of Facebook or Zynga? Or would you rather it go to your favorite charity? That is, if the American Cancer Society offered an online game that was just as fun as the one you're already playing, wouldn't you rather the money go there? Wouldn't it be even more fun to play the game and make the world a better place at the same time? That was our hypothesis when we recently helped start a website called spinforgood.com. It's a social gaming site where people compete with other players and, if they win, donate the proceeds to their favorite charity. Maybe it's not as fun as keeping the money for yourself, but it's surely better than dropping your winnings into Facebook's or Zynga's big bucket. Have fun, think small, don't fear the obvious. These are all childlike behaviors that, according to us at least, an adult would do well to hang on to. But how strong is the evidence that this stuff actually works? Let's consider one situation in which kids are better than adults despite all the years of experience and training that should give adults the edge. Imagine for a moment you are a magician. If your life depended on fooling an audience of adults or an audience of kids, whom would you choose? The obvious answer would be the kids. Adults, after all, know so much more about how things work. But in reality, kids are harder to fool. 
Every magician will tell you the same thing, says Alex Stone, whose book Fooling Houdini explores the science of deception. When you really start to look at magic and how it works, the sort of nuts and bolts of how magic fools us, you start to ask some rather profound questions, he says. You know, how do we perceive reality? How much of what we perceive is actually real? How much faith can we have in our memories? Stone, who holds an advanced physics degree, is himself a lifelong magician. His first gig was his own sixth birthday party. It didn't go well, he says. I was heckled. It was terrible. I was unprepared. He got better and has since performed for all types of audiences, including leading scholars in biology, physics, and related fields. You'd think scientists would be hard to dupe, he says, but really they're pretty easy. Many of Stone's tricks include a double lift. That's a common slight in which a magician presents two cards as if they're one. That's how a magician can show you your card and then seemingly bury it in the deck and make it reappear back on top. It's a devastating move, Stone says. Simple, but very convincing. Stone has performed many thousands of double lifts. I've been burned by an adult layperson, i.e. not a magician, maybe twice in the last 10 years, but I've been burned a bunch of times by kids. Why are kids so much harder to deceive? Stone cites several reasons. Number one, a magician is constantly steering and cueing his audience to see what the magician wants them to see. This leaves adults trained all their lives to follow such cues, especially vulnerable. Intelligence, says Stone, doesn't correlate very well with gullibility. Number two, adults are indeed better than kids at paying attention or focusing on one task at a time. This is great for getting stuff done, Stone says, but it also makes you susceptible to misdirection. Kids' attention, meanwhile, is more diffuse, which makes them harder to fool. Number three, kids don't buy into dogma. They're relatively free of assumptions and expectations about how the world works, Stone says. And magic is all about turning your assumptions and expectations against you. When you're pretending to shuffle a deck, they don't even notice you're shuffling. Number four, kids are genuinely curious. In Stone's experience, an adult may be hell-bent on blowing up a trick in order to upstage the magician. Such people are called hammers. A kid, meanwhile is really trying to figure out how the trick works, says Stone, because that's what you're doing as a kid, trying to figure out how the world works. Number five, in certain ways, kids are simply sharper than adults. We're getting dumber as we get older, perceptually, says Stone. We just don't notice as much after 18 or so. So with the double lift, kids may actually be noticing the slight difference in thickness between a single card and two cards stuck together. And number six, Kids don't overthink a trick. Adults, meanwhile, seek out non-obvious explanations. The theories that people come up with, Stone says. Most tricks, he says, are relatively simple, but people have the most cockamamie explanations. They'll say, you hypnotized me, or when you showed me the ace, was it not the ace and you just convinced me it was? They won't get that you simply forced the card on them. Stone points to one last advantage that has nothing to do with how kids think, and yet can help them decipher a trick. Their height. Stone does mostly close-up magic, and you really want to see it from head-on or above, he says. Kids, meanwhile, are looking up at the trick 
from below. I like this one trick where you make coins jump back and forth. You're back palming the coin, and if kids are too low, they might see it. So by virtue of being low to the ground, a kid can short-circuit a process that has been laboriously built to be seen from above. Unless you're a magician yourself, you'd never discover this advantage. And this is a perfectly freakish illustration of how, by seeing things from a literally new angle, you can sometimes gain an edge in solving a problem. And that said, we aren't suggesting you should model all your behavior after an eight-year-old. That would almost certainly cause more problems than it solves. But wouldn't it be nice if we all smuggled a few childlike instincts across the border into adulthood? We'd spend more time saying what we mean, asking questions we care about. We might even shed a bit of that most pernicious adult trait, pretense. Isaac Bashevis Singer, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature, wrote across many genres, including children's books. In an essay called Why I Write for Children, he explained the appeal. Children read books, not reviews, he wrote. They don't give a hoot about the critics. And when a book is boring, they yawn openly without any shame or fear of authority. Best of all, and to the relief of authors everywhere, children, he wrote, don't expect their beloved writer to redeem humanity. So please, when you're done listening to this book, give it to a kid. Chapter 6. Like Giving Candy to a Baby Amanda, three years old, had been successfully potty trained, but then backslid. None of the usual enticements, stickers, praise, and the like, could get her back on the toilet. Her mother was so frustrated that she turned the task over to her father, one of the authors of this book. He was supremely confident. Like most economists, he believed he could solve any problem by setting up the right incentives. The fact that his target was a child made it even simpler. He got down on his knees and looked Amanda in the eye. If you go to the toilet, he said, I'll give you a bag of M&Ms. Right now, she asked. Right now. He knew that every parenting book frowns on using candy as a bribe, but parenting books are not written by economists. Amanda trotted off to the toilet, did her business, and raced back to claim her M&Ms. Victory! It was hard to say who was prouder, daughter or father. This scheme worked perfectly for three days, not a single accident. But on the morning of the fourth day, things changed. At 7.02 a.m., Amanda announced, I have to go to the bathroom. She did and got her M&Ms. Then at 7.08 a.m., I have to go again. She did, just a quick tinkle, and came for her candy. At 7.11 a.m., I have to go again. Again, Amanda made a minimal deposit in the toilet before claiming her next tranche of M&Ms. This went on for longer than any of the interested parties care to remember. How powerful are the right incentives? Within four days, a little girl went from potty challenged to having the most finely tuned bladder in history. She simply figured out what it made sense to do given the incentives she faced. There was no fine print, no two-bag limit, no time interval caveat. There was just a girl, a bag of candy, and a toilet. If there is one mantra a freak lives by, it is this. People respond to incentives. As utterly obvious as this point may seem, we are amazed at how frequently people forget it and how often it leads to their undoing. 
Understanding the incentives of all the players in a given scenario is a fundamental step in solving any problem. Not that incentives are always so easy to figure out. Different types of incentives, financial, social, moral, legal, and others, push people's buttons in different directions, in different magnitudes. An incentive that works beautifully in one setting may backfire in another. But if you want to think like a freak, you must learn to be a master of incentives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's begin with the most obvious incentive, money. There is probably no quadrant of modern life in which financial incentives do not hold serious sway. Money even shapes the way we are shaped. The average U.S. adult weighs about 25 pounds more today than a few decades ago. If you have a hard time picturing how much extra weight 25 pounds is, take a length of rope and thread it through the handles of three plastic gallon jugs full of milk. Now, Tie this giant milk necklace around your neck and wear it every day for the rest of your life. That's how much weight the average American has gained. And for every person who hasn't gained a pound, someone else out there is wearing two milk jug necklaces. Why have we gotten so fat? One reason is that food has gotten so much cheaper over time. In 1971, Americans spent 13.4% of their disposable income on food. That number now stands at about 6.5%. Not all prices have fallen. Some fresh fruits and vegetables, for instance, cost substantially more today. But other foods, especially the most delicious, fattening, and low-nutrition foods like cookies, potato chips, and soda, have gotten much cheaper. By one measure, a pure high-nutrition diet can cost as much as 10 times more than a pure junk food diet. So there is little doubt that financial incentives work well, even if the outcome is undesirable. Consider a 2011 traffic accident in the Chinese city of Foshan. A two-year-old girl walking through an outdoor market was hit by a van. The driver stopped as the girl's body slid beneath the vehicle, but he didn't get out to help. After a pause, he drove away, running over the body again. The girl later died. The driver eventually turned himself into the police. A recording that was widely reported to be a phone call with the driver was broadcast on the news. If she is dead, he explained, I may pay only about 20,000 yuan, roughly $3,200. But, he said, if she is injured, it may cost me hundreds of thousands yuan. There are no good Samaritan laws in China and compensatory damages for a long-term injury often run higher than death damages. So, while one might wish that the driver had put his moral and civic responsibilities first, the perverse financial incentive may have been too strong to ignore. And let's consider the most common realm in which financial incentives dictate our behavior, employment. Pretend for a moment, if necessary, that you absolutely love your job, the work itself, your colleagues, the free snacks in the break room. How long would you keep showing up if your boss suddenly cut your salary to $1? No matter how much fun you have at work, and no matter how often you hear a professional athlete swear he'd play for free, few people are willing to work very hard without getting paid. No CEO in the world, therefore, is so delusional as to expect his employees to show up every day and work hard for no money. But there is one gigantic workforce asked to do exactly that. In the United States alone, they number nearly 60 million. 
Who is this massive, underpaid throng? School children. Sure, some parents pay kids for good grades, but school systems are generally dead set against financial incentives. Shouldn't kids, the argument goes, be driven by a love of learning rather than cash? Do we really want to turn our children into lab rats who master a maze only to get the cheese? To many educators, the idea of paying for grades is downright disgusting. But economists aren't so easily disgusted. They are also somewhat pushy, which is how it came to pass that a band of economists recently ran a series of experiments in hundreds of schools across the United States, offering cash prizes to more than 20,000 students. In some cases, the students were paid a few dollars for completing a simple study task. In others, a student could make 20 or $50 by raising their test scores. How well did the cash for grades scheme work? There was improvement in a few cases. Second graders in Dallas, for instance, read more when they were paid $2 per book. But it was incredibly hard to move the needle on test scores, especially among older students. Why? The rewards offered to the kids were probably too small. Consider how much effort it takes for a C or D student to start getting A's and B's, come to class regularly and pay attention, do all the homework and study more often, learn to perform well on tests. It's a lot of work for just $50. By comparison, a minimum wage job pays pretty well. So what would happen if you paid a student $5,000 for every A? Since no deep-pocketed funder has yet come forth with this kind of money, we don't know for sure. But our guess is that honor rolls across the country would explode with new names. When it comes to financial incentives, size matters. There are things that people will do for a lot of money that they'd never do for just a few dollars. The most devoted carnivore in the world might well go vegan if the tofu lobby offered him a $10 million stipend. And then there's the tale of an economist on holiday in Las Vegas. He found himself one night in a bar, standing beside a gorgeous woman. Would you be willing to sleep with me for $1 million? He asked her. She looked him over. There wasn't much to see, but still, a million dollars? She agreed to go back to his room. All right, then, he said. Would you be willing to sleep with me for $100? $100? What do you think I am, a prostitute? We've already established that, the economist said. Now we're just negotiating the price. Cash incentives with all their limitations and wrinkles are plainly not perfect. But here's the good news. It is often possible to elicit the behavior you want through non-financial means, and it's a lot cheaper too. How to do this? The key is to learn to climb inside other people's minds to figure out what really matters to them. Now, theoretically, this shouldn't be so hard. We all have a lot of practice thinking about how we respond to incentives. Now it's time to sit on the other side of the table, as in a good marriage, to understand what someone else wants. Yes, it may be money they're after, but just as often they're motivated by wanting to be liked or not be hated, by wanting to stand out in a crowd or perhaps not stand out. The problem is that while some incentives are obvious, many aren't. And simply asking people what they want or need doesn't necessarily work. Let's face it, human beings aren't the most candid animals on the planet. We'll often say one thing and do another, or more precisely, we'll say what we think other people want to hear and then in private, do what we want. In economics, these are known as declared preferences and revealed preferences, and there's often a hefty gap between the two. 
When trying to figure out what kind of incentive will work in a given situation, it's crucial to keep your eye on this gap. Thus the old saying, don't listen to what people say, watch what they do. Furthermore, it's often the case that when you most desperately want to know someone else's incentives, in a negotiation, for instance, your incentives and theirs are at odds. How can you determine someone's true incentives? Experiments can help. The psychologist Robert Cialdini, an eminence grease in the study of social influence, has proved this again and again. In one case, he and some fellow researchers wanted to learn about the incentives that would encourage people to use less electricity at home. They began with a phone survey. The researchers called a diverse set of California residents and asked them, how important are the following factors in your decision to conserve energy? Number one, it saves money. Number two, it protects the environment. Number three, it benefits society. And number four, a lot of other people are trying to do it. So let's see what we have here. A financial incentive, number one. A moral incentive, number two. A social incentive, number three. And what you might call a herd mentality incentive, number four. Now, how would you guess the Californians ranked their reasons for saving energy? Here are their answers from most important to least. Number one, it protects the environment. Number two, it benefits society. Number three, it saves money. And number four, a lot of other people are trying to do it. That seems about right, doesn't it? Since conservation is largely seen as a moral and social issue, the moral and social incentives are most important. Next came the financial incentive and, in dead last, the herd mentality. This too seems sensible. Who would admit to doing anything, especially an act as important as conservation, just because everyone else is doing it? The phone survey told Cialdini and his colleagues what people said about conservation, but did their actions match their words? To find out, the researchers followed up with a field experiment. Going house to house in one California neighborhood, they hung on each doorknob a placard encouraging residents to save energy in the warm months by using a fan rather than air conditioning. But this being an experiment, the placards were not identical. There were five versions. One had a generic energy conservation headline, while the others bore headlines that matched up to the four incentives, moral, social, financial, and herd mentality that came from the phone survey. So here's what the four placards said. Number one, protect the environment by conserving energy. Number two, do your part to conserve energy for future generations. Number three, save money by conserving energy. And number four, join your neighbors in conserving energy. The explanatory text on each placard was also different. The protect your environment placard, for instance, said that you can prevent the release of up to 262 pounds of greenhouse gases per month. The Join Your Neighbors version merely said that 77% of local residents often use fans instead of air conditioning. The researchers, having randomly distributed the different placards, were now able to measure the actual energy use in each home to see which of the placards made the most difference. If the phone survey was to be believed, the protect the environment and do your part for future generations placards would work best, while the join your neighbors sign would fail. Is that what happened? Not even close. The clear winner of the four was join your neighbors. That's right. The herd mentality incentive beat out 
the moral, social, and financial incentives. Does this surprise you? If so, maybe it shouldn't. Look around the world and you'll find overwhelming evidence of the herd mentality at work. It influences virtually every aspect of our behavior, what we buy, where we eat, and how we vote. You may not like this idea. None of us wants to admit that we are pack animals, but in a complicated world, running with the herd can make sense. Who has time to think through every decision and all the facts behind it? If everybody around you thinks that conserving energy is a good idea, well, maybe it is. So if you are the person designing an incentive scheme, you can use this knowledge to herd people into doing the right thing, even if they're doing it for the wrong reasons. With any problem, it's important to figure out which incentives will actually work, not just what your moral compass tells you should work. The key is to think less about the ideal behavior of imaginary people and more about the actual behavior of real people. Those real people are much more unpredictable. Consider another Robert Cialdini experiment, this one at Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. The park had a problem as it made clear on a warning sign. Your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft losses of petrified wood of 14 tons a year, mostly a small piece at a time. The sign plainly appealed to the visitor's sense of moral outrage. Cialdini wanted to know if this appeal was effective. So he and some colleagues ran an experiment. They seeded various trails throughout the forest with loose pieces of petrified wood ready for the stealing. On some trails, they posted a sign warning not to steal. Other trails got no sign. The result? The trails with the warning sign had nearly three times more theft than the trails with no signs. How could this be? Cialdini concluded that the park's warning sign, designed to send a moral message, perhaps sent a different message as well. Something like, wow, the petrified wood is going fast. I'd better get mine now. Or 14 tons a year. Surely it won't matter if I take a few pieces. The fact is that moral incentives don't work nearly as well as most people might imagine. Very often, Cialdini says, public service messages are designed to move people in societally desirable directions by telling them how many people are behaving in undesirable directions. So many people are drinking and driving. We have to stop this. Teenage pregnancy is so prevalent in our schools. We have to do something about this. Tax fraud is so rampant that we have to increase the penalties for it. It's very human, but it's a wrong-headed strategy because the subtext message is that a lot of people just like you are doing this. It legitimizes the undesirable behavior. Does Cialdini's research depress you? Perhaps it suggests that we humans are incorrigibly felonious, hell-bent on grabbing our fair share and then some, that we're always looking out for ourselves rather than the greater good, that we are, as the California Energy Study showed, a big fat pack of liars. But a freak wouldn't put it that way. Instead, you'd simply observe that people are complicated creatures with a nuanced set of private and public incentives and that our behavior is enormously influenced by our circumstances. Once you understand how much psychology is at work when people process incentives, you can use your wiles to create incentive plans that really work, either for your own benefit or, if you prefer, for the greater good. Brian Mullaney, 
by the time he hit upon one of the most radical ideas in the history of philanthropy, had already had a couple of other radical ideas. The first came when he was around 30 years old. He was living the life of an archetypal yuppie, as he puts it, a Madison Avenue ad man in an Armani suit and Gucci loafers. I had all the accessories, the gold Rolex, the triple black Porsche, the penthouse apartment. One of Mulaney's biggest clients was a plastic surgery practice on Park Avenue in New York. Their patients were, for the most part, wealthy women looking to get slimmer in one region or more buxom in another. Mulaney often took the subway to visit the client. His ride sometimes coincided with the end of the school day. Hundreds of kids would rush onto the train. He noticed that many of them had facial marks, scars, moles, blotches, even misshapen features. Why weren't they getting plastic surgery? Mulaney, a big, talkative, ruddy-faced man, had an outlandish idea. He would start up a charity to offer free corrective surgery to public school kids in New York. He called it Operation Smile. The project was off to a good start when Mulaney learned there was another charity with the same name. This Operation Smile, based in Virginia, was big time. It sent volunteer medical teams to poor countries around the world to perform plastic surgery on children. Mulaney was wowed. He folded his little Operation Smile into this big one, joined its board, and trailed along on missions to China, Gaza, Vietnam. Mulaney soon realized how life-changing a simple surgery could be. When a baby girl in the United States is born with a cleft lip or palate, it's routinely fixed at an early age, leaving just a small scar. But if that same girl is born to poor parents in India, the untreated cleft would likely bloom into a horrible jumble of misshapen lip, gum, and teeth. The girl would be ostracized with little hope for a good education, job, or marriage. One tiny deformity, so fixable, would lead to ripples of misery, as Mulaney puts it. What appeared to be purely a humanitarian issue was also an economic one. Indeed, when he pitched Operation Smile to reluctant governments, Mulaney sometimes referred to cleft children as non-performing assets who, with a simple surgery, could be returned to the economic mainstream. But the demand for cleft repair often outstripped the supply that Operation Smile could offer. Because the organization flew in doctors and surgical equipment from the United States, its time and capacity in a given place were limited. On every mission, three or four hundred children would show up begging for treatment, Mulaney recalls, but we could only help a hundred or a hundred fifty. In a small village in Vietnam, there was one kid who played soccer every day with the Smile Train volunteers. They started calling him Soccer Boy. When the mission was over and the Americans were driving away, Mulaney saw Soccer Boy chasing after their bus, his cleft lip still unrepaired. We were in shock, he says. How could he not have been helped? As a humanitarian, it hurt. As a businessman, it rankled. What store, Mulaney says, turns away 80% of its customers? Mulaney helped conceive a new business model for Operation Smile. Rather than raise millions of dollars to fly doctors and surgical equipment around the world for limited engagements, what if the money were instead used to equip local doctors to perform cleft surgery year-round. Mulaney calculated that the cost per surgery would drop by at least 75%. The leadership of Operation Smile, however, wasn't as keen about this plan. So Mulaney left to help start a new group 
called Smile Train. By now, he had sold off his ad agency for eight figures, thank you very much, and devoted himself to fixing the smile of every last soccer boy and girl he could locate. He also wanted to change the face of the nonprofit industry itself, the most dysfunctional $300 billion industry in the world, as he saw it. Mulaney had come to believe that too many philanthropists engage in what Peter Buffett, a son of the uber-billionaire Warren Buffett, calls conscience laundering, doing charity to make themselves feel better rather than fighting to figure out the best ways to alleviate suffering. Mulaney, the archetypal yuppie, had become a data-driven do-gooder. Smile Train was phenomenally successful. Over the next 15 years, it helped provide more than 1 million surgeries in nearly 90 countries, all with a worldwide staff of fewer than 100. A documentary film called Smile Pinky, which Mulaney helped produce, won an Academy Award. Not coincidentally, Mulaney had turned the organization into a fundraising juggernaut, taking in nearly $1 billion all told. The skills that had been useful as an ad man were useful as a fundraiser, too. Targeting potential donors, honing the smile train message, and pitching its mission with just the right blend of pathos and verve. He also knew how to buy up New York Times remnant ad space at a fraction of the sticker price. Along the way, Brian Mullaney learned a great deal about the incentives that lead people to give money to a charity. This led him to try something so unusual that, as he says, many people thought we were crazy. The idea began with a simple question. Why do people give money to charity? This is one of those obvious questions that most smart people might not think to ask. Mulaney became consumed by it. A raft of academic research pointed to two main reasons. Number one, people are truly altruistic, driven by a desire to help others. And number two, giving to charity makes them feel better about themselves. Economists call this warm glow altruism. Mulaney didn't doubt these two factors, but he thought there was a third factor, which people didn't talk about. Number three, once people are asked to donate, the social pressure is so great that they get bullied into giving, even though they wish they'd never been asked in the first place. Mulaney knew that number three was important to Smile Train's success. That's why their millions of mailings included a photograph of a disfigured child in need of cleft surgery. While no fundraiser in his right mind would ever publicly admit to manipulating donors with social pressure, everyone knew how strong this incentive was. But what if, Mulaney thought, instead of downplaying the pressure, Smile Train were to highlight it? That is, what if Smile Train offered potential donors a way to alleviate the social pressure and give money at the same time? That's how a strategy known as once and done was born. Here's what Smile Train would tell potential donors. Make one gift now and we'll never ask for another donation again. As far as Mulaney knew, a once and done strategy had never been tried before. And with good reason. In fundraising, acquiring a new donor is difficult and expensive. Almost every charity initially loses money in this phase. But donors, once hooked tend to give again and again. The secret to fundraising success is cultivating these repeat givers. So the last thing you'd want to do is set them free as soon as you've hooked them. 
Why would you ever agree to not harass donors when harassing is the main ingredient for success in direct mail, Mulaney says. Smile Train took this harassment seriously. If you made an initial donation, you could expect an average of 18 mailings a year. Once you gave to Smile Train, you were getting into a long-term relationship whether you liked it or not. But Mulaney suspected there was a whole universe of other people out there with no interest in a long-term relationship and, indeed, who might be annoyed by Smile Train's stalking. These people, he hypothesized, might be willing to pay Smile Train to stop sending the mail. Rather than getting into a long-term relationship, maybe they would consent to a single date with Smile Train as long as Smile Train promised to never ask them out again. Mulaney tested this idea by launching a direct mail experiment that included hundreds of thousands of letters with the once and done message. Even Mulaney, who never met a piece of conventional wisdom he liked, wasn't sure this was a good idea. Once and done could be an unmitigated failure. How did it work out? Households that got the once and done letter were twice as likely to become first-time donors as people who got a regular solicitation letter. By fundraising standards, this was a colossal gain. These donors also gave slightly more money, an average of $56 versus $50. So Smile Train quickly raised millions of extra dollars, but were they sacrificing long-term donations for short-term gains? After all, every new donor now had the option to tell Smile Train to kindly get lost forever. The once-and-done mailing contained a reply card that asked a donor to check one of three boxes. Number one, this will be my only gift. Please send me a tax receipt and do not ask for another donation again. Number two, I would prefer to receive only two communications from the Smile Train each year. Please honor my wishes to limit the amount of mail sent to me. And number three, please keep me up to date on the progress the Smile Train is making on curing the world of clefts by sending me regular communications. Now, you might expect all new donors would tick off box number one. After all, that was the promise that got them in the door. But only about one third of them opted out of future mailings. Most donors were happy to let Smile Train keep harassing them. And as the data would eventually show, they were also happy to keep giving money. The once-and-done operation raised overall donations by an astonishing 46%. And because some people did opt out of future mailings, Smile Train raised all that money by sending fewer letters, which saved a bundle on expenses. The only failure of once-and-done was its name. Most donors didn't give just once, and they weren't in any hurry to be done with Smile Train. Why did Brian Mullaney's gamble work so well? There are several explanations. Number one, novelty. When's the last time a charity or any kind of company offered to never bother you again? That alone is enough to get your attention. Number two, candor. Have you ever heard a charity acknowledge what a hassle it is to get all those beseeching letters in the mail? In a world of crooked information, it's nice to hear some straight talk. And number three, control. Rather than unilaterally dictate the terms of the transaction, Smile Train gave the donor some power. Who doesn't like to control their own destiny? There is one more factor that made Once and Done successful, a factor so important 
subtle and powerful at the same time, that we believe it is the secret ingredient to make any incentive work, or at least work better. The most radical accomplishment of Once and Done is that it changed the frame of the relationship between the charity and the donor. Whenever you interact with another entity, whether it's your best friend or some faceless bureaucracy, the interaction falls into one of a handful of frameworks. There's the financial framework that governs everything we buy, sell, and trade. There's an us versus them framework that defines war, sports, and unfortunately, most political activity. The loved one framework covers friends and family, at least when things are going smoothly. Otherwise, look out for the us versus them framework. There's a collaborative framework that shapes how you behave with work colleagues or in your amateur orchestra or your pickup soccer team. And then there's the authority figure framework in which someone gives instructions and someone else is expected to follow them. Think of parents, teachers, police and military officers, and a certain kind of boss. Most of us breeze in and out of these different frameworks every day without needing to think about the boundaries. We've been conditioned to understand that we behave differently in different frameworks and that incentives work differently too. Let's say a friend invites you to a dinner party at his house. It's a great festive evening. Who knew your friend was such a paella stud? And on the way out, you give him a big thank you and a $100 bill. Oops. Now imagine you've taken a date to a nice restaurant. Again, you have a fantastic time. On your way out, you tell the owner how much you enjoyed the meal, and you give him a big friendly hug. But you don't pay the check. Double oops. In the second case, you ignored the obvious rules of the financial framework and maybe got arrested. In the first, you polluted the loved one's framework by bringing money into play and maybe lost a friend. So you can plainly get into trouble by getting your frames mixed up, but it can also be incredibly productive to nudge a relationship from one framework into another. Whether through subtle cues or concrete incentives, a lot of problems can be solved by shifting the dynamic between parties, whether it's two people or two billion. In the early 1970s, the relationship between the United States and China was frigid, as it had been for years. China saw the Americans as thoughtless imperialists, while the U.S. saw the Chinese as heartless communists, and worse, as a staunch Cold War ally of the Soviet Union. Nearly every encounter between the two countries fell into an us-versus-them framework. That said, there were all sorts of reasons, political, financial, and otherwise, for China and the U.S. to reach a detente. Indeed, back-channel negotiations were underway, but decades of political friction had produced a stalemate that wouldn't allow for direct talks between the two countries. There was too much pride at stake, too much face to save. Enter the ping-pong teams. On April 6, 1971, a Chinese team showed up in Japan to compete in an international tournament. It was the first Chinese sports team to play outside the country in more than 20 years. But ping pong wasn't their only mission. The team carried from Chairman Mao himself a message to invite the American team to visit China. And so, a week later, the American ping pong team found itself chatting face-to-face -face with Zhou Enlai, the Chinese premier, 
at the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. President Richard Nixon hurriedly sent Henry Kissinger as Secretary of State on a secret diplomatic mission to Beijing. If the Chinese leadership was willing to receive ping pong ambassadors, why not a real one? Kissinger's visit led to two developments: an invitation for the Chinese ping pong team to visit the United States, and more substantially, Nixon's historic trip to China. It was, as Nixon later called it, the week that changed the world. Would all this have happened without the ping pong diplomacy that so coyly shifted the us versus them framework? Perhaps, but Premier Zhou, for one, acknowledged just how effective the move was. Never before in history, he said, has a sport been used so effectively as a tool of international diplomacy. Even when the stakes are not so high as this, changing the framework of a relationship can produce rapture. Consider the following testimonial: You guys are just the best. I have sent so many people to your site. You are really doing something right. Don't change a bit. Thank you. Now, who is being praised here? A rock band, sports team, or maybe an online shoe store? In 1999, a company called Zappos started selling shoes over the web. Later, it added clothing. Like a lot of modern companies built by young entrepreneurs, Zappos was driven less by pure financial incentives than a desire to be loved. It declared that customer service would be its defining strength—not just your standard customer service, but way over the top, call us any time. There's nothing we won't do for you. Customer service. To outsiders, this seemed bizarre. If ever a business were made for not having to coddle customers, online shoe sales would seem to be it. But Zappos had a different idea. To the average company, a customer. Is a human wallet from which the company attempts to extract as much money as possible. Everyone understands this, but no company wants it to be so explicit. That's why companies use super-friendly logos, slogans, mascots, and endorsers. Zappos, meanwhile, rather than faking friendliness, seemed to actually want to become friendly with its customers, at least in as much as it would help the company succeed. Which is why, rather than bury its phone number deep within the website. Zappos posted its number atop every page and staffed its call center twenty-four-seven. Some calls, so long and intimate, resemble protracted talk therapy, as one observer noted. Which is why Zappos offered a three hundred and sixty-five day return window and free shipping. Which is why, when one customer failed to return a pair of shoes because of a death in the family, Zappos sent her flowers. To shift the framework like this from a conventional financial one to a quasi-friendly one. Zappos first needed to shift the framework between the company itself and its workers. A call center job isn't typically very desirable, nor does it pay well. In Las Vegas, where Zappos is based, customer service representatives made about eleven dollars an hour. So, how could Zappos recruit a better breed of customer rep? The standard answer would be to pay them more, but Zappos couldn't afford that. Instead, it offered more fun and more power. That's why company meetings are sometimes held in a bar, and why a stroll through the cubicles at Zappos feels like a trip to Mardi Gras with music, games, costumes. Customer reps are encouraged to talk to a customer for as long as they want, all without a script. Naturally, they're authorized to settle problems without calling in a supervisor, and they can even fire a customer who makes trouble. Just how desirable is a call center job at Zappos? 
In a recent year, when it hired 250 new employees, the company fielded 25,000 applications for a job that pays only $11 an hour. The most impressive result of all this frame shifting? It worked. Zappos smoked the competition and became what is thought to be the biggest online shoe store in the world. In 2009, it was bought by Amazon.com for a reported $1.2 billion. Amazon, to its credit, appreciated what made Zappos thrum. In its SEC filing, Amazon noted that it would preserve the Zappos management team and its, quote, customer-obsessed culture. And let's not forget how Smile Train shifted the relationship between itself and its donors. As much as people might like to think that charitable giving is all about the altruism, the old ad salesman Brian Mullaney knew better. He was selling a product. In Smile Train's case, a sad story. And the donor was buying a happy ending. The once-and-done campaign changed that. Rather than hound donors with a hard sell, Smile Train changed its message. Hey, we know it's a hassle to get 18 letters a year. You think we like having to send out that many? But we're all in this fight together, so why don't you send us a few bucks and we can be done with it? Voila. The financial framework had been recast as a collaborative one, leaving all parties, and most especially the soccer boys and girls of the world, in better shape. We don't mean to create the impression that any problem can be fixed with a simple shift of the framework or a clever incentive. It can be frightfully hard to come up with incentives that work and continue to work over time. Remember how easily a three-year-old girl with a taste for M&Ms played her father. Plenty of incentives fail, and some fail so spectacularly that they produce even more of the bad behavior they were meant to stop. Mexico City has long suffered from dreadful traffic jams. The pollution is horrendous. It's hard to get anywhere on time. Out of desperation, the government came up with a rationing plan. Drivers would have to leave their cars home one workday each week with a particular day determined by the car's license plate number. The hope was that fewer cars would clog the road, more people would use public transportation, and pollution would fall. How'd the plan work out? The rationing led to more cars in circulation, no increase in the use of public transportation, and no improvement in air quality. Why? In order to skirt the license plate ban, a lot of people went out and bought a second car, many of which were older, cheaper gas guzzlers. In another case, the United Nations set up an incentive plan to compensate manufacturers for curtailing the pollutants they released into the atmosphere. The payments, in the form of carbon credits that could be sold on the open market, were indexed to the environmental harm of each pollutant. For every ton of carbon dioxide a factory eliminated, it would receive one credit. Other pollutants were far more remunerative. Methane, 21 credits. Nitrous oxide, 310. And near the top of the list, something called hydrofluorocarbon-23, or HFC-23. It is a super greenhouse gas that is a byproduct in the manufacture of HCFC-22, a common refrigerant that is itself plenty bad for the environment. The UN was hoping that factories would switch to a greener refrigerant than HCFC-22. One way to incentivize them, it reasoned, was to reward the factories handsomely for destroying their stock of its waste gas, HFC-23. So, the UN offered a whopping bounty of 11,700 carbon credits for every ton 
of HFC-23 that was destroyed rather than released into the atmosphere. Can you guess what happened next? Factories around the world, particularly in China and India, began to churn out extra HCFC-22 in order to generate extra HFC-23 so they could rake in the cash. As an official with the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA, put it, the evidence is overwhelming that manufacturers are creating excess HFC-23 simply to destroy it and earn carbon credits. The average factory earned more than $20 million a year by selling carbon credits for HFC-23. Angry and embarrassed, the UN changed the rules of the program to curb the abuse. Several carbon markets banned the HFC-23 credits, making it harder for the factories to find buyers. So what will happen to all those extra tons of harmful HFC-23 that suddenly lost its value? The EIA warns that China and India may well release vast amounts of HFC-23 into the atmosphere, causing global greenhouse gas emissions to skyrocket. Which means that the UN wound up paying polluters millions upon millions of dollars to create additional pollution. Backfiring bounties are, sadly, not as rare as one might hope. This phenomenon is sometimes called the cobra effect. As the story goes, a British overlord in colonial India thought there were far too many cobras in Delhi, so he offered a cash bounty for every cobra skin. The incentive worked well, so well, in fact, that it gave rise to a new industry, cobra farming. Indians began to breed, raise, and slaughter the snakes to take advantage of the bounty. Eventually, the bounty was rescinded, whereupon the cobra farmers did the logical thing and set their snakes free as toxic and unwanted as today's HFC-23. And yet, if you look around the world, you will see that cash bounties are still routinely offered to get rid of pests. Most recently, we've heard of this happening with feral pigs in Georgia and rats in South Africa. And just as routinely, an army of people rise up to game the system. As Mark Twain once wrote, the best way to increase wolves in America, rabbits in Australia, and snakes in India is to pay a bounty on their scalps. Then every patriot goes to raising them. Why do some incentives, even those created by smart and well-intentioned people, backfire so badly? We can think of at least three reasons. Number one, no individual or government will ever be as smart as all the people out there scheming to beat an incentive plan. Number two, it's easy to envision how you'd change the behavior of people who think just like you but the people whose behavior you're trying to change often don't think like you and, therefore, don't respond as you might expect. And number three, there is a tendency to assume that the way people behave today is how they'll always behave. But the very nature of an incentive suggests that when a rule changes, behavior does too, although not necessarily as we've seen in the expected direction. We should also note the obvious point that no one likes to feel manipulated too many incentive schemes are thinly disguised grabs for leverage or money, so it shouldn't be surprising that some people push back. Thinking like a freak may sometimes sound like an exercise in using clever means to get exactly what you want, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if there's one thing we've learned from a lifetime of designing and analyzing incentives, the best way to get what you want is to treat other people with decency. Decency can push almost any interaction into the cooperative frame. It's most powerful when least expected, like when things have gone wrong. So some of the most loyal customers any company has are the ones who had a big problem 
but got treated incredibly well as it was being resolved. So while designing the right incentive scheme certainly isn't easy, here's a simple set of rules that usually point us in the right direction. Number one, figure out what people really care about, not what they say they care about. Number two, incentivize them on the dimensions that are valuable to them, but cheap for you to provide. Number three, pay attention to how people respond. If their response surprises or frustrates you, learn from it and try something different. Number four, whenever possible, create incentives that switch the frame from adversarial to cooperative. Number five, never ever think that people will do something just because it's the right thing to do. And number six, know that some people will do everything they can to game the system, finding ways to win that you never could have imagined. If only to keep yourself sane, try to applaud their ingenuity rather than curse their greed. So that's Incentives 101. Pretty simple, right? Now you're ready for an advanced degree in incentive scheming. We begin the journey with a question that, to our knowledge, has never been asked in the history of humankind. Chapter 7. What do King Solomon and David Lee Roth have in common? King Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem and was known throughout the land for his wisdom. David Lee Roth fronted the rock band Van Halen and was known throughout the land for his prima donna excess. What could these two men conceivably have in common? Here are a few possibilities. Number one, both of them were Jewish. Number two, they both got a lot of girls. Number three, they both wrote the lyrics to a number one pop song. Number four, they both dabbled in game theory. As it happens, all four of these statements are true. Here are some confirmatory facts. Number one, David Lee Roth was born into a Jewish family in Bloomington, Indiana in 1954. His father, Nathan, was an ophthalmologist. It was while preparing for his bar mitzvah that David learned to sing. King Solomon was born into a Jewish family in Jerusalem, circa 1000 BCE. His father, David, had also been king. Number two, David Lee Roth slept with every pretty girl with two legs in her pants, he once said. I even slept with an amputee. King Solomon loved many foreign women, according to the Bible, including 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Number three, David Lee Roth wrote the lyrics for most of Van Halen's songs, including its sole number one hit, Jump. King Solomon is thought to have authored some or all of the biblical books Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. The folk singer Pete Seeger used several verses from Ecclesiastes as lyrics to his song Turn, 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 which, when recorded by the Birds in 1965, became a number one hit. And number four, one of the most famous stories about each man involves a clever piece of strategic thinking that anyone who wishes to think like a freak would do well to mimic. Solomon, a young man when he inherited the throne, was eager to prove his judgment was sound. He was soon given a chance to do that when two women, prostitutes by trade, came to him with a dilemma. The women lived in the same house and within the space of a few days had each given birth to a baby boy. The first woman told the king that the second woman's baby died and that the second woman arose at midnight and took my son from beside me and laid the dead child in my bosom. The second woman disputed the story. Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. 
One of the women was plainly lying, but which one? How was King Solomon supposed to tell who was the mother of the living child? Fetch me a sword, he said. Divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. The first woman begged the king to not hurt the baby and instead give it to the second woman. The second woman, however, embraced the king's solution. It shall be neither mine nor thine, she said. Divide it. King Solomon promptly ruled in favor of the first woman. Give her the living child, he said. She is the mother thereof. The Bible tells us that all Israel heard of the judgment, and they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. How did Solomon know the true mother? He reasoned that a woman cruel enough to go along with his baby-carving plan was cruel enough to steal another's child. And further, that the real mother would rather give up her child than see it die. King Solomon had set a trap that encouraged the guilty and the innocent to sort themselves out. As clever as that was, David Lee Roth may have been a bit cleverer. By the early 1980s, Van Halen had become one of the biggest rock and roll bands in history. They were known to party particularly hard while on tour. No matter where Van Halen alights, Rolling Stone reported, a boisterous, full-blown Saturnalia is bound to follow. The band's touring contract carried a 53-page rider that laid out technical and security specs, as well as food and beverage requirements. On even calendar days, the band was to be served roast beef, fried chicken, or lasagna with sides of Brussels sprouts, broccoli, or spinach. Odd days meant steak or Chinese food with green beans, peas, or carrots. Under no circumstances was dinner to be served on plastic or paper plates or with plastic flatware. On page 40 of the exhaustive Van Halen rider was the munchies section. It demanded potato chips, nuts, pretzels, and M&Ms, warning, absolutely no brown ones. What was up with that? The nut and chip requests weren't nearly so nitpicky, nor the dinner menu, so why the hang-up with brown M&Ms? Had someone in the band had a bad experience with them? Did Van Halen have a sadistic streak and take pleasure in making some poor caterer hand-sort the M&Ms? When the M&M clause was leaked to the press, it was seen as a classic case of rock star excess, of the band being abusive of others simply because we could, David Lee Roth said years later. But, he explained, the reality is quite different. Van Halen's live show was an extravaganza, with a colossal stage set, booming audio, and spectacular lighting effects. All this equipment required a great deal of structural support, electrical power, and the like. But many of the arenas they played were outdated. They didn't have even the doorways or the loading docks to accommodate a super forward-thinking, giganter, epic-sized Van Halen production, Roth recalled. Thus, the need for a 53-page rider. Most rock and roll bands had a contract rider that was like a pamphlet, Roth says. We had one that was like the Chinese phone book. It gave point-by-point -point instructions to ensure that the promoter at each arena provided enough physical space, load-bearing capacity, and electrical power. Van Halen wanted to make sure that no one got killed by a collapsing stage or a short-circuiting light tower. But every time the band pulled into a new city, how could they be sure the local promoter had read the rider and followed all the safety procedures? Cue the brown M&Ms. When Roth arrived at the arena, he'd immediately go backstage to check out the bowl of M&Ms. If he saw brown ones, he knew the promoter hadn't read the rider carefully and that 
We had to do a serious line check, he says, to make sure the important equipment had been properly set up. He also made sure to trash the dressing room if there were no brown M&Ms. This would be construed as nothing more than rock star folly, thereby keeping his trap safe from detection. But we suspect he enjoyed it all the same. And so it was that David Lee Roth and King Solomon both engaged in a fruitful bit of game theory, which, narrowly defined, is the art of beating your opponent by anticipating his next move. There was a time when economists thought that game theory would take over the world, helping to shape or predict all sorts of important outcomes. Alas, it proved to be not nearly as useful or interesting as promised. In most cases, the world is too complicated for game theory to work its supposed magic. But again, thinking like a freak means thinking simply. And as King Solomon and David Lee Roth showed, a simple version of game theory can work wonders. As disparate as their settings were, the two men faced a similar problem, a need to sift the guilty from the innocent when no one was stepping forward to profess their guilt. In economist speak, there was a pooling equilibrium, the two mothers in Solomon's case and all the tour promoters in Van Halen's case, that needed to be broken down into a separating equilibrium. A person who is lying or cheating will often respond to an incentive differently than an honest person. How can this fact be exploited to ferret out the bad guys? Doing so requires an understanding of how incentives work in general, which you gained in the last chapter, and how different actors may respond differently to a given incentive, as we'll discuss in this one. Certain tools in the freak arsenal may come in handy only once or twice in your lifetime. This is one such tool, but it has power and a certain elegance, for it can entice a guilty party to unwittingly reveal his guilt through his own behavior. What is this trick called? We scoured history books and other texts to find a proper name for it, but came up empty, so let's make up something. In honor of King Solomon, we will treat this phenomenon as if it were a lost proverb. Teach your garden to weed itself. Imagine you've been accused of a crime. The police say you stole something or beat up someone or perhaps drunkenly drove your vehicle through a park and mowed down everyone in sight. But the evidence is murky. The judge assigned to your case does her best to figure out what happened, but she can't be sure. So she comes up with a creative solution. She decrees that you will plunge your arm into a cauldron of boiling water. If you come away unhurt, you'll be declared innocent and set free. But if your arm is disfigured, you'll be convicted and sent to prison. This is precisely what happened in Europe for hundreds of years during the Middle Ages. If the court couldn't satisfactorily determine whether a defendant was guilty, it turned the case over to a Catholic priest who would administer an ordeal that used boiling water or a smoking hot iron bar. The idea was that God knew the truth and would miraculously deliver from harm any suspect who had been wrongly accused. Now, as a means of establishing guilt, how would you characterize the medieval ordeal? Barbaric? Nonsensical? Or surprisingly effective? Before you answer, let's think about the incentives at play here. Picture a shepherd living in the north of England maybe a thousand years ago. We'll call him Adam. He has a next-door neighbor, Rolf, who's also a shepherd. The two of them do not get along. Adam suspects that Rolf once stole a few of his sheep, 
Rolfe spreads word that Adam packs his wool bales with stones to drive up their weight at market. The two men regularly quarrel over rights to a communal grazing meadow. One morning, Rolfe's entire flock of sheep turns up dead, apparently poisoned. He promptly accuses Adam. While Adam may indeed have an incentive to kill Rolfe's flock, less wolf from Rolfe means a higher price for Adam, there are certainly other possibilities. Maybe the sheep died of disease or a natural poison. Maybe they were poisoned by a third rival. Or perhaps Rolfe poisoned the sheep himself in order to get Adam sent to prison or fined. Evidence is collected, brought before the court, but it's hardly conclusive. Rolf claims he spotted Adam lurking near his flock the night before the incident, but given the rival's acrimony, the judge wonders if Rolf is lying. Imagine now that you are the judge. How are you supposed to determine whether Adam is guilty? And imagine further that instead of one such case, there are 50 Adams before the court. In each instance, the evidence is too weak to convict, but... You also don't want to set a criminal free. How can the innocent be weeded from the guilty? By letting the garden weed itself. The judge gives Adam two choices. He can either plead guilty or submit to a trial by ordeal, putting his fate in God's hands. Now, from our modern perspective, it's hard to imagine an ordeal as an effective way to separate the guilty from the innocent, but was it? Let's take a look at the data. The economist Peter Leeson, whose research has covered topics like gypsy law and pirate economics, did just that. One set of church records from 13th century Hungary included 308 cases that entered the trial by ordeal phase. Of these, 100 were aborted before producing a final result. That left 208 cases in which the defendant was summoned by a priest to the church, climbed the altar, and after his fellow congregants were ushered in to observe from a distance, was forced to grab hold of a red-hot iron bar. How many of those 208 people do you think were badly burned? All 208? Don't forget, we're talking about red-hot iron here. Maybe 207, 206? The actual number is 78, which means that the remaining 130, nearly two-thirds of the defendants who underwent the ordeal, were miraculously unharmed and thereby exonerated. Unless these 130 miracles, in fact, were miracles, how can they be explained? Peter Leeson thinks he knows the answer. Priestly rigging. That is, a priest somehow tinkered with the setup to make the ordeal look legitimate while ensuring that the defendant wouldn't be disfigured. This wouldn't have been difficult, since the priest had ultimate control over the entire situation. Maybe he swapped out the red-hot bar of iron for a cooler one. Or, when using the boiling water ordeal, maybe he dumped a pail of cold water into the cauldron before the other congregants entered the church. Why would a priest do this? Was he simply exercising a bit of human mercy? Did he perhaps accept bribes from certain defendants? Peter Leeson sees a different explanation. Let's think back to those 50 atoms on which the court is undecided. We'll assume that some are guilty and some innocent. As noted earlier, a guilty person and an innocent one will often respond to the same incentive in different ways. What are the guilty Adams and the innocent Adams thinking in this case? A guilty Adam is probably thinking something like this. God knows I'm guilty. If, therefore, I undergo the ordeal, 
I will be horribly scalded. Not only will I then be imprisoned or fined, but I'll spend the rest of my life in pain. So perhaps I should go ahead and confess my guilt in order to avoid the ordeal. And what would an innocent Adam think? God knows I'm innocent. I will therefore undergo the ordeal, since God would never allow this fiery curse to harm me. So the belief that God would intervene in their trial by ordeal, Leeson writes, created a separating equilibrium in which only innocent defendants were willing to undergo ordeals. This helps explain why 100 of the 308 ordeals were aborted. The defendants in these cases settled with the plaintiff, presumably, at least in many cases, because the defendant was guilty and figured he'd be better off accepting his punishment without the additional penalty of being burned. And what about our shepherd, Adam? Let's say for the sake of argument that he did not poison Rolf's flock and was framed by Rolf. What would Adam's fate be? By the time he stood in the church before the bubbling cauldron praying for mercy, the priest would likely have reckoned that Adam was innocent, so he'd rig the ordeal accordingly. Let's not forget that 78 defendants in this data set were scalded and then fined or sent to prison. What happened in those cases? Our best explanation is that either, one, the priests believed these defendants really were guilty, or two, the priests had to at least keep up appearances at a trial by ordeal really worked, or else the threat would lose its power to sort the innocent from the guilty, and so these folks were sacrificed. We should also note that the threat would lose its power if the defendants didn't believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing God who punished the guilty and pardoned the innocent. But history suggests that most people at the time did indeed believe in an all-powerful, justice-seeking God. Which leads us to the most bizarre twist in this bizarre story. If medieval priests did manipulate the ordeals, that might make them the only parties who thought an all-knowing God didn't exist, or, if he did, that he had enough faith in his priestly deputies to see their tampering as part of a divine quest for justice. You too can play God once in a while if you learn to set up a self-weeding garden. Let's say you work for a company that hires hundreds of new employees each year. Hiring takes a lot of time and money, especially in industries in which workers come and go. In the retail industry, for instance, employee turnover is roughly 50% annually. Among fast food workers, the rate can approach 100%. So it isn't surprising that employers have worked hard to streamline the application process. Job seekers can now fill out online applications in 20 minutes from the comfort of their homes. It's great news, right? Maybe not. Such an easy application process may attract people with only minimal interest in the job, who look great on paper, but aren't likely to stick around long if hired. So what if employers, rather than making the application process ever easier, made it unnecessarily onerous with maybe a 60 or 90 minute application that weeds out the dilettantes? We pitched this idea to a number of companies and we've gotten exactly zero takers. Why? If we make the application process longer, they tell us, we'll get fewer applicants. And that, of course, is exactly the point. You'd immediately get rid of the applicants who are more likely to not show up on time or quit after a few weeks. Colleges and universities, meanwhile, have no such qualms about torturing their applicants. Think about how much work a high school student must do to even be considered for a spot at a decent college. 
The difference in college and job applications is especially striking when you consider that a job applicant will be getting paid upon acceptance, while a college applicant will be paying for the privilege to attend. But this does help explain why a college degree remains so valuable. In the United States, a worker with a four-year degree earns about 75% more than someone with only a high school degree. What sort of signal does a college diploma send to a potential employer? That its holder is willing and able to complete all sorts of drawn-out, convoluted tasks and, as a new employee, isn't likely to bolt at the first sign of friction. So, absent the chance to make every job applicant work as hard as a college applicant, is there some quick, clever, cheap way of weeding out bad employees before they're hired? Zappos has come up with one such trick. You will recall from the last chapter that Zappos, the online shoe store, has a variety of unorthodox ideas about how a business can be run. You may also recall that its customer service reps are central to the firm's success. So even though the job might pay only about $11 an hour, Zappos wants to know that each new employee is fully committed to the company's ethos. That's where the offer comes in. When new employees are in the onboarding period, they've already been screened, offered a job, and completed a few weeks of training, Zappos offers them a chance to quit. Even better, quitters will be paid for their training time and also get a bonus representing their first month's salary, roughly $2,000, just for quitting. All they have to do is go through an exit interview and surrender their eligibility to be rehired at Zappos. And doesn't that sound nuts? What kind of company would offer a new employee $2,000 to not work? A clever company. It's really putting the employee in the position of, do you care more about money or do you care more about this culture and the company? says Tony Shea, the company's CEO. And if they care more about the easy money, then we probably aren't the right fit for them. Shea figured that any worker who would take the easy $2,000 was the kind of worker who would end up costing Zappos a lot more in the long run. By one industry estimate, it costs an average of roughly $4,000 to replace a single employee. And one recent survey of 2,500 companies found that a single bad hire can cost more than $25,000 in lost productivity, lower morale, and the like. So Zappos decided to pay a measly $2,000 up front and let the bad hires weed themselves out before they took root. As of this writing, fewer than 1% of new hires at Zappos accept the offer. The Zappos weeding mechanism is plainly different from those employed by medieval priests, David Lee Roth and King Solomon. In this case, Zappos is operating with utter transparency. There is no trick whatsoever. The other cases are all about the trick. It is the trick that makes one party reveal himself, unaware that he's being manipulated. The Zappos story may therefore strike you as more virtuous, but using a trick is, let's be honest, more fun. Consider the case of a secret bullet factory in Israel. After World War II, the British government declared it would relinquish its rule of Palestine. Britain was depleted from the war and weary of refereeing the fractious coexistence of Arabs and Jews. For the Jews living in Palestine, it seemed inevitable that a war with their Arab neighbors would break out as soon as the British left. So, the Jewish paramilitary group Haganah began to stockpile arms, Guns were not in terribly short supply. They could be smuggled in from Europe and elsewhere. 
but bullets were, and it was illegal to manufacture them under British rule. So the Haganah decided to build a clandestine bullet factory in a hilltop kibbutz near Rehovot, some 15 miles from Tel Aviv. Its code name, the Ayalon Institute. The kibbutz had a citrus grove, vegetable farm, and a bakery. The institute would be located in the secret basement of a laundry building. The laundry was meant to drown out the noise of bullet making and provide a cover story. Kibbutz workers reported there for work and then, pushing aside one of the huge washing machines, descended a ladder to the factory below. Using equipment bought in Poland and smuggled in, the institute began cranking out 9mm bullets for the Sten submachine gun. The bullet factory was so secret that women who worked there weren't allowed to tell their husbands what they were doing. The operation had to be hidden from not only the Arabs, but the British, too. This was especially tricky since British soldiers stationed nearby liked to have their laundry done at the kibbutz. They also dropped by to socialize. Some of the kibbutzniks had fought alongside the British during World War II as members of the Jewish Brigade. Already, there had been one close call. A British officer showed up just as a bullet-making machine was being lowered through the floor into the factory. The fellows escorted him into the dining hall, served him beer, and we managed to get the machine down, close the opening, and conceal it, the former plant manager recalled. Still, they were rattled. Had the British officer not been tempted by a glass of beer, the Institute likely would have been shut down, its ringleaders sent to prison. They needed to protect against another surprise visit. The solution, as the story goes, was in the beer. The British officers had complained that the beer at the kibbutz was too warm. They preferred it chilled. Their Jewish friends, eager to please, made a proposal. The next time you plan to visit, call us beforehand and we'll put some beer on ice for you. Done and done. According to kibbutz legend, at least, the warm beer alarm worked like a charm. The British officers never again pulled a surprise visit to the factory, which went on to produce more than two million bullets for use in Israel's War of Independence. The kibbutzniks had cannily appealed to the Brits' narrow self-interest in order to satisfy their own much broader one. There are plainly a variety of ways to teach a garden to weed itself, or if you prefer to create a separating equilibrium. The secret bullet factory and Zappos each dangled some bait cold beer in one case, $2,000 in the other, that helped sort things out. The priestly ordeals relied on the threat of an omniscient god. David Lee Roth and King Solomon, meanwhile, each had to make themselves look bad in order to flush out the truth. Roth by posing as an even bigger prima donna than he was, and Solomon by suggesting that he was a bloodthirsty tyrant, eager to settle a maternity dispute by hacking the baby to pieces. The method notwithstanding, seducing people to sort themselves into different categories can be all sorts of useful. It can also be extraordinarily profitable. Consider the following email. Dear sir or madam, top secret. I am one of the officials in the Energy Management Board in Lagos, Nigeria. I got your information in a business directory from the Chamber of Commerce and Industries when I was searching for a reliable, honest, and trustworthy person to entrust this business with. 
During the award of a contract to bring electrification to urban centers, a few of my colleagues and I had inflated the amount of our contract. The over-invoiced amount is being safeguarded under our custody. However, we have decided to transfer this sum of money, 10.3 million USA dollars, out of Nigeria. Hence, we seek for a reliable, honest, and not greedy foreign partner whom we shall use his or her account to transferring the fund. And we agreed that the account owner shall benefit 30% of the total amount of money. If you are capable to handle the transaction without hitches and flaws, then we have confidence in the deal. Please make it top secret and avoid every channel of implicating us here, thereby endanger our career. If this is of interest to you, please do contact me immediately through this email address for more details and for easier communication. Have you ever received an email like this? Of course you have. There's probably one worming its way into your inbox at this very moment. If not from a government official, it purports to be from a deposed prince or a billionaire's widow. In each case, the author has the rights to millions of dollars, but needs help extracting it from a rigid bureaucracy or uncooperative bank. That's where you come in. If you will send along your bank account information and perhaps a few sheets of blank letterhead from said bank, the widow or prince or government official can safely park the money in your account until everything is straightened out. There's a chance you'll need to travel to Africa to handle the sensitive paperwork. You may also need to advance a few thousand dollars to cover some upfront fees. You will, of course, be richly rewarded for your trouble. Does such an offer tempt you? We hope not. It is a stone-cold scam, variations of which have been practiced for centuries. An early version was known as the Spanish prisoner. The scammer pretended to be a wealthy person who'd been wrongly jailed and cut off from his riches. A huge reward awaited the hero who would pay for his release. In the old days, the con was played via postal letter or face-to-face -face meetings. Today, it lives primarily on the Internet. The generic name for this crime is advance fee fraud, but it's more commonly called the Nigerian letter fraud or 419 fraud after a section of the Nigerian criminal code. While advance fee fraud is practiced in many places, Nigeria seems to be its epicenter. More email scams of this sort invoke Nigeria than all other countries combined. Indeed, the connection is so famous that if you type Nigeria into a search engine, the autofill function will likely supply you with Nigerian scam. Which might lead you to wonder, if the Nigerian scam is so famous, why would a Nigerian scammer ever admit he's from Nigeria? That was the question Cormac Hurley asked himself. Hurley is a computer scientist at Microsoft Research who's long been interested in how fraudsters abuse technology. In a previous job at Hewlett-Packard, one of his concerns was that increasingly sophisticated desktop printers could be used to counterfeit money. Hurley hadn't thought much about the Nigerian scam until he heard two people mention it from opposite angles. One talked about the millions or even billions of dollars the scammers earn. Firm numbers are hard to come by, but Nigerian scammers have been successful enough for the U.S. Secret Service to set up a task force. One California victim lost $5 million. The other person noted how stupid these Nigerians must be to send out letters full of such outlandish stories and leaps of illogic. Hurley wondered 
how both of these statements could be true. If the scammers are so dumb and their letters so obviously a scam, how could they be successful? When you see an apparent contradiction, Hurley says, you start digging, see if you can figure out a mechanism by which it does make sense. He began to examine the scam from the scammer's perspective. For anyone wishing to commit fraud, the Internet has been a wondrous gift. It makes it easy to obtain a huge batch of email addresses and instantaneously send out millions of bait letters. So the cost of contacting potential victims is incredibly low. But converting a potential victim into a real one will require a good deal of time and effort, typically a long series of emails, perhaps some phone calls, and ultimately the bank paperwork. Let's say for every 10,000 scam emails that you send, 100 people take the initial bait and write back. The 9,900 who trashed your email, they haven't cost you anything. But now you start to invest significantly in those 100 potential victims. For every one of them who wises up or gets scared off or simply loses interest, your profit margin decreases. How many of these 100 will end up actually paying you? Let's say one of them goes all the way. The other 99 are, in the parlance of statistics, false positives. Internet fraud is hardly the only realm haunted by false positives. Roughly 95% of the burglar alarms that U.S. police respond to are false alarms. That makes for a total of 36 million false positives a year at a cost of nearly $2 billion. In medicine, we rightly worry about false negatives, a fatal ailment, for instance, that goes undetected, but false positives are also a huge problem. One study found an astonishingly high rate of false positives, 60% for men, 49% for women, among patients who were regularly screened for prostate, lung, colorectal, or ovarian cancer. One task force went so far as to argue that ovarian screening for healthy women should be eliminated entirely since it's not very effective to begin with and because false positives lead too many women to, quote, unnecessary harms such as major surgery. One of the most disruptive false positives in recent memory occurred in Cormac Hurley's own field of computer security. In 2010, the McAfee antivirus software identified a malevolent file on vast fleets of computers running Microsoft Windows. It promptly attacked the file, either deleting or quarantining it, depending on how a given computer was configured. Just one problem. The file wasn't malevolent. In fact, it was a key component of the Windows startup function. The antivirus software, by falsely attacking a healthy file, sent millions of PCs into never-ending reboot cycles, says Hurley. So how can a Nigerian scammer minimize his false positives? Hurley used his mathematical and computing skills to model this question. Along the way, he identified the most valuable characteristic in a potential victim, gullibility. After all, who else but a supremely gullible person would send thousands of dollars to a faraway stranger based on a kooky letter about some misbegotten fortune? How can a Nigerian scammer tell just by looking at thousands of email addresses who is gullible and who is not? He can't. Gullibility is in this case an unobservable trait. But, Hurley realized, the scammer can invite the gullible people to reveal themselves. How? By sending out such a ridiculous letter, including prominent mentions of Nigeria, 
that only a gullible person would take it seriously. Anyone with an ounce of sense or experience would immediately trash an email like this. The scammer wants to find the guy who hasn't heard of it, Hurley says. Anybody who doesn't fall off their chair laughing is exactly who he wants to talk to. Here's how Hurley put it in a research paper. The goal of the email is not so much to attract viable users as to repel the non-viable ones who greatly outnumber them. A less outlandish wording that did not mention Nigeria would almost certainly gather more total responses and more viable responses, but would yield lower overall profit. Those who are fooled for a while but then figure it out or who balk at the last hurdle are precisely the expensive false positives that the scammer must deter. If your first instinct was to think that Nigerian scammers are stupid, perhaps you've been convinced, as Cormac Hurley was, that this is exactly the kind of stupid we should all aspire to be. Their ridiculous emails are in fact quite brilliant at getting the scammer's massive garden to weed itself. That said, these men are crooks and thieves. As much as one might admire their methodology, it's hard to celebrate their mission. And so now that we understand how their game works, is there a way to turn their methodology against them? Hurley believes there is. He notes with approval a small online community of scam baiters who intentionally engage Nigerian scammers in time-wasting email conversations. They do this mostly for bragging rights, he says. Hurley would like to see this effort broadened by automation. What you want is to build a chatbot, he says, a computer program that can have a conversation with you. There are examples out there. There's a chatbot psychotherapist, for instance. You'd want to build something that engages the scammer on the other side, pulls him in a bit. You don't need to keep him talking for 20 round-trip emails. But if every time he has to put in some effort, that'd be great. In other words, Hurley would like to see a smart computer programmer pretend to be dumb in order to outwit a smart scammer who's also pretending to be dumb in order to find a victim who is, if not dumb, then extremely gullible. Hurley's chatbot would flood a scammer's system with false positives, making it virtually impossible to pick out a real victim. You might think of it as carpet bombing the scammer's gardens with millions upon millions of weeds. We, too, thought it might be nice to attack some bad guys before they were able to attack innocent people. In Super Freakonomics, published in 2009, we described an algorithm that we built with a fraud officer at a large British bank. It was designed to sift through trillions of data points generated by millions of bank customers to identify potential terrorists. It was inspired by the irregular banking behavior of the 9-11 terrorists in the United States. Here were some of their key behaviors. They tended to make a large initial deposit and then steadily withdraw cash over time with no steady replenishment. Their banking didn't reflect normal living expenses like rent, utilities, insurance, and so on. And some of them routinely sent or received foreign wire transfers, but the amount inevitably fell below the reporting limit. Markers like these are hardly enough to identify a terrorist, even a petty criminal, but by starting with them and culling more significant markers from the British banking data, we were able to tighten the algorithm's noose, and tight it had to be. Imagine that our algorithm turned out to be 99% accurate at predicting that a given bank customer was connected to a terrorist group. 
That sounds pretty good until you consider the consequences of a false positive rate of 1% in a case like this. Terrorists are relatively rare in the United Kingdom. Let's say there are 500 of them. An algorithm that is 99% accurate would flush out 495 of them, but it would also wrongly identify 1% of the other people in the data. Across the entire population of the UK, roughly 50 million adults, that would translate into some 500,000 innocent people. Now, what would happen if you hauled in half a million non-terrorists on terrorism charges? You could brag all you wanted about how low a false positive rate of 1% is. Just look at the false positives that Nigerian scammers have to deal with. But you'd still have a lot of angry people and likely lawsuits on your hands. So the algorithm had to be closer to 99.999% accurate. That's what we strove for as we loaded the algorithm with marker upon marker. Some were purely demographic. Known terrorists in the UK are predominantly young male and at this point in history Muslim. Others were behavioral. For instance, a potential terrorist was unlikely to withdraw money from an ATM on a Friday afternoon during Muslim prayer services. One marker, we noted, was particularly powerful in the algorithm. Life insurance. A budding terrorist almost never bought life insurance from his bank, even if he had a wife and young children. Why not? As we explained in the book, an insurance policy might not pay out if the holder commits a suicide bombing, so it would be a waste of money. After several years of tightening and tweaking, the algorithm was unleashed on a mammoth trove of banking data. It ran all night on the bank's supercomputer so as to not disturb regular business. The algorithm seemed to work pretty well. It generated a relatively short list of names that we were quite sure included at least a handful of likely terrorists. The bank gave us this list in an envelope protected by a wax seal. Privacy law prevented us from seeing the names. And we, in turn, met with the head of a British national security unit to hand him the envelope. It was all very James Bondy. What happened to the people on that list? We'd like to tell you, but we can't. Not because of national security issues, but because we have no idea. While the British authorities seemed happy to take our list of names, they didn't feel compelled to let us tag along when or if they went knocking on suspects' doors. And that would seem to be the end of the story. But it's not. In Super Freakonomics, we described not only how the algorithm was built, but how a would-be terrorist could escape its reach by going down to the bank and buying some life insurance. The particular bank we'd been working with, we noted, offers starter policies for just a few quid per month. We called further attention to this strategy in the book's subtitle, which was Global Cooling, Patriotic Prostitutes, and why suicide bombers should buy life insurance. Upon arrival in London for a book tour, we found the British public did not appreciate our giving advice to terrorists. I'm not sure why we're telling the terrorists this secret, wrote one newspaper critic. Radio and TV interviewers were less polite. They asked us to explain what sort of idiot would go to the trouble of building a trap like this only to explain precisely how to evade it. Plainly, we were dumber than even a Nigerian scammer, vainer than David Lee Roth, more bloodthirsty than King Solomon. 
We hemmed, we hawed, we rationalized, occasionally we hung our heads in contrition, but we were smiling on the inside, and we got a little happier every time we were blasted for our stupidity. Why? From the outset of the project, we recognized that finding a few bad apples out of millions would be difficult. Our odds would improve if we could somehow trick the bad apples into revealing themselves. And that is what our life insurance scam, yes, it was a scam all along, was meant to accomplish. Do you know anyone who buys life insurance through their bank? No, we don't either. Many banks do offer it, but most customers use banks for straight banking, and if they want insurance, they buy it through a broker or directly from an insurer. So as these American idiots were being skewered in the British media for giving advice to terrorists, what kind of person suddenly had a strong incentive to run out and buy life insurance from his bank? Someone who wanted to cover his tracks. And our algorithm was already in place paying attention. Having learned from the great minds described in this chapter, we laid out a trap designed to ensnare only the guilty. It encouraged them to, in the words of King Solomon, ambush only themselves. Chapter 8. How to Persuade People Who Don't Want to Be Persuaded Anyone willing to think like a freak will occasionally end up on the sharp end of someone else's stick. Perhaps you'll raise an uncomfortable question, challenge an orthodoxy, or simply touch upon a subject that should have been left untouched. As a result, people may call you names. They may accuse you of consorting with witches or communists, even economists. You may be heading toward a bruising fight. What happens next? Our best advice would be to simply smile and change the subject. As hard as it is to think creatively about problems and come up with solutions, in our experience, it's even harder to persuade people who do not wish to be persuaded. But if you are hell-bent on persuading someone, or if your back is truly against the wall, you might as well give it your best shot. Though we try to avoid fights, we've gotten into a few, and we've learned some things along the way. First, understand how hard persuasion will be and why. The vast majority of climate scientists believe the world is getting hotter, due in part to human activity, and that global warming carries a significant risk. But the American public is far less concerned. Why? A group of researchers called the Cultural Cognition Project, made up primarily of legal scholars and psychologists, tried to answer that question. The CCP's general mission is to determine how the public forms its views on touchy subjects like gun laws, nanotechnology, and date rape. In the case of global warming, CCP began with the possible explanation that the public just doesn't think climate scientists know what they're talking about. But that explanation didn't fit very well. A 2009 Pew poll shows that scientists in the United States are extremely well regarded, with 84% of respondents calling their effect on society mostly positive. And since scientists have thought long and hard about global warming, collecting and analyzing data, they would seem to be in a good position to know the facts. So maybe ignorance is the answer. 
Perhaps the people who aren't worried about climate change simply aren't smart enough, as one CCP researcher posited. They're not educated enough. They don't understand the facts like the scientists do. This explanation looked more promising. The same Pew poll found that 85% of scientists believe the public does not know very much about science and that this is a major problem. To determine if scientific ignorance could explain the public's lack of concern, the CCP ran its own survey. It began with questions to test each respondent's scientific and numerical literacy. Here are some of the numerical questions. Number one, imagine that we roll a fair six-sided die 1,000 times. That would mean we roll one die from a pair of dice. Out of 1,000 rolls, how many times do you think the die would come up an even number? Number two, a bat and a ball cost $1.10 in total. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? And here are a few of the science questions they asked. Number one, true or false? The center of the earth is very hot. Number two, true or false? It is the father's gene that decides whether the baby is a boy. And number three, true or false, antibiotics kill viruses as well as bacteria. Okay, we'll go ahead and give you the answers to these questions followed by the percentage of people who got them right. So number one, the, the die and how many would come up even and odd, 500 out of 1,000 was the correct answer. 58% of the people got that right. Number two, only 12% got this one right. A bat and ball costs $1.10. Bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? That means the bat would cost $1.05 and the ball would cost five cents. As for the science questions, true or false, the center of the earth is very hot. That is true. 86% of the people got that right. Number two, true or false, father's gene determining gender of the baby. Also true, 69% got that right. And number three, true or false, antibiotics kill viruses as well as bacteria. False, 68% got that right. Now, after the quiz, respondents were asked another set of questions, including this one. How much risk do you believe climate change poses to human health, safety, or prosperity? Now, how would you predict the survey turned out? Wouldn't you expect that people with a better grip on math and science were more likely to appreciate the threat of climate change? Yes, that is what the CCP researchers expected too, but that's not what happened. On the whole, they concluded, the most scientifically literate and numerate subjects were slightly less likely, not more, to see climate change as a serious threat than the least scientifically literate and numerate ones. How could this be? Digging deeper, the CCP researchers found another surprise in the data. People who did well on the math and science quiz were more likely to hold an extreme view of climate change in one direction or another, that is, to consider it either gravely dangerous or wildly overblown. That seems odd, doesn't it? People with higher science and math scores are presumably better educated, and we all know that education creates enlightened, moderate people, not extremists, don't we? Not necessarily. Terrorists, for example, tend to be significantly better educated than their non-terrorist peers. As the CCP researchers discovered, so do climate change extremists. Now, how can this be explained? One reason may be that smart people simply have more experience with feeling they're right 
and therefore they have greater confidence in their knowledge, whatever side of an issue they're on. But being confident you're right is not the same as being right. Think back to what Philip Tetlock, who studies the predictive ability of political pundits, found to be a sure sign of a bad predictor, dogmatism. Climate change may also be one of those topics that most people just don't think about very much or very hard. And this is understandable. The year-to-year -year fluctuations in climate can swamp the subtler long-term trends. The changes will happen over decades or centuries. People are too busy with everyday life to wrestle with something so complex and uncertain. And so, based on their emotion or instinct and perhaps a reaction to a bit of information gleaned long ago, people chose a position and stuck with it. When someone is heavily invested in his or her opinion, it's inevitably hard to change the person's mind. So you might think it would be pretty easy to change the minds of people who haven't thought very hard about a topic, but we've seen no evidence of this. Even on a topic that people don't care much about, it can be hard to get their attention long enough to prompt a change. Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, pioneers of the nudge movement, recognized this dilemma. Rather than try to persuade people of the worthiness of a goal, whether it's conserving energy or eating better or saving more for retirement, it's more productive to essentially trick people with subtle cues or new default settings. Trying to keep a public men's room clean? Sure, go ahead and put up signs urging people to pee neatly. Or better, paint a housefly on the urinal and watch the male instinct for target practice take over. So what does all this mean if you desperately want to persuade someone who doesn't want to be persuaded? The first step is to appreciate that your opponent's opinion is likely based less on fact and logic than on ideology and herd thinking. Now, if you were to suggest this to his face, he would, of course, deny it. He is operating from a set of biases he cannot even see. As the behavioral sage Daniel Kahneman has written, we can be blind to the obvious, and we are also blind to our blindness. Few of us are immune to this blind spot. That goes for you, and that goes for the two of us as well. And so, as the basketball legend slash philosopher Kareem Abdul-Jabbar once put it, it's easier to jump out of a plane, hopefully with a parachute, than it is to change your mind about an opinion. Okay, so how can you build an argument that might actually change a few minds? It's not me, it's you. Whenever you set out to persuade someone, remember that you are merely the producer of the argument. The consumer has the only vote that counts. Your argument may be factually indisputable and logically airtight, but if it doesn't resonate for the recipient, you won't get anywhere. The U.S. Congress recently funded a national multi-year media campaign to discourage young people from using drugs. It was created by a storied ad agency and promoted by a top-tier PR firm at a cost of nearly $1 billion. So how much do you think this campaign cut youth drug use? 10 percent? 20? 50? Here's what the American Journal of Public Health found, quote, most analyses showed no effects from the campaign and that there was, in fact, quote, some evidence that the campaign had pro-marijuana effects. Don't pretend your argument is perfect. 
You show us a perfect solution, and we'll show you our pet unicorn. If you make an argument that promises all benefits and no costs, your opponent will never buy it, nor should he. Panaceas are almost non-existent. If you paper over the shortcomings of your plan, that only gives your opponent reason to doubt the rest of it. Let's say you've become a head-over-heels advocate for a new technology that you think will change the world. Your argument goes like this. The era of the self-driving car, a.k.a. the driverless car or autonomous vehicle, is just around the corner, and we should embrace it as vigorously as possible. It will save millions of lives and improve just about every facet of our society and economy. You could go on and on. You could talk about how the toughest challenge, the technology itself, has largely been conquered. Nearly every major automaker in the world, as well as Google, has successfully tested cars that use an onboard computer, GPS, cameras, radar, laser scanners, and actuators to do everything a human driver can do, but better. And since roughly 90% of the world's 1.2 million traffic deaths each year, yes, 1.2 million deaths every year, since 90% of them are the result of driver error, the driverless car may be one of the biggest lifesavers in recent history. Unlike humans, a driverless car won't drive drowsy or drunk or while texting or applying mascara, won't change lanes while putting ketchup on french fries or turn around to smack its kids in the back seat. Google has already driven its fleet of autonomous cars more than 500,000 miles on real roads throughout the United States without causing an accident. But safety isn't the only benefit. Elderly and handicapped people wouldn't have to drive themselves to the doctor, or if they prefer, to the beach. Parents wouldn't have to worry about their reckless teenagers getting behind the wheel. People could drink without hesitation when they go out at night. Good news for restaurants, bars, and the alcohol industry. Since a driverless car can flow through traffic more efficiently, road congestion and pollution would likely fall. And if driverless cars could be summoned to pick us up or drop us off, we'd no longer need to park at our destination, which would free up millions of acres of prime real estate. In many U.S. cities, 30 to 40 percent of the downtown surface area is devoted to parking. Well, that all sounds pretty perfect, doesn't it? But of course, no new technology is perfect, especially something as vast as a driverless car revolution. So if you want your argument to be taken seriously, you would do well to admit the potential downsides. For starters, the technology may be miraculous, but it's still in the experimental phase and may never be as good as promised. Now, true, the sensors on a driverless car can easily distinguish a pedestrian from a tree, but there are many other issues to surmount. Google's engineers concede this as they wrote, We'll need to master snow-covered roadways, interpret temporary construction signals, and handle other tricky situations that many drivers encounter. There will be countless legal, liability, and practical roadblocks, including the fact that many people may never trust a computer to drive them or their loved ones. And what about all the people who drive for a living? Nearly 3% of the U.S. workforce, about 3.6 million people, feed their families by driving taxis, ambulances, buses, delivery trucks, tractor trailers, and other vehicles. What are they supposed to do when this new technology obliterates their livelihood? What else might go wrong in a driverless future? It's hard to say. 
The future, as we have noted, is nearly impossible to predict. Now, this doesn't stop a lot of policymakers and technologists from pretending otherwise. They constantly ask us to assume that their latest projects, whether a piece of legislation or a piece of software, will perform exactly as it was drawn up. It rarely does. So if you want your argument to be truly persuasive, it's a good idea to acknowledge not only the known flaws, but the potential for unintended consequences. For instance, as the hassle and cost of driving fall, will we use driverless cars so much that they produce even more congestion and pollution? With drunk driving no longer a worry, will we see a worldwide deluge of binge drinking? Wouldn't a fleet of computer-controlled cars be vulnerable to hacking? And what happens when some cyber terrorist steers every vehicle west of the Mississippi into the Grand Canyon? And what if, on one beautiful spring day, a misprogrammed car plows through a playground and kills a dozen schoolchildren? Acknowledge the strengths of your opponent's argument. If you were trying to persuade someone, why on earth would you want to lend credence to his argument? One reason is that the opposing argument almost certainly has value, something you can learn from and use to strengthen your own argument. This may seem hard to believe since you're so invested in your argument, but remember, we are blind to our blindness. Furthermore, an opponent who feels his argument is ignored isn't likely to engage with you at all. He may shout at you, and you may shout back at him. But it's hard to persuade someone with whom you can't even hold a conversation. Think back to the driverless car that just mowed down a flock of schoolchildren. Is there any value in pretending that such accidents won't happen? None that we can think of. The death of these children would horrify everyone who heard about it. For the victim's parents, the very idea of a driverless car would become repugnant. But let's consider a different set of parents the ones whose children are currently dying in traffic accidents. Around the world, some 180,000 kids are killed each year, roughly 500 a day. In wealthy countries, this is easily the leading cause of death for kids from age 5 to 14, outpacing the next four causes combined. That's leukemia, drowning, violence, and self-inflicted injuries. In the United States alone, traffic accidents kill more than 1,100 kids age 14 and under each year with another 171,000 injuries. How many children's lives would a driverless car save? It's impossible to say. Some advocates predict it would nearly eliminate traffic deaths over time, but let's assume that's way too optimistic. Let's say the driverless car would lower the death toll by 20%. That would save 240,000 lives around the world every year, including 36,000 children, 36,000 sets of parents who wouldn't have to grieve. And death is just a part of it. Roughly 50 million people a year are injured or disabled by traffic accidents, and the financial cost is mind-boggling, more than half a trillion dollars annually. How nice it would be to lower those numbers by only 20%. So, yes, we should acknowledge the heartbreak of the parents whose kids were killed when that driverless car ran amok in the playground. But we should also acknowledge how inured we've become to the heartbreak faced by millions of people every day because of car crashes. How did this happen? Maybe we simply accept the trade-off because the car is such a wonderful and necessary part of life. 
Or maybe it's because traffic deaths are so commonplace, most of them barely make the news, that unlike the rare, noisy events that do capture our attention, we just don't think about them. In July 2013, an Asiana Airlines flight from South Korea crashed at the San Francisco airport, resulting in three deaths. The crash got big play on just about every media outlet in the country. The message was clear. Air travel can be deadly. But how does it compare with car travel? Before the Asiana crash, it had been more than four years since the last fatal commercial flight in the United States. During this period of zero airline deaths, more than 140,000 Americans died in traffic crashes. What kind of person could possibly object to a new technology that saves even a fraction of those lives? You'd have to be a misanthrope, a troglodyte, or at the very least, a pure idiot. Keep the insults to yourself. Uh-oh, now you've gone and called your opponents a bunch of misanthropes, troglodytes, and idiots. Have we mentioned that name-calling is a really bad idea if you want to persuade someone who doesn't wish to be persuaded? For evidence, look no further than the U.S. Congress, which in recent years has operated less like a legislative body than a deranged flock of summer campers locked in an endless color war. Human beings, for all our accomplishments, can be fragile animals. Most of us don't take criticism well at all. A spate of recent research shows that negative information weighs more heavily on the brain, as one research team put it. A second team makes an even starker claim. In the human psyche, bad is stronger than good. This means that negative events, vicious crimes, horrible accidents, and sundry dramatic evils make an outsized impression on our memories. This may explain why we are so bad at assessing risk and so quick to overrate rare dangers, like an airplane crash in San Francisco that kills three people, it also means that the pain of negative feedback will, for most people, trump the pleasure from positive feedback. Consider a recent study of German school teachers. As it happens, teachers are far more likely to take early retirement than any other public employees in Germany, with the chief culprit being poor mental health. A team of medical researchers tried to determine the cause of all this poor mental health. They analyzed many factors, teaching load, class size, as well as each teacher's interactions with colleagues, students, and parents. One factor emerged as the best predictor of poor mental health, whether a teacher had been verbally insulted by his or her students. So if you're hoping to damage opponents' mental health, Go ahead and tell them how inferior or dim-witted or nasty they are. But even if you're certifiably right on every point, you should not think for a minute that you will ever be able to persuade them. Name-calling will make you an enemy, not an ally. And if that's your objective, then persuasion is probably not what you were after in the first place. Why you should tell stories. We have saved for last the most powerful form of persuasion we know. Sure, it's important to acknowledge the flaws in your argument and keep the insults to yourself, but if you really want to persuade someone who doesn't wish to be persuaded, you should tell them a story. By story, we don't mean anecdote. An anecdote is a snapshot, a one-dimensional shard of the big picture. It is lacking in scale, perspective, and data. 
as scientists like to say, the plural of anecdote is not data. An anecdote is something that once happened to you or to your uncle or to your uncle's accountant. It is too often an outlier, the memorable exception that gets trotted out in an attempt to disprove a larger truth. My uncle's accountant drives drunk all the time and he's never even had a fender bender. So how dangerous can drunk driving be? Anecdotes often represent the lowest form of persuasion. A story, meanwhile, fills out the picture. It uses data, statistical or otherwise, to portray a sense of magnitude. Without data, we have no idea how a story fits into the larger scheme of things. A good story also includes the passage of time to show the degree of constancy or change. Without a time frame, we can't judge whether we're looking at something truly noteworthy or just an anomalous blip. And a story lays out a daisy chain of events to show the causes that lead up to a particular situation and the consequences that result from it. Alas, not all stories are true. A great deal of conventional wisdom is built on nothing more than a story that someone has been telling for so long, often out of self-interest, that it's treated like gospel. So it is always worth questioning what a story is based on and what it really means. Here's a story, for instance, that we've all heard for many years. The obesity epidemic is the result of too many people eating too much fatty food. Sounds right, doesn't it? If being fat is a bad thing, then eating fat must also be bad. Why would they give the same name to the nutritional component and the state of being overweight if the component didn't cause the state? This is the story that launched a million low-fat diets and products with the U.S. government often leading the way. But is it true? There are at least two problems with this story. Number one, an ever-growing body of evidence suggests that eating fat is pretty good for us, at least certain types of fat in moderation. And number two, when people stopped eating fat, it wasn't as if they instead ate nothing. They began to consume more sugar and more carbohydrates that the body turns into sugar, and which, the evidence suggests, is a huge contributor to obesity. It is a testament to the power of storytelling that even stories that aren't true can be so persuasive. That said, we encourage you to use as generous a portion of the truth as possible in your attempts to persuade. Now, why are stories so valuable? One reason is that a story exerts a power beyond the obvious. The whole is so much greater than the sum of the parts, the facts, the events, the context, that a story creates a deep resonance. Stories also appeal to the narcissist in all of us. As a story unspools with its cast of characters moving through time, making decisions, we inevitably put ourselves in their shoes. Yes, I would have done that too. Or, no, 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 I never would have made that decision. Perhaps the best reason to tell stories is simply that they capture our attention and are therefore good at teaching. Let's say there's a theory or concept or set of rules you need to convey. While some people have the capacity to latch on directly to a complex message, we are talking to you, engineers and computer scientists, most of us quickly zone out if a message is too clinical or technical. This was the problem faced by Steve Epstein, who at the time was a lawyer for the U.S. Department of Defense. 
As head of the Standards of Conduct Office, Epstein had to brief supervisors in various government departments on the sort of things that employees were and were not allowed to do. And the problem, of course, is keeping that training fresh, keeping it relevant, Epstein says. And to do that, we discover that the first thing you have to do is you have to entertain folks so they'll pay attention. Epstein discovered that straightforward recitation of the rules and regulations wouldn't work. So he created a book of true stories called The Encyclopedia of Ethical Failure. It is a catalog of the epic screw-ups perpetrated by federal workers, divided into helpful chapters like abuse of position, bribery, conflicts of interest, and political activity violations. The Encyclopedia is one of the most entertaining publications in U.S. government history, which, to be fair, isn't saying much. We hear about the entrepreneurial federal employee who backed his panel van up to the office door one night and stole all the computer equipment and then tried to sell everything at a yard sale the next day. We learn that a military officer was reprimanded for faking his own death to end an affair. Then there's the Department of Defense employee who used her Pentagon office to sell real estate. When caught, she promptly quit the DOD and went into real estate full time. What the encyclopedia proved, at least to Steve Epstein and his Pentagon colleagues, is that a rule makes a much stronger impression once a story illustrating said rule is lodged in your mind. The same lesson can be learned from one of the most widely read books in history, the Bible. What is the Bible about? Different people will, of course, answer that question differently, but we could all agree the Bible contains perhaps the most influential set of rules in human history, the Ten Commandments. They became the foundation of not only the Judeo-Christian tradition, but of many societies at large. So surely most of us can recite the Ten Commandments front to back, back to front, every way in between, right? All right, then go ahead and name the Ten Commandments. We'll give you a moment to jog your memory. Okay, here they are. Number one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. Number two, you shall have no other gods before me. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to make it holy. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor your neighbor's wife, nor anything that is your neighbor's. All right, how'd you do? Probably not so well, but don't worry. Most people don't. A recent survey found that only 14% of U.S. adults could recall all 10 commandments. Only 71% could name even one commandment. The three best-remembered commandments were numbers 6, 8, and 10, murder, stealing, and coveting, while number 2, forbidding false gods, was in last place. So you may be thinking that this says less about biblical rules than about how bad our memories are. But consider this. In the same survey, 25% of the respondents could name the seven principal ingredients of a Big Mac, while 35% could name all six kids from the Brady Bunch. 
If we have such a hard time recalling the most famous set of rules from perhaps the most famous book in history, what do we remember from the Bible? The stories. We remember that Eve fed Adam a forbidden apple and that one of their sons, Cain, murdered the other, Abel. We remember that Moses parted the Red Sea in order to lead the Israelites out of slavery. We remember that Abraham was instructed to sacrifice his own son on a mountain. And we even remember that King Solomon settled a maternity dispute by threatening to slice a baby in half. These are the stories we tell again and again and again, even those of us who aren't remotely religious. Why? Because they stick with us. They move us. They persuade us to consider the constancy and frailties of the human experience in a way that mere rules cannot. Consider one more story from the Bible about King David. He slept with a married woman, Bathsheba, and got her pregnant. In order to cover up his transgression, David arranged for Bathsheba's husband, a soldier, to die in battle. David then took Bathsheba as his own wife. God sent a prophet named Nathan to let David know this behavior was unacceptable. But how does a lowly prophet go about imparting such a message to the king of Israel? Nathan told him a story. He described to David two men, one rich and one poor. The rich man had huge flocks of animals. The poor man had just one little lamb whom he treated like a member of his family. One day, a traveler came through. The rich man, Nathan told King David, was happy to feed the traveler, but he didn't want to take a sheep from his own flock. So he took the poor man's only lamb, killed it, and served it to the traveler. The story enrages David. The man who did this deserves to die. That man, Nathan tells him, is you. Case closed. Nathan didn't berate David with the rules. Hey, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Hey, don't kill. Hey, don't commit adultery, even though David had broken all of them. He just told a story about a lamb. Very persuasive. All we've been doing in this book really is telling stories about a hot dog eating champion, an ulcer detective, a man who wanted to give free surgery to the world's poorest children. There are, of course, a million variations in how a given story can be told. The ratio of narrative to data, the pace and flow and tone, the point of the narrative arc at which you cut into the story, as the great writer Dr. Anton Chekhov noted. We have been telling these stories in an effort to persuade you to think like a freak. Perhaps we haven't been entirely successful, but the fact that you've listened this far suggests we haven't failed altogether. In that case, we invite you to listen to one more story. It is about a classic piece of advice that just about everyone has received at one point or another and why you should ignore it. Chapter 9, The Upside of Quitting All these years later, the words still resonate. Never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty. The speaker was British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. He was delivering remarks at Harrow, the boarding school of his youth. 
But this wasn't the standard pep talk given by men like him to boys like those urging them to stick to their studies. The date was October 29th, 1941, deep in the heart of World War II. Hitler's army had been gobbling up huge swaths of Europe and beyond. Britain was its only formidable opponent. The U.S. had not yet been drawn into the war and accordingly had paid the price. German warplanes had bombed Britain nonstop for months, killing tens of thousands of civilians. A German land invasion was said to be in the works. The situation had improved of late, but it was still impossible to know whether Britain could beat back Germany or whether Great Britain would even exist a few years hence. And so, Churchill's words that day at Harrow, never give in, never, 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 took on an urgency and a magnitude that inspired not only those boys on that day, but millions of people for years to come. The message is unequivocal. Failure may be an option, but quitting is not. The American version goes like this. A quitter never wins, and a winner never quits. To quit is to prove oneself a coward, a shirker, a person of limited character. Let's face it, a loser. Who could possibly argue with that? A freak. That's who. Sure, if you were the prime minister of a great nation facing extinction, fighting to the death is indeed the best option. But for the rest of us, the stakes usually aren't so high. There is, in fact, a huge upside to quitting when done right, and we suggest you give it a try. You've been at it for a while now, whatever the it is, a job, an academic pursuit, a business startup, a relationship, charitable endeavor, a military career, a sport. Maybe it's a dream project you've been working on for so long you can't even remember what got you all dreamy in the first place. In your most honest moments, it's easy to see that things aren't working out. So why haven't you quit? At least three forces bias us against quitting. The first is a lifetime of being told by Churchill wannabes that quitting is a sign of failure. The second is the notion of sunk costs. This is pretty much what it sounds like, the time or money or sweat equity you've already spent on a project. It is tempting to believe that once you're invested heavily in something, it is counterproductive to quit. This is known as the sunk cost fallacy, or as the biologist Richard Dawkins called it, the Concorde fallacy after the supersonic airplane. Its two patrons, the British and French governments, suspected the Concorde was not economically viable, but they had spent too many billions to stop. In simpler times, this was known as throwing good money after bad, but money is hardly the only resource that people toss into the sunk cost trap. Think about all the time, brain power, social or political capital that you continued to spend on some commitment only because you didn't like the idea of quitting. The third force that keeps people from quitting is a tendency to focus on concrete costs and pay too little attention to opportunity cost. This is the notion that for every dollar or hour or brain cell that you spend on one thing, you surrender the opportunity to spend it elsewhere. Concrete costs are usually easy to calculate, but opportunity cost is harder. If you want to go back to school to get an MBA, you know it'll cost two years' time and $80,000. But what might you have done with that time and money had you not been in school? Or let's say you've been a competitive runner for years and it's still a big part of your identity. 
But what else might you accomplish if you weren't slamming your joints into the pavement 20 hours a week? Might you do something that makes your life or others' lives more fulfilling, more productive, more exciting? Perhaps, if only you weren't so worried about the sunk costs, if only you could quit. Let's be clear. We are not suggesting you quit everything in order to do nothing, to spend all day on the couch in your underwear eating nachos and watching TV. But if you are stuck in a project or relationship or mindset that isn't working, and if the opportunity cost seems to outweigh the sunk cost, here are some ways to think about the big quit. Quitting is hard in part because it is equated with failure, and nobody likes to fail or at least be seen failing. But is failing necessarily so terrible? We don't think so. For every 10 Freakonomics research projects we take up, roughly nine are abandoned within a month. For whatever reason, it turns out we aren't the right people to take them on. Resources are not infinite. You cannot solve tomorrow's problem if you aren't willing to abandon today's dud. Nor should failure be considered a total loss. Once you start thinking like a freak and running experiments, you'll find that failure can provide valuable feedback. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg understood this. In medicine or in science, if you go down a path and it turns out to be a dead end, he said, you really made a contribution because we know we don't have to go down that path again. In the press, they call it failure, and so people are unwilling to innovate, unwilling to take risks in government. Civilization is an aggressive, almost maniacal chronicler of success. It's understandable, but... Might we all be better off if failure carried less of a stigma? Some people think so. They go so far as to celebrate their failures with a party and cake. Intellectual Ventures is a technology firm near Seattle with an unusual mandate. Ivy's main business is acquiring and licensing out high-tech patents, but it also runs an old-fashioned invention shop. Some inventions originate in-house, while others are dreamed up in some garage on the other side of the world. The ideas range from a new breed of nuclear reactor to a super-insulated portable storage unit that can deliver perishable vaccines to sub-Saharan Africa. When it comes to inventing, ideas are rarely in short supply. In one brainstorming session, a group of IV scientists might come up with 50 ideas. It's just a fact of invention that most ideas won't work out, says Jeff Dean, who runs Ivy's laboratory, where viable ideas are put to the test. Knowing when the time is right to walk away is a perpetual challenge. The first round of triage is made by the company's army of business, technical, and legal analysts. If an idea survives that cut, it may make its way to Dean's lab, a 50,000-square-foot menagerie of saws, scopes, lasers, lathes, and jacked-up computers. It employs or hosts more than 100 people. By the time an invention makes it to the lab, says Dean, there are two forces at work. One force really wants to find a winner. The other one doesn't want you to spend a ton of money or time on an idea that won't be successful. The key is failing fast and failing cheap. That's a mantra that comes out of Silicon Valley. I prefer the statement, failing well or failing smart. Dean is an upbeat man with a big shaved head. He's got a background in civil engineering and fluid mechanics. The hardest part of running the lab, he says, 
is training people to understand that risk is part of their job, and if they fail well, they will be given the license to fail again. If we try to spend $10,000 on our failures instead of $10 million, we'll get the opportunity to do a lot more things. In this context, Dean says, failure has to be recognized as a victory. He recalls one invention in 2009 that looked to be a winner. It was a self-sterilizing surface, a technology that used ultraviolet light to wipe out dangerous microbes. In U.S. hospitals alone, tens of thousands of people die each year from infections they pick up from medical devices, door handles, light switches, remote controls, and furniture surfaces. Wouldn't it be great if all those items could be treated with a coating that automatically wiped out killer bacteria? The self-sterilizing surface took advantage of two scientific phenomena, total internal reflection and evanescent field effect to expose microbial intruders to ultraviolet light and neutralize them. To test the concept, IV's scientists wrote white papers and computer models, cultivated bacteria, and they built prototypes. There was tremendous excitement about the project. Nathan Mirvold, one of the company's founders, began to talk it up publicly. How did the testing go? The self-sterilizing surface turned out to be highly effective in killing bacteria, Dean says. That was the good news. The bad news? The existing technology to commercialize the invention was simply too expensive. There was no way it could move forward, at least for now. We were ahead of the curve, Dean says. We just had to wait for the world to make more cost-effective LEDs. Projects fail for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes the science isn't right. Sometimes it's politics that gets in the way. In this case, the economics just wouldn't cooperate. But Jeff Dean felt good about the outcome. The work had gone quickly, and it cost the company only $30,000. It's very easy to have a project like that go on for six months, he says. The technology was by no means dead, but the project needed to be put to rest for a while. And so Dean threw an old-fashioned wake. We invited everyone over to the kitchen, had a cake, said a few words of memoriam, he says. Somebody had made a casket. We carried it outside. We have a grassy knoll, and we put up a tombstone. Then they all went back inside to continue the party. It was remarkably well attended, about 50 people. When you offer free food and alcohol at the end of the day, Dean says, people tend to show up. When failure is demonized, people will try to avoid it at all costs, even when it represents nothing more than a temporary setback. We once consulted with a huge multinational retail chain that was planning to open its first store in China. The company's top executives were deeply committed to opening on time. About two months beforehand, they gathered the leaders of the seven teams involved in the opening and asked each one for a detailed status report. All the reports were positive. All the team leaders were then asked to pick one of three signals, a green light, a yellow light, or a red light, to indicate their confidence in an on-time opening. All seven of them picked the green light. Great news. As it happens, this firm had also set up an internal prediction market where any employee could anonymously place a small bet on various company directives. One bet asked whether the Chinese store would open on time. Considering that all seven team leaders had given it a green light, you might expect betters to be similarly bullish. They weren't. 
the prediction market showed a 92% chance that the store wouldn't open on time. So guess who was right? The anonymous bettors or the team leaders who had to stand in front of their bosses? The Chinese store did not open on time. It's easy to identify with the leaders who gave the project the green light. Once a boss gets go fever, it takes a lot of courage to focus on potential failures. Institutional politics, ego, and momentum are all conspiring against you. And go fever can have consequences far more tragic than the late opening of a Chinese flagship store. On January 28, 1986, NASA planned to launch the Space Shuttle Challenger from Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. The launch had already been delayed several times. The mission had drawn massive public interest, largely because the crew included a civilian, a New Hampshire schoolteacher named Krista McAuliffe. The night before the launch, NASA held a long teleconference call with engineers from Morton Thiokol, the contractor that built the Challenger's solid rocket motors. Among them was Alan McDonald, Morton Thiokol's senior man at the launch site. It was unusually cold in Florida, a predicted overnight low of 18 degrees. So McDonald and other Morton Thiokol engineers recommended the launch be postponed again. The cold weather, they explained, might damage the rubber O-rings that kept hot gases from escaping the shuttle boosters. The boosters had never been tested below 53 degrees, and the morning forecast called for temperatures much lower than that. On the call, NASA pushed back against McDonald's decision to postpone. He was surprised. This was the first time that NASA personnel ever challenged a recommendation that was made that said it was unsafe to fly, he later wrote. For some strange reason, we found ourselves being challenged to prove quantitatively that it would definitely fail, and we couldn't do that. As McDonald later recalled, his boss, back at Morton Thiokol headquarters in Utah, left the phone call for roughly 30 minutes to discuss the situation with other company executives. When Utah came back on the phone, McDonald wrote, somehow the decision had been reversed. The launch was officially back on. McDonald was livid, but he'd been overruled. NASA asked Morton Thiokol to sign off on the decision to launch McDonald refused. His boss signed instead. The next morning, the Challenger took off as scheduled and blew apart in midair just 73 seconds later, killing everyone aboard. The cause, as later established by a presidential commission, was the failure of O-rings due to the cold weather. What makes this story remarkable and even more tragic is that the people in the know had forecast the exact cause of failure. You'd think it is a rare case when a group of decision makers know with such precision what the fatal flaw of a given project will be. But is it? What if there were a way to peek around the corner on any project to see if it's destined to fail? That is, if you could learn how you might fail without going to the trouble of actually failing. That's the idea behind a pre-mortem, as the psychologist Gary Klein calls it. The idea is simple. Many institutions already conduct a postmortem on failed projects, hoping to learn exactly what killed the patient. A premortem tries to find out what might go wrong before it's too late. You gather up everyone connected with a project and have them imagine that it launched and failed miserably. Now, they each write down the exact reason for its failure. 
Klein has found the pre-mortem can help flush out the flaws or doubts in a project that no one had been willing to speak aloud. This suggests one way to make a pre-mortem even more useful, offer anonymity. It seems safe to say that failure is not necessarily the enemy of success as long as it's given its due. But what about quitting outright? It's all well and good for us to preach the upside of quitting, to point out opportunity cost and the sunk cost fallacy, but is there any actual evidence that quitting leads to better outcomes? Karsten Roche, a psychology professor at Concordia University, helped run a series of small studies to see what happens when people give up unattainable goals. Granted, deciding whether a goal is unattainable is probably 90% of the battle. Yes, Roche says, I would say that's the $1 million question, when to struggle and when to quit. In any case, Roche found that people who quit their unattainable goals saw physical and psychological benefits. They have, for example, less depressive symptoms, less negative affect over time, he says. They also have lower cortisol levels and they have lower levels of systemic inflammation, which is a marker of immune functioning, and they develop fewer physical health problems over time. Roche's research is interesting, but let's be honest, not quite the overwhelming evidence you might need to cut the cord. Whether quitting is worth it is the kind of question that is inevitably hard to answer, at least empirically. How are you supposed to gather the data to answer such a question? What you'd really like to do is find thousands of people teetering on the edge of quitting who just can't decide on the right path. Then, with one flick of a magic wand, you'd send a randomly chosen portion of those people down the quitting path while the rest carried on, and you'd get to sit back and observe how all their lives unfolded. Unfortunately, no such wand exists, not that we know of at least, maybe Intellectual Ventures or the NSA is working on it. So we tried the next best thing. We set up a website, named it Freakonomics Experiments, and we asked people to put their fate in our hands. Here's what the homepage said. Have a problem? Sometimes in life, you face a major decision and you just don't know what to do. You've considered the issue from every angle, but no matter how you look at it, no decision seems to be the right decision. In the end, whatever you choose will essentially be a flip of a coin. Help us by letting Freakonomics Experiments flip that coin for you. That's right. We ask people to let us decide their future with a coin toss. We ensured their anonymity, asked them to tell us their dilemma, and then flip the coin. Technically, it was a digital coin toss from a random number generator, which ensured its fairness. Heads meant quitting, and tails meant sticking it out. We also asked them to check in with us after two months, and again after six months, so we could see whether quitting made them happier or less happy. And we asked for a third party, a friend or family member usually, to verify that the flipper actually followed the coin flip. As ludicrous as this may seem, within a few months, our website had attracted enough potential quitters to flip more than 40,000 coins. The male-female split was about 60-40, the average age just under 30. Some 30% of the flippers were married, and 73% lived in the United States. The rest were scattered across the globe. 
We offered a menu of decisions in a variety of categories, career, education, family, health, home, relationships, and just for fun. Here are some of the questions that proved most popular. Should I quit my job? Should I go back to school? Should I go on a diet? Should I break my bad habit? Should I break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Not all of the decisions were technically a quit. We'd flip a coin if someone couldn't decide whether to get a tattoo or start volunteering or try online dating. We also let people write in their own questions, although we did tweak the software to block some queries, anything containing murder, steal, or suicide, for instance. Just to give you a flavor, here are some of the write-in questions we received. Should I get out of the military? Should I quit taking illicit drugs? Should I date my boss? Should I stop stalking my love interest? Should I quit grad school? Should I have the fourth child that my husband wants? Should I quit the Mormon faith? Should I become a Christian? Should I have a coronary bypass or an angioplasty? Should I be an investment banker in London or a private equity associate in New York? Should I rebalance my portfolio or just let it go? Should I redo the bathroom or finish the basement first? Should I attend my youngest sister's wedding in North Carolina? Should I come out? Should I give up my dream of being a musician? Should I sell my motorcycle? Should I go vegan? Should I let my talented daughter quit piano? And should I start a Facebook Lebanese women's rights movement? We were astonished to see how many people were willing to put their fate in the hands of some strangers with a coin. Granted, they wouldn't have made it to our site if they weren't already leaning toward making a change, nor could we force them to obey the coin. Overall, though, 60% of the people did follow their coin toss, which means that thousands of people made a choice they wouldn't have made if the toss had come out opposite. Predictably, the coin toss had less impact on some really big decisions like quitting a job, but even there it had some power. People were especially willing to follow the coin's command when it came to the following questions. Should I ask for a raise? Should I quit my bad habit? Should I splurge on something fun? Should I sign up for a marathon? Should I grow a beard or mustache? And should I break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend? On this last question, the romantic breakup, we were responsible for the dissolution of roughly 100 couples. To the jilted lovers, sorry. On the other hand, because of the nature of a coin flip, we were also responsible for keeping together another hundred couples who might have broken up had the coin landed on heads. The experiment is ongoing and results are still coming in, but we have enough data to draw some tentative conclusions. Some decisions, it turns out, don't seem to affect people's happiness at all. One example, growing facial hair. We can't say this was very surprising. Some decisions made people considerably less happy. Asking for a raise, splurging on something fun, and signing up for a marathon. Now, our data don't allow us to say why these choices made people unhappy. It could be that if you ask for a raise and don't get it, you feel resentful. And maybe training for a marathon is far more appealing in theory than in practice. Some changes, meanwhile, did leave people happier, including two of the most substantial quits, breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend and quitting a job. Now, have we definitively proven that people are on average more likely to be better off if they quit more jobs, relationships, and projects? Not by a long shot, but 
there is nothing in the data to suggest that quitting leads to misery either. So we hope the next time you face a tough decision, you'll keep that in mind, or maybe you'll just flip a coin. True, it may seem strange to change your life based on a totally random event. It may seem even stranger to abdicate responsibility for your own decisions. But putting your faith in a coin toss, even for a tiny decision, may at least inoculate you against the belief that quitting is necessarily taboo. As noted earlier, we are all slaves to our own biases. Maybe that's why the two of us are so open to quitting. We've each been serial quitters and are pretty happy about how things turned out. One of us, Levitt, the economist, was pretty sure from the age of nine that he would be a professional golfer. When he wasn't practicing, he fantasized about being the next Jack Nicholas. His progress was substantial. At age 17, he qualified for the Minnesota State Amateur Championship. But his playing partner during that qualifier, a short, squat, unathletic-looking 14-year-old, routinely outdrove him by 30 or 40 yards and beat him soundly. If I can't beat this kid, he thought, how am I ever going to be a touring pro? The lifelong golf dream was summarily shuttered. Years later, he enrolled in an economics PhD program, not because he thought an economics career would be fun, but because it gave him cover to quit a management consulting job he hated. He focused on political economics, and by any standard metric, his career was going well. Just one problem. Political economics was no fun at all. Yes, it was an important field, but the work itself was dry as bones. There seemed to be three options. One, plow on regardless. Two, quit economics entirely and move into mom and dad's basement. And three, find a new specialty within economics that wasn't so dull. Number one was the easiest choice. A few more publications and our hero would likely earn tenure at a top economics department. This option exploited what academics call the status quo bias, a preference for keeping things as they are, and, to be sure, a prime force against quitting anything. Number two had some intrinsic appeal, but having already tried it once without much success, he passed. Number three beckoned, but was there any activity he enjoyed that might also reboot his academic career? Indeed there was, watching the reality show Cops on TV. Cops was one of the first reality shows of the modern era. No, it wasn't very classy, probably not important, but it was incredibly fun to watch, addictive even. Every week, viewers rode along with cops in Baltimore or Tampa, even Moscow, as they chased down disorderly drunks and carjackers and wife beaters. The show wasn't remotely scientific, but it did get you thinking. Why are so many of the criminals and the victims drunk? Does gun control really work? How much money do drug dealers make? What's more important, the number of police or the tactics they use? Does locking up a lot of criminals lower the crime rate or just encourage new and maybe wilder criminals to take their place? Watching a few dozen hours of cops prompted enough questions to fuel a decade's worth of fascinating academic research. Hey, maybe sitting on a couch eating nachos and watching TV isn't so terrible. And just like that, a new career path was laid out. The economics of crime. 
It was an underserved market, and although not nearly as important as political economics or macroeconomics or labor economics, it could permanently keep this economist out of his parents' basement. And so it was that he quit trying to be an important economist. The second author of this book has quit both a childhood dream and a dream job. He played music from an early age and in college helped start a rock band, The Right Profile, named for a song on the Clash record, London Calling. Ragged at first, they improved over time. On their best days, they sounded like a rough mashup of The Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, and some country punks who didn't know any better. After a few years, The Right Profile signed a contract with Arista Records and was on its way. It had been extraordinarily fun getting to this point. The Arista impresario Clive Davis had scouted the band at CBGB, the grimy New York club where bands like the Ramones and Talking Heads made their bones. Later, Davis invited the band to his swanky midtown office and put Aretha Franklin on the phone to chat up the boys about the upsides of Arista. Our budding rock star had more substantial career conversations with Springsteen himself, the fast-rising R.E.M., and other musical heroes. It was intoxicating to be so close to his childhood dream. And then he quit. Somewhere along the way, he realized that as exhilarating as it was to get up on stage with a guitar and jump around like a maniac, the actual life of a rock star didn't appeal to him. From the outside, chasing fame and fortune seemed fantastic, but the more time he spent with people who had actually caught it, the more he knew that wasn't what he wanted. It meant living on the road without much time for solitude. It meant living a life on stage. He realized he'd prefer to sit in a quiet room with a nice window and write stories and then go home at night to a wife and kids. So that's what he set out to do. This led him to graduate school and a few years of writing anything he could for whatever publication would have him. And then, as if beckoning from the heavens came the New York Times, offering a dream job. For the son of a small-town newspaper man, this was ridiculously good fortune. For the first year at the Times, he pinched himself daily. One year gave way to five, and then he quit again. As exciting and rewarding as journalism could be, he realized he'd rather be off on his own, writing books, like this one. The two of us have had more luck and more fun writing books together than we ever could have imagined. Which naturally leads us to wonder, should we take our own advice and think about quitting? After three Freakonomics books, can we possibly have more to say? And will anybody care? Maybe it's time for us to head over to the Experiments website, see what the coin has to say. If you never hear from us again, you'll know it came up heads. Now that we've arrived at these final minutes, it's pretty obvious. Quitting is at the very core of thinking like a freak. Or, if that word still frightens you, let's think of it as letting go. Letting go of the conventional wisdoms that torment us. Letting go of the artificial limits that hold us back and of the fear of admitting what we don't know. Letting go of the habits of mind that tell us to kick into the corner of the goal even though we stand a better chance by going up the middle. We might add that Winston Churchill, despite his famous advice to those Harrow schoolboys, was, in fact, one of history's greatest quitters. Soon after entering politics, he quit one party for another, and later he quit government altogether. 
When he rejoined, he quit parties again. And when he wasn't quitting, he was getting tossed out. He spent years in the political wilderness, denouncing Britain's appeasement of the Nazis, and he was returned to office only when that policy's failure had led to total war. Even in the bleakest moments, Churchill did not back down one inch from Hitler. He became the greatest of all Britain's war leaders, as the historian John Keegan put it. Perhaps it was that long streak of quitting that helped Churchill build the fortitude to tough it out when it's truly necessary. By now, he knew what was worth letting go and what was not. All right, then. We've had our say. As you've heard, there are no magic bullets. All we've done is encourage you to think a bit differently, a bit harder, a bit more freely. Now it's your turn. We, of course, hope you enjoyed this book, but our greatest satisfaction would be if it helps you, even in some small measure, to go out and right some wrong, to ease some burden, or even, this is your thing, to eat more hot dogs. Good luck. Let us know what you come up with. Having made it this far, you too are now a freak. So we're all in this together. This is Stephen J. Dubner. This production of Think Like a Freak, the authors of Freakonomics Offer to Retrain Your Brain by Stephen D. Levitt and Stephen J. Dubner, was directed by Karen Jakonski and recorded at John Marshall Media in New York City. Engineered by Nathan Rossborough, it was produced by John Marshall Media. Executive producer, Karen Jakonski. Text copyright 2014 by Stephen D. Levitt and Stephen J. Dubner. Production copyright 2014 by HarperCollins Publishers. All rights reserved. Thank you for listening. Now that you've made it to the end of this audiobook, if you aren't entirely sick of us, which I wouldn't blame you at all if you were, we have attached a few of our Freakonomics Radio podcasts. This is a free weekly podcast we put out available at Freakonomics.com and iTunes, places like that. So here are a few episodes for you to try out if you'd like. Well, it was in late August of 09. I went to a Harris Casino and played Pi Gal. And I was doing fairly well. I couldn't believe the luck I was having. That's Tony Belandrin. This was on one of those riverboat casinos in Kansas City, Missouri. Belandrin is a journalist in his late 40s. The big hand that I was dealt was a seven-card straight flush. Wow. And a seven-card straight flush is pretty amazing, pretty rare. And, of course, that had a joker involved, so that was, that was a wild card there. And that... I believe that was 750 to 1 on the odds. So my $5 bet on it netted me, I think, 37.50. And what happens then? Did you keep playing for a few hours or were you jazzed? You decide I'm going to cash out? How'd it work? No, they spread the cards out for the camera, of course. They did a card count. Oh. And the, um, the supervisor congratulated me and asked for my ID because this was going to be a big payout, a significant payout. And I just thought, wow, here it goes. Here's the thing. That beautiful hand Belandrin was dealt, that 750 to 1 straight flush hand, it actually turned out to be bad luck. You see, Tony Belandrin 
wasn't supposed to be gambling in that casino or any other casino in the state of Missouri. It all began when he realized that his gambling had gotten out of control. Sometimes after work and on the weekends, if when the casinos did not close, I there were a couple of times when I stayed there until I had to go to work the next day. Wow. And at what point did you say to yourself, Tony, this is not good and I need to do something? Well, when I was borrowing money from friends and uh, I wasn't completely honest with them about why I needed the money. And um, I knew I was in a pattern of living paycheck to paycheck despite, you know, a decent income. You know, when I was trying to figure out how many dollars I had to get my next meal, I thought this is not good and I got to stop. Belandra knew he did not have the will to stop himself, so he decided to do something drastic. Missouri, like many states with casinos, offers what's called a self-exclusion plan. You sign yourself up for a registry that effectively bans you for life from all casinos in the state. If you ever do come back, you can be arrested for trespassing. It's like signing a contract with yourself against yourself. For a while it worked. Blandrin stayed out of the casinos until he started going back. He discovered a loophole. He found he didn't have to show his ID to get into the casino or even to play the table games. In fact, he wouldn't have to show his ID at all unless he won a certain amount of money, at which point the IRS would have to be notified. And that brings us back to Tony Blandrin's seven-card straight flush. And I just kept a smile on my face thinking, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe I'm going to be lucky in another way. Maybe the computer glitch occurred or uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe somebody accidentally erased records from <laughs> six years ago. <laughs> but all the time I thought, they're taking too long. <laughs> and then what? I believe it was Highway Patrol. I, I believe that's the state agency, the gaming entity. They tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to step away from the table and to gather my chips and to come with them. And they didn't need to explain why, and and I followed them. And is at least a little bit of you thinking, holy cow, why did I do that? I did this to myself. I signed up. Yes. So that oh, the yeah. casino... I was beating myself up. I mean, no offense, I don't blame you, because... I mean, as bets go, this is a bad bet. You could only lose. There's no way you could win once you signed that ban. Well, if I had won several more four-of-a-kind hands, I could probably win under the radar. But what I'm really doing is hoping I don't win big. And you're right. The logic doesn't follow. Was it dumb? Yes. And I even kind of joked about it with the officer. I said, a seven-card straight flush. Come on. <laughs> I said, at least give me some compliment for that while you write that citation. Belandrin was charged with criminal trespass, paid a small fine, and worst of all, he had to surrender his $3,750 jackpot. So the casino got to keep the money he lost and the money he won, which makes a self-exclusion ban seem like a pretty good deal, at least from the casino's end. And so in, if you had it to do all over again, if you could rewind back those years ago, would you sign up again? Well... 
That's a tough question. If knowing if everything was going to be repeated in hindsight, I, I would not want to go through all that again. I, I know I had to I had to get away from those casinos for a while. So in the time that it kept me away, I think that was worth the ban, worth putting my name on that list. If there were a national casino ban registry, a national self-imposed casino ban registry, would you sign up for it? <laughs> no. From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. So economists have a name for the self-imposed ban that Tony Blandron signed up for. It's called a commitment device. To understand how a commitment device works, if it does work, you have to picture two versions of yourself, the current you and the future you. Sometimes it's the case that people know that their future version of themselves will want to follow a behavior that their current version of themselves is not comfortable with. That's Steve Levitt. He's my Freakonomics friend and co-author. So I'm on a diet, and I would like to stick to that diet, but I know that when someone puts a chocolate cake in front of me, I will lose my willpower and I will eat that chocolate cake. A commitment device is an attempt on the part of a person to set up constraints so that the future self isn't able to take advantage of the situation and do what the future self wants, but instead requires the future self to behave in a way that the current self would like the future self to behave. You remember how Odysseus had himself lashed to the mast of his ship so he couldn't succumb to the sweet song of the sirens? That is a commitment device. Have you ever bought an expensive gym membership to force yourself to get into shape? That's a commitment device. For some people, marriage is a commitment device. Now, in the last few years, commitment device websites have been popping up like stick.com, that's S-T-I-C-K-K, and Aherk, that's A-H-E-R-K, and they let you set up a contract to help you quit smoking or finally write that novel, any kind of goal you can imagine. If you fail, there's a penalty to be paid. You may have to donate money to an organization that you hate, or you might have to post an embarrassing picture of yourself to Facebook. Steve Levitt, being Steve Levitt, has some singular ideas about commitment devices. So bariatric surgery is one of the ultimate examples of a commitment device. It's a case where you know you can't control how much you eat, so you actually have surgeons go in and, you know, put rings or cut your stomach out so that you just don't want to in the future eat it all, which has always struck me as a really, really extreme solution to not being able to lose weight. I think I have at least two far superior ways of losing weight that I haven't been able to convince anyone else to go with. Now, the one that's maybe more civilized is uh, if you've ever had really bad canker sores or kind of cut your gums, it's so unpleasant to eat. So why not just slice up your gums a little bit, you know, cut up your mouth so that you just don't feel like eating it all. I think that would be a great diet approach. But people say, no, 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 too violent. I can cut myself. One thing I know would work is just take a little can, like say a baby food jar, 
and fill it with vomit, mm. okay? And wear it around your neck. And every time you decide that you're hungry, just open the jar and take a little sniff. I guarantee you, <laughs> you will lose weight. <laughs> guarantee. And, uh, and we can't figure out why people don't like economists. I don't understand. That's but how is that idea. worse than bariatric surgery? Wouldn't you rather sniff vomit once in a while than you know, risk death going under the knife to have someone cut open your body and yeah, make but it it's so also that a, you'll never be able to reverse it? Yeah, it's also At a one-time thing. As, as unpleasant as it is that one time and as risky as it is for the one time, you figure if I get through it, then I'm done. As opposed to just walking around with a baby food jar of vomit on a string my whole life? I mean, come on. Think about what a great conversation starter that would be. <laughs> with what kind of people? Who are you trying to start a conversation with? The, the ladies at ladies' night at the at the bars. Okay, so maybe Levitt's methods aren't for everybody or anybody, but let's say that you do want to change your life in some way, large or small. Maybe you find yourself questioning the choices you make. Maybe you're looking for answers to life's big, big questions. I was talking to my cousin Jimmy, uh, who asked the question that really kind of summed up the whole thing. Uh, he said, is life without steak and porn worth living? That's Adam Scott. He works in telecom policy for the Canadian government in Ottawa. He's 35 years old. He and his wife had their first kid a year ago. His perspective on life has shifted. I've always been a weak-willed person, but now I'm becoming a weak-willed, fat, old person. So I've definitely had my health on my mind lately. You know, recognizing that I've only got so many years, so many hours left to live. Am I spending them in a valuable way? So he took his cousin Jimmy's question kind of seriously. What if he did give up steak and pornography and while he's at it, all the other habits he considered unhealthy? Uh, I'll give you the, the full list is hamburgers, hot dogs, french fries, onion rings, chicken wings. Adam decided to go cold turkey for 30 days. He committed himself to a life of health and virtue. His cold turkey list ended up with 42 items. Illegal drugs, which I don't really do anyway. I remember when I was a kid, how hard it was to give up one thing for Lent, like ketchup. I loved ketchup. How do you live without ketchup for the entire Lenten season? And here's Adam Scott trying to give up not one thing he loves, but 42. These are things that I've been doing habitually, you know, foods that I've been eating for the last 20 years, uh, television shows that I've been watching every night for the last two or three years. And I've never really made a conscious decision about them. I've never sat down and assessed the value of watching TMZ every night. It just kind of crept into my life and now it's there. Uh, so I don't necessarily want to give it all up, but I do want to evaluate it and see, you know, if, if I think my life is better with beer and entertainment television in it, I'll be drinking in front of the TV uh, on day 31. Adam knew how hard this was going to be, and he knew that he was going to need some kind of commitment device. So what I came up with is I've written a $750 check made out to Oprah Winfrey, who my wife adores and who I uh, despise might be too strong a word, but who I'm, I'm not a big fan of. Yeah, it's true. I do love Oprah. <laughs> um, I think she's great. I think she does great things. That's Heather, Adam's wife. I couldn't see anything bad coming of, of her having more money. I'm sure it would go to something charitable and good. But Adam didn't see it that way. <laughs> I'm convinced that she'll spend it to advance her evil empire one way or another. My hope would be that she would spend it on herself. A new pair of shoes or I mean, something that she has in abundance already. Adam needed one more thing. A referee. 
So he gave the $750 check to his friend Scooby. And if he gets any credible evidence that I've broken my contract, he has instructions to mail that check immediately to Oprah Winfrey. There was one last layer of the commitment. Adam decided to post a series of videos on YouTube called The Cold Turkey Diaries in order to make public his progress. Hi, my name is Adam Scott, and this is The Cold Turkey Diaries. We talked to him on day five. The commitment contract is really working. The combination of kind of guilt and fear of getting caught that really has been effective so far. But by day 10, the novelty seemed to be wearing off. Like yesterday when I got home from work after a really stressful day, I was tired, kind of annoyed, fed up with my job. Would have been a great day to sit down, crack a cold beer, open a bag of pretzels, and sit in front of the TV for half an hour just to decompress a little bit. I don't get to do that anymore. But Adam presses onward. He certainly didn't make it easy on himself, giving up so much all at once. He has to get going in the mornings without the benefit of caffeine. He has to avoid TV even in other people's homes. At poker nights with his buddies, he drinks Gatorade while they're all pounding beer and chips. But Adam Scott, hardy Canadian that he is, doesn't quit and he doesn't cheat. But then, on day 21, there was a slip-up. Adam and Heather had gone to a diner for breakfast. Which I knew was risky at the time. He ordered a decaf coffee, which is not on the cold turkey list. Heather also ordered a coffee. And there were two coffees on the table, and one was black, and one was sort of creamy looking, and I hadn't put anything in my coffee. And I was like, well, that's kind of strange that that one's creamy looking. Maybe there's something wrong with it. I don't know. And I turned to Adam and I said, like, what? what's in the coffee? And I didn't know what she was talking about. And then she just yelled, milk! Milk. Not allowed. Adam had only put a couple little containers of 2% milk in his coffee and had a few sips. It was, as he would later insist, a total accident. But it didn't matter. After three weeks of perfect compliance, he had broken his commitment. Oh, it was an immediate freak out. It was, it was like, oh, it was such a blow. It was like the, the wind was just completely knocked out of our sails. Like, damn. So I was really wondering, like, is this what I'm going to go down on? Something so, so stupid. Adam knew what he had to do. He contacted Scooby. Yeah, so he texted me, and um, I think my first instinct was, who puts milk in their coffee, first of all? That's just sick. So I thought about it, and I said, okay, well, I said, if it was half and half, yes. said, I'll let 2% slide. Don't let it happen again. So Adam keeps going, and he makes it all the way to day 30 with no further slip-ups, no sleepwalking into the pantry for a bag of chips, no plopping himself down in front of the TV. He had committed himself to a cold turkey regimen, and as hard as it was, as unlikely as success may have seemed, he made it. But when we talked to him on day 30, he didn't sound so happy. I'm kind of feeling guilty about those two little sips of milk, right? It's like the record book is always going to have the asterisk beside it. It's a bit of a letdown, to be honest. So he comes up with a workaround. Call it a 2% solution. So maybe, maybe the best thing to do is just read you the letter I've written. So it starts off, Dear Oprah, attached you'll find a check for $750. Please allow me to explain. 
One month ago, I said it he mails the check to Oprah Winfrey, and his letter explains the whole project. What happened with the milk, how Scooby forgave him, but how Adam couldn't forgive himself, and then he just leaves it up to her. I throw myself on the mercy of the Oprah and ask only that you adjudicate this matter fairly. Tonight I will sleep guilt-free. I'll be honest with you. I think Adam Scott was way, way too rough on himself. 42 banned items and one slip-up in 30 days? I mean, come on. But I also find myself thinking, look how much effort he expended. Look how much angst he put himself through. Simply to get himself to do the things he already wanted to do. That's why some people aren't such big fans of the commitment device. I really think commitment devices are kind of a farce. That's Steve Levitt again. He tried a commitment device on himself once. He was actually in Thomas Schelling's undergraduate class in economics at Harvard. So Thomas Schelling was one of the greatest economists of all time. He won the Nobel Prize. He was a wonderful lecturer. Schelling was also one of the first scholars to study what we now call the commitment device. But I had this problem, which was a 9 a.m. class. As soon as I was settled into a seat, I would immediately go to sleep. And I really wanted to see these lectures. I just couldn't keep my eyes open. And so I had this brilliant idea. Now, this was a, an economic class on strategic thinking. And what better way of using strategic thinking was than to use a, the commitment device of putting myself in the very front row, in the very middle seat. How could I possibly fall asleep if Thomas Schelling was looking right at me as he delivered the lecture. And unfortunately, it couldn't have been more than two minutes into class when I found myself dozing off already, and I couldn't keep my eyes open the entire lecture, and I decided, well, that commitment device didn't work. I'm going to sit in the back of the class. At least it's not half as embarrassing. <laughs> the problem with commitment devices is, as, as clever as your current self is at trying to devise ways to keep your future self from getting around it, the future self just desperately wants whatever it's being denied, and it finds ways to to get around it. I mean, while people pretend to want commitment devices, I think deep down, real people don't really want them. All right, so personal commitment devices are imperfect, to say the very least. But what if we raise the stakes a bit? What if a commitment device could be applied to help fight say, domestic violence. There are essentially two commitment devices available to women who are the victims of domestic violence. And one of them is essentially to kill him. That's coming up on Freakonomics Radio. From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. So, commitment devices don't always work, in part because your future self rebels against your current self, and in part because 
the devices may simply not be powerful enough. And there's another problem. Sometimes you just change your mind. So, you know, for the most part, <laughs> economists believe people are rational and uh, they can make the best decisions for themselves. That's Anna Azer. She's an economist at Brown University. So economists, for the most part, don't like to tie people's hands. But there can be circumstances when you might actually think it would be improving. Azer studies commitment devices in an unusual context. Which is the context of domestic violence. And the reason why this, we believe, is sort of a nice context for studying this is that in domestic violence, what you witness is a large degree of cyclicality, a large degree of women leaving abusive relationships and returning multiple times. If you think domestic violence isn't a big problem, you are wrong. In the course of a lifetime, an estimated one in four women is beaten or raped by an intimate partner. In the U.S., every day, roughly 14,000 women are the victims of domestic violence, and four are killed by their intimate partners. One big problem is that many domestic violence victims don't report their abuser to the police. And there's another problem. A woman who does call the police might end up dropping the case. Her boyfriend or husband might sweet talk her out of it or maybe threaten her. Back in the 1980s, a vast majority of domestic abuse cases were dropped before final judgment. So across the country, lawmakers tried to come up with solutions to these problems. One was a mandatory arrest policy, which meant that the police were required to arrest a suspect, even if the victim had already changed her mind by the time the police showed up. Another similar solution was called the no drop policy. And this policy states that once a, a case has been presented for prosecution, a woman can choose not to follow through, but the prosecution will continue Anyway, and I should say, I believe that the justification for that was prosecutors believed that women were being threatened by their abusers to drop the charges. And so once they removed that from her power, they felt that they were actually making her safer in that sense. So if a woman reports her partner for having abused her and then decides in the light of day or in the dark of night to change her mind and not proceed, the prosecutor has the legal authority to continue without her help. Without her cooperation, that's correct. So both of these solutions that you're talking about, both of those are commitment devices then, yes? They're both bells that cannot be unrung. That's correct. Most big American cities now have these mandatory prosecution policies. Azer and her co-author, Pedro Dalbo, who happens to be her husband, wanted to know what kind of effect these policies had on domestic violence. They began by looking at the data from California. During the 1990s, the seven biggest cities in California adopted the policies at different times, which made for a nice natural experiment to help study cause and effect. So we could essentially look at a county before and after it adopted one of these policies and look to see what happened to both arrests for domestic violence and calls reporting domestic violence. And what we found was an increase in both on the order of 
at 14 to 20 percent. So after these policies were adopted, it seemed to be that there was an increase in reporting of domestic violence. And what was your response to that as an economist? Did you say, you know, this means that the policymakers got it right and that they came up with a kind of uh, rejiggered incentive that produced some good pro-social change or? Essentially, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, this was very much consistent with women demanding or wanting a way to commit themselves to prosecution. So that sounds good, but let me play devil's advocate. You could imagine that in some circumstances, a commitment device like this might backfire. That is, some women might be more reluctant to call the police knowing they won't be able to change their mind later. And men, now that the stakes are higher for them, might have a greater incentive to force women to not call the police. And how about this? Azer tells us that domestic violence calls and arrests rose as a result of these new laws, but... What about domestic violence itself? Do more arrests necessarily mean that less violence is happening? Mm, that's less clear. So that's hard to look at also. So, so you can't get survey data on this mm -hmm. at, at that kind of level, at the level we're looking at, this very local level. What we could do is look at hospitalizations for assault among women over this period. And we did not see that they declined significantly. So, I, I, you know, I won't sort of hang my hat on that. So you're saying that the law works well, the commitment device works really well in that it gets more people to report, but you can't really say that it works well in lowering the actual, you know, symptom that it was trying to address in the first place, right? right? We just, the, the data is just not there to allow us to answer that question. Mm -hmm. well. So you could say, well, it's good that this law has been arrived at, this commitment device that works. On the other hand, we can't really prove that it produces anything more than more kind of legal and prosecutorial activity. So if we sort of take this fundamental principle of economics that you look at what people, if you want to know what people want, what people like, you look at what they do and not what they say. So the fact that you see an increase in reporting suggests that this is actually a policy that they prefer. Azer did find some convincing data of a slightly different sort when she went beyond California and looked at the national figures. So what we did find, and I have to admit that we tried as hard as we could to make these results go away, but we couldn't. Um, what we found was that we saw a significant decline in intimate partner homicide with men as the victim. Did you catch that? What Azer's saying is that after these domestic violence policies were adopted, fewer women murdered their husbands and boyfriends. Now, granted, that's not a very big category of murder in the first place, but still, how do you explain that? Well, there are essentially two commitment devices available to women who are the victims of domestic violence. And one of them is what we call the extreme device, which is essentially to kill him. Oh. Once she kills him, there is no way to return. That is a sure. commitment device. That isn't is it? a commitment device. And the second is the one offered by this policy, which is obviously a considerably cheaper device. It makes it seem so much less draconian compared to murder <laughs> Doesn't now. It though? Because if you were just to offer the one choice of, you know, if you are going to report your partner as abusing you, then it is a bell that cannot be unrung. That might sound very stiff. On the other hand, if you consider that the other option is that if you don't report, you may end up killing him. That's a much more costly 
commitment advice to the woman and to say nothing of to the man. That's correct. As an economist who looks at, you know, the way people make decisions for themselves, how, how does that sit with you, I guess, philosophically? Do you like the idea of a commitment device that helps that much? Yes and no. I mean, what we're essentially doing is we're preferencing one state of being over another. We're saying with this policy that we believe that the woman, right when she is attacked and reports her abuser, that we are going to follow that woman's preferences and not the second woman you know, who shows up a couple of weeks or a couple of months later and decides she no longer wants to prosecute and actually wants to return to him. So you might argue, who are we to preference that woman's self as opposed to her other self, if we can call it that? And you would be right. I think the way to look at it is to say, A, is there any collateral damage? Are there externalities? And the answer to that is yes. There are children who uh, bear the cost of these decisions and that the policymaker should consider uh, the welfare of those children as well. And the second part of the response is, well, let's see what women do. Let's see whether they, in fact, increase their reporting. And if they do, that would suggest that they have a preference for this as well and that the policy choice was correct. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. That makes perfect sense, except let me ask you, that necessitates women knowing that these yes. policies do exist, right? So, That's correct. So That's correct. is that the case? Well, you know, there's no study. There's no, I can't give you numbers. The, as far as I know, nobody has actually studied this. What do women actually know about the rules and policies? The only thing I can say is typically these policies are accompanied by an increase in resources in both the prosecutor's office and the police department for cases of domestic violence. All right. So... While the evidence is hardly overwhelming, and there are all kinds of data we don't have, it does seem that these commitment devices that are meant to help the victims and potential victims of domestic violence have had some benefits. What's interesting, to me at least, is that with these commitment devices, it's somebody else who's doing the committing for you. Now, maybe that's how it's gotta be. Self-imposed commitment devices, as we've seen, are rather imperfect. Tony Belandrin signed himself up for a gambling ban and he couldn't keep himself out of the casino. And then he got busted when he won a huge jackpot. He lost by winning. Adam Scott, meanwhile, he won by losing. That is, he deemed his cold turkey experience a failure because of those few wayward sips of coffee with the milk in it. But in the end, the cold turkey thing really worked out for Adam. He lost eight and a half pounds during that month. He may, of course, be out the $750 that he mailed to Oprah Winfrey. So I, I pictured my check, you know, traveling through the mail, landing in Oprah headquarters. She opens it, sees the $750, and decides that she can go shoe shopping. Stop the car! Stop the car! I see a shoe in the window! Okay. But to date, the check remains uncashed. These episodes of Freakonomics Radio were produced by WNYC, APM American Public Media, and Dubner Productions. 
Catherine Wells produced this episode. Our staff includes David Herman, Greg Rosalski, Greta Cohn, Beret Lamb, Susie Lechtenberg, and Chris Bannon. If you want more Freakonomics Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to Freakonomics.com, where you'll find lots of radio, a blog, the books, and more. Hey, Levitt. Hey, Dubner. Uh, when I say the word tipping, what do you think of? I think of discomfort. Discomfort for whom? Oh, for the tipper. For me, I don't like to tip. I think tipping's, tipping's unpleasant. Now, it's not that you're an ungenerous person. I find you quite generous. Yeah, no, I, I just don't like social interactions that much. And I don't like the idea that... I'm not sure how much to tip or what's fair or what's right. And it leads me in the exact opposite direction. Whenever there's someone who's doing a job that deserves to be tipped or that socially we think should be tipped, it's always my inclination to not let them do their job. So I always want to carry my own bags in airports or in hotels. And obviously I can't serve my own food at the restaurant, but but if I could, I'd go right in the kitchen and make my own food. Can I say something about you? Sure, Levitt, go ahead. So I always thought I was a good tipper until I hung out with Dubner. I mean, <laughs> man, you throw the money around like it's going out of style. That's it's embarrassing true. to be That's around you. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. Oh, man, we get in some car, some sedan to take us 15 minutes from one place to the next, and you're flashing 20s and 50s <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. So Steve Levitt, my Freakonomics friend and co-author, thinks I am a grotesque tipper. For the record, I believe he's exaggerating but yes, I do routinely tip people who work hard for a living, especially when they're not getting paid all that well. That said, I agree with Levitt that tipping can lead to discomfort, it can be confusing. Why do you tip a hotel doorman, but not the person behind the reception desk? Why do you tip a baggage handler at the airport, but not the flight attendant? How much is enough for a tip? How much is too much? And if you're on the receiving end, how do you get the biggest tips? This is a question that everybody has an opinion about. We talk to people all over the country who work for tips. My name is Tanya, I'm a server, and I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm Johnny Glowey, and uh, I'm a valet. Krista Olison, I've been bartending for over a decade. I'm a barista. Coffee barista. I am a server. A server. I'm a server at Danny's. I'm a hairstylist. Hey, Barbarette, my name is Haberdashery. I've worked many jobs for tips as a barista, as a bartender, and as a doorman. My name is Iris Green, and I'm a stripper. You know what's really interesting is if you see somebody smoking, they're usually going to be a good tipper. The older, the fatter, the better. You can get a guy that looks like a bum and uh, turns out to be a super guy, and you get a guy that looks like a millionaire and uh, he won't tip you a thing, you know. 
black card holders from the American Express, 10 to 15%. I understand you got rich by being frugal, but that doesn't fly. And look at their shoes. The shoes? The shoes. Shoes can say a lot. Tipping is an idea that economists traditionally have a hard time with. Why should I give more of my money to someone else on top of what I've already paid for a meal or a ride to the airport? And what is a tip exactly? A fee? A tax? Is it altruism? We needed to find someone who could answer all of our tipping questions. My name is Mike Lynn. I'm a professor at the Cornell Hotel School. I do research mostly on tipping behavior. There you go. Why does Michael Lynn find tipping so interesting? In his words, it's, quote, not only because it is widespread, but also because it is an expense that consumers are free to avoid. And how big is this expense? I haven't done it recently with the most up-to-date records, but approximately 40 billion a year is tipped in the United States. 40, four zero, 40 billion dollars a year. Yes. Holy cow. I'm clicking around here. I see that the budget for NASA is under 20 billion. So we could build two NASAs for tipping. So that's a pretty astonishingly large uh, amount of money for what is essentially a voluntary financial transaction. Yes. I think so. Yeah. Lynn has written 51 papers on tipping behavior. Here's one title. Are Christian slash religious people poor tippers? The answer to that is yes, relatively speaking. Here's another paper. Sweetening the till, the use of candy to increase restaurant tipping. Yes, Michael Lynn found that candy correlates with higher tips. As you can probably sense by now, Lynn has studied all sorts of factors that may or may not influence tipping. If we could, we could almost do this as a sort of a lightning round if you're comfortable giving short answers. Talk to me about how tipping varies based on the following factors. Let's start with attractiveness of the server. Attractive waitresses get better tips than less attractive waitresses. Men's appearance, not so important. Okay. And what about a waitress versus a waiter generally? Hard to say. Um, in general, I would say waiters are, are, get better tips from women than men. Uh, waitresses get better tips from men than women. And what about, uh, let's say, among women, uh, hair color? Blonde is better than brunette or red or no? Yes. Blondes get better tips than brunettes. Slender women get better tips than heavier women. Large-breasted women get better tips than smaller-breasted women. Surprisingly, at least in the studies I've done, Women in their 30s get better tips than either younger or older hmm. women. Hmm. So a skinny, good-looking, big-breasted woman in her 30s is going to get big tips. I would simply replace the word skinny with slender. Slender. A slender, good-looking, big-breasted woman in her 30s gets big tips. Color me shocked, I have to say. Yes. I have tried using my um, feminine wiles before and uh, with mixed results. Uh, when I really made an effort at that, it tended to work. You know, you just flash your smile and you make sure your hair and your makeup is done, even if you're sweating like a pig. <laughs> 
As long as your hair and makeup's done, you'll be all right. I pretended to be French for a while, and I put on this accent like this, and I said I was from France, and uh, I have been in New York for, I don't know, um, six months, and I love it, but uh, it got so tiring, though. I was exhausted. It worked, though. So how does Michael Lynn know what he knows? Well, he's studied tipping since he was a grad student. The first study I did on tipping was outside of an IHOP. Then, as now, he looks for as much data as he can get. Even today, he'll still stand outside a restaurant, interviewing customers as they leave. Asking them questions about their perceptions of the dining experience, how much their bill was, how much they tipped. Some of it is having servers keep records of their customers, uh, including their bill size, tip amount, and race. But a lot of it is either online or telephone interviews with customers asking about their general habit, you know, tipping habits and tendencies. He focuses on restaurant servers since they take in about 70% of all tips in the U.S. The server-customer relationship begins the minute you sit down. Introduce yourself by name, not in some remote, mechanical kind of way that says, hi, I'm Mike, I'll be your server. But if you can genuinely have a conversation with that table and as a part of that, you know, introduce yourself by name, that's good. Well, let's hear you introduce yourself the right way, because the way you just said it is the way I hear it a lot. And I have to say it doesn't make me want to cozy up and dump a 20 in his pocket. That's true. Uh Please understand, I'm, <laughs> not a, I'm no longer a waiter. The reason I didn't get good tips when I was a waiter is I'm not the most sociable of people, so I'm not sure I can do it right. I'm sure you come on. But I'm, I think I'm, that, you know, if you go up to a table and go, hi, my name's Mike, I'm going to be, no, see, it's starting to sound mechanical. <laughs> I don't know how you do it, especially if you're having to do it over and over again without right, being mechanical. Right. So that's interesting. Even the tipping sage cannot master the game. This is a complicated art, no? What what else, what are the other habits or traits or tricks that um, a server can do generally to increase? You said a, a, a little bit yeah. of a touch is good. I'm guessing Touching's, a lot of a touch is not so good. Although I did do one study where I had a server touch customers and either count one 1,000, two 1,000, remove his hand, or touch and count 1 1,000, 2 1,000, 3 1,000, 4 1,000, and then remove his hand. Obviously, the counting was meant to be meant silent. Yeah. But yeah. the point is, <laughs> that four seconds actually seems like a long time. And it turns out that he got higher tips in both conditions. It didn't matter how long, as long as he touched. As long um, as there's a touch, yeah. As long and as where, a touch. Was, where was he touching them? On the shoulder when he went to deliver the check at the end of the meal. I mean, particularly, it depends on the job. But at this job, yeah, I definitely touch people on the like on the shoulder. Often when there's a big party and I need to like lean in, I'll just tap them on the shoulder and be like, "Hey." My my boyfriend who was also a server. We worked together for many years at the same place. He would bend down, you know. But I always thought that was a weird thing to do as a girl. I don't know. 
I've never been one of those people that does, you know, that like tried leaning down and talking to people or touching people. I just could never quite get into that rhythm. If I'm gauging a client and he's much older and he wants to sort of make sure that you're okay and you're going in the right direction in your life and, and he's taking kind of a fatherly approach to you, at the end of a dance or at the end of a champagne room, you know, you might touch his shoulder and say, thank you, sweetie, and, and ask him if he wants to take care of you. And always flash a really big smile, because if you don't, you're not getting anything. What about, you know, sometimes a server will write the little note, you know, thanks or a smiley face or whatnot. Is that, sure. Does that work? Uh, yes. Smiley faces have been shown to increase tips of waitresses, not of waiters. Drawing other pictures like of a sun increases tips. Squatting down next to the table or pulling up a chair and sitting at the table if there's room will increase tips. And, and when they increase by how much are we talking? Uh, in one study, the server got a dollar more per table. Uh, when he squatted down next to it. And it turns out this was one of my former students. I asked him, what do you do to get better tips? He goes, oh, well, I squat down. And I said, you really think that helps? His response was, sure, I know it does. And I, hmm. I asked him if he'd be willing to test his uh, theory. Uh -huh. He said, yeah. sure. So he agreed to randomly assign his tables to conditions. He would squat or not squat. Uh, and sure enough, he was right. With those tables he did not squat at, he got a dollar less. So it cost wow. him money to help me do this wow. research. <laughs> but I put him as an author on the paper. There's a small compensation. So clearly, there are all sorts of little things that can nudge a tip up or down. But forget all those little things for a minute. What about the big issue? How good is the service? The conventional wisdom says that good service brings a good tip and vice versa. True? Not true, says Michael Lynn. First off, I've done a lot of research looking at the size of tip and how it relates to the customer's perceptions of service quality. Mm -hmm. And a consistent finding is that there is a relationship. People do tip more, the better the service they get but that relationship is very weak. It's a correlation, the average correlation is 0.2. That hmm. means about 4% of the variability hmm. of the differences in the percentage tips left by different dining parties can be explained by their service ratings. So <laughs> up front- It's astonishingly low, isn't it? Not just a, a little bit? Yes, it's astonishingly low. So it's absolutely the case that tips are not as strongly related to service as you would expect. Absolutely, I believe that that's got to uh, reduce the incentive value of tipping. Having said that, though, yeah. even though the actual relationship between tips and service is low, servers think there's a relationship, and that's enough to motivate them to deliver good service. surprising, isn't it, how weak the relationship is between service and tipping? On the other hand, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised. It reminds me of some of the research on altruism. If you ask people why they give money to a certain cause, they'll talk about how meaningful the cause is. But if you look at the actual numbers, you see that the cause takes a backseat to who's doing the asking. Like Michael Lynn's research on tipping, 
It turns out that a pretty blonde woman has advantages collecting charity, too. So a lot of our behavior that we may think is because of reason X may actually have a lot more to do with reason Y. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, an argument for why tipping is just bad. We found that even after controlling for these other things, we still find this positive relationship with, uh, uh, between tipping and uh, corruption. And an argument for why tipping is really, really bad. It's discriminatory. I lost my job because my manager said that I didn't fit the look of the company or like the restaurant. And so I don't know if it was because, you know, I'm a lot more curvier than the other girls or because my skin is darker. I don't know. This new manager, he was an asshole. From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Michael Lynn is a scholar of tipping at Cornell. He's examined just about every little thing that can affect tips. Some of his most interesting research looks at how people of different racial and ethnic groups tip and get tipped. What can you tell us about race of the tipper? So there's, you know, waiters talk about uh, that certain racial and ethnic groups and I should say national groups always tip, you know, worse than others. What do you know about that? Um, blacks tip less than whites in this country. They're more likely to leave without tipping at all. If they do uh, leave a tip, it's on average a smaller amount. They're mm -hmm. more likely to be flat tippers and not tip a percentage of the bill. It's partially a little bit mediated by socioeconomic status. That is, blacks also have lower educations and incomes in this country than whites, and people with higher incomes and educations tend to tip more. So that's part of the reason that blacks tip less, but it's only a tiny part. What's, what's the other part? What do you know about why that is then? I can tell you it's not exclusively an issue of service discrimination because I find even controlling for the customer's perceptions of service quality, blacks tip less than whites. The most powerful explanation is that it is a difference in perceived injunctive and descriptive tipping norms. Ooh, I didn't understand that. <laughs> All right. Um, an injunctive norm is a norm about what you should do. Okay. And a descriptive norm is a norm that describes what people do do. I see. Uh -huh. Okay. What I found is that blacks in this country, only about a third of them, if you ask, how much are you expected to tip in a restaurant context, only about a third of blacks will say, give an answer in the 15 to 20% range. I see. And that compares how to whites? And Two thirds of whites. Interesting. It makes sense that social norms vary from group to group, right? So yes. I guess it's not so surprising in some way. That's right. It's not completely surprising. But what's surprising to me is knowledge of the injunctive norm explains only about a third of the black-white difference in tipping. When I include differences in descriptive norms, because I could know, oh, yeah, you're supposed to tip 15%, but nobody really does that, right? Yeah, that yeah, would be yeah. being aware of the injunctive norm, but having a different 
uh, perception of what the descriptive norm is. Uh, and it turns out that there's also a black-white difference in perceptions of what people do. If I take both of those perceptions of the injunctive and descriptive norms, I can account for about half of the black-white difference in typical. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Uh, what's beyond that? I'm stumped. I mean, I have yeah. tested everything I can think of. If any of the listeners have ideas, have them email me because I'm looking for areas to do, you know, to test next. All right. That's fascinating. So first of all, what is your email? WML3 at Cornell.edu. They call me Jack Rabbit. They call me Jack Rabbit. I am an exotic dancer. My name is Yvette Morgan, and um, actually, I'm a host at a restaurant. Basically, because I mean, not speaking for all blacks, but we have a mindset of the fact that whatever we're doing for that service, we're getting paid. So a tip is basically a gratuity, which is an extra. And then, I guess in other cultures, they see it as a form of, of income. I know, for example, when I talk to some people that I know that are white, you know, when it comes to restaurant tipping, uh, they always uh, presume the fact that, well, they don't make any money, so the tip is all they count on. So they view it differently. It's your attitude. It's your attitude. I mean, I'm not saying that black people have bad attitudes, but... If you don't, you know, you can make good tips if you have a good attitude. I don't care if you're black or white or whatever. If you have a bad attitude, you're not going to make good tips. What about differences in tipping for black customers toward black versus white servers? Both groups, blacks and whites, will tip a white server more than a black server. And that's even controlling for perceptions of service quality. So a black customer will tip a black server less than a black customer will tip a white server. Yes. All else being equal. Yes. Wow. So it's fascinating. What can you tell us about other uh, racial or ethnic groups, Asians, Latinos, um, immigrants versus, you know, on and on. I'll, I'll sure. take whatever you have. It's fascinating. Um, the data on other ethnic groups is more mixed. There are several studies finding that Hispanics tip less than whites, but there are studies showing no Hispanic-white difference in tipping. I haven't yet teased apart what's going on. Why am I getting it sometimes and not others? And the same thing is true with Asians. I do have some studies showing that Asians tip less than whites, other studies showing that they do not. The one thing I can say for certain is that the Asian-white difference, even when it does exist, is very fragile. That is, I can control for things like sex, education, income, and it disappears. Um, the Hispanic white, when it exists, is often robust. I can control for education, income, and it's still there. Um, but I don't find it as consistently as I find the black-white difference. With all groups, uh, once you control for income, if you can, uh, men versus women as customers, who tips more? In general, there's no sex difference. Is that right? Yeah. And even the sex of server, sex of customer interaction that we talked about previously, it has been observed consistently enough for me to say it's a real effect, but it's not universal. You don't always find that effect. Either. I see. What about the age of the customer? How do, how do, how Older do customers that? tend to tip less. 
they're also more willing. They base their tips on service quality a little bit more than younger people. Mm-hmm. So let me. Uh, you obviously know so 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 much about this um, strange but common practice of tipping. If you could rewrite the custom, rewrite the social moray, which is obviously impossible because it arrives over a lot of time with a lot of people participating in it. What would you do? How would you make tipping more either sensible or um, d- directly related to the things it should be related to and so on? You know, I think I would outlaw it. <laughs> you would. Yeah. Um, and it might be illegal as it is because of the race of server effect that we had previously discussed it's conceive you, you can make the argument that tipping is a condition of employment that has an adverse impact on a protected class so it's discriminatory it's you're discriminatory saying. and the supreme court has ruled that even neutral business practices that are not intended to discriminate if they have the effect of adversely impacting a protected class are illegal and so it's not inconceivable to me that there will be a class action lawsuit on the part of ethnic minority waiters and waitresses uh, claiming discrimination in terms of employment. Um, And it's conceivable that tipping might be declared illegal on that basis. You're talking theoretically or or is this a a movement that actually exists? Oh, I know of no such lawsuit right in existence, but Mm -hmm. it's... Mm -hmm. It, I've talked to. Not hard I've for you to imagine. Ta- it's not hard for me to imagine. I've talked to lawyers, including people who specialize in labor and employment law, and I've gotten mixed opinions. I mean, some of hmm. those lawyers have said, no, the courts would never go there. Others go, no, that is a reasonable theory of the law. That's plausible. I think it is plausible. My firm would take a good hard look at a case if a server came to us and, and, and made that complaint. Justin Swartz is a lawyer at Outen and Golden in New York City. He represents employees in class action discrimination cases. He's sued some of the biggest restaurants in New York for shorting employees on the tips they deserved. If his firm were to take on a discrimination case like Michael Lynn has proposed, Swartz would pursue two lines of argument. First would be disparate impact analysis. The the purpose of disparate impact analysis is to eliminate what the Supreme Court calls headwinds, uh, policies that make it harder for racial minorities or other people in other protected classes to succeed. With disparate impact, you don't have to prove that discrimination is intentional. It's a proxy for discrimination. The idea is that if there's a disproportionate impact on a particular group, here it would be African-American or non-white servers, then the, the plaintiffs have made the first showing that they need to make in their case. And the second argument? The second step, then, is the employer's burden. Meaning, it's up to the employer to prove that tipping is a business necessity, not a custom, but a necessity. Let's say I'm a restaurateur and I come to you and I say, look, I know what you do, I know who you represent, and I want to avoid, I want to avoid unfairness, and I also want my business to prosper. So let's say I calculate the average tips in my restaurant, and it's 20%, and I hate the fact that uh, wait staff member A earns 50% more than wait staff worker Z because wait staff worker A happens to have these attributes that for whatever reason get a lot of tips. Pooling is complicated for whatever reason. Let's just say I, I don't want to deal with all that complication. So I'm just going to say on my menu to my clientele, 
We're getting rid of tipping because it's inefficient, sloppy, and potentially discriminatory. Average tips here were about 20%, and therefore, we're just going to ban tipping and instead raise our prices 20%. I don't see any problem with that from a labor law perspective. And in fact, that might be the best way for restaurants to uh, insulate themselves from liability. Now, you may know that some restaurants in the U.S. have already eliminated tipping. They use an automatic service charge instead. If customers want to, they can tip on top of that service charge. One restaurant in San Diego, called The Linkery, has gone so far as to ban tipping. If you leave extra money on top of The Linkery's 18% service charge, that money will be given to charity. Jay Porter owns The Linkery. He thinks tipping is absolutely ridiculous. If tipping had never been invented and you were starting a restaurant, would you use tipping as the way to compensate your best employees, your, you know, your most important employees, all your employees? Would that be the system that you would pick in a vacuum to compensate your team? And I think the answer is clearly no, because it's a stupid system. <laughs> <laughs> so so why, not, why not do it the right way, even if it's a little scary? Now, if you live or travel outside the United States, this entire discussion on leaving a tip in a restaurant might seem ridiculous. Much of the world operates on the simple premise of a service charge or a fixed price, no tip expected. The U.S. is empirically tip crazy. In the U.S., we have 31 different service professions being tipped. That's Magnus Torfesen. In Canada, we have uh, 26 or 27, which is the same as in India. In the Netherlands, we have uh, 15. Then we have in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, we have uh, between 5 and 10. Torfesen teaches entrepreneurship at the Harvard Business School. In Japan, we have uh, 4. And in Iceland, we have 0. Guess where Torfesen is from? Yes. Iceland. So that's on the exact opposite end of the spectrum from the U.S., which is the country where tipping is most prevalent. Now, why was he comparing tipping in countries around the world? What, what does his research show? Well, if you're looking for yet another reason to hate tipping, listen to this. The more tipping you see in a given country, the more corruption you generally see in that country as well. Here's how we came to that conclusion. So we started by collecting information about tipping in some 33 different countries and in 33 different uh, service professions. These are uh, waiters, hairdressers, uh, taxi drivers, and so on. And uh, we also looked at the levels of corruption in these countries, looking at uh, how they scored on the Corruption Perception Index, which is uh, publicized by uh, Transparency International. Running a simple correlation, we found that there is a positive relationship between those two, uh, which could have been for, for many different uh, reasons. Uh, but we then controlled for a number of other factors, such as uh, GDP, uh, 
the culture in a country in general, homicide rates and uh, other measures of uh, legal enforcement. And this relationship uh, stayed significant. In other words, we, we found that even after controlling for these other things, we still find this positive relationship uh, between tipping and corruption. Why in the world would this be? Was Torfesen surprised? Well, so I was not as surprised as many others. Uh, I started this research because I had an inkling that there was this dark side of tipping. Uh, in the U.S., we have a strong norm for tipping. And so if you're a upstanding and, and law-abiding citizen, you're very likely to be also a good tipper because that's what the norms tell you. And you're also likely to avoid corruption. But across countries, we see a different pattern where these norms that uh, encourage tipping, which is a form of informal payment for uh, services, may be uh, leaking over into uh, other forms of exchange, which are not as positive and not as socially beneficial as tipping. So in the end, Steve Levitt is right to dislike tipping, isn't he? Even if he's not right for all the right reasons. I don't like to tip. I think tipping's, tipping's unpleasant. As I said earlier, it's not that Levitt is ungenerous. It's just that tipping is too wooly, too random, too confusing. Well, I tip caddies. So when I play golf, I'm extremely generous with caddies. Mm -hmm. and, See, I think my um, tipping is rubbed off on you, frankly. Because when we well, met, happened, you didn't tip. You wouldn't tip anybody. You would barely tip in a restaurant. Well, I didn't like to talk to people, so I like I just let you do the tipping because that was easier. But but you have a different strategy than me. Every time you get into a car that takes you from some place to another, as mm -hmm. we often do when we're on the road, mm -hmm. uh, you tip the guy, which I think is a terrible equilibrium. So I I am in a different equilibrium where, for the entire year, I do not tip anyone ever. No mention of it. And then what I've taken to doing now is uh, there's a, a car service I use a lot to get to the airport. And so what I did is instead of ever tipping, I just sent a bunch of cash to this this car service. Uh, and I said, well, you just give it to the drivers according to what you think would be fair. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that was uh, distributed equally, right? <laughs> I don't know about equally, but I will say the Forget reaction of the drivers. Okay, let me rephrase. I'm sure that was distributed at all. An and envelope I thought, of cash comes to like the guy, one person at a car company gets, <laughs> that's how you it tip. It is funny. So I called up the, I called up the car company and said, I would like to give this money. And the woman mm -hmm. said, definitely send it right to me. And I thought it would never be distributed. But what I will say is that the reaction I've gotten from the drivers mm has been really, really positive. And I sometimes won't see these drivers for months and months, and they will say how thankful and grateful they were that I made this generous gift. I think it really it really works so much better because the hard part about tipping is, what if you don't have the right change? And then you got to say, oh, hey, I'm really sorry. Can I tell I you something, right though? I, I really think, think it's the duty of an adult in a tipping society to, like, pre-think that. It's like when I when I go to a – like if I go away with the family, if we're going on vacation somewhere, we're going to be staying in a hotel, I like load up on the right denomination bill because I feel like – here's what I feel like. 
I want to reward the people who are working hard, whether or not they really deserve it, because they're already working hard. And I figure that probably most of those people that I come into contact with in that situation, hotel, car, whatever, are being underpaid for what they're working. That's my view. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm a bleeding heart. But that's the way I feel. Oh, I think that's nice that you uh, that you work that hard. But I don't, I don't I don't work that hard on other people. Well, let me just say this. I was in Chicago a few weeks ago. I flew out to work with Levitt. I got picked up at the airport by a car, same car service that Levitt uses, it turns out. And my phone rang, and it was Levitt. So I said, hey, Levitt. And the driver says, that's Levitt? That's my boy, Steve Levitt. So apparently, Levitt's strategy works just great. These episodes of Freakonomics Radio were produced by WNYC, APM American Public Media, and Dubner Productions. Our staff includes David Herman, Greg Rosalski, Greta Cohn, Beret Lamb, Susie Lechtenberg, and Chris Bannon. If you want more Freakonomics Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to Freakonomics.com, where you'll find lots of radio, a blog, the books, and more. More than half of all college students in the U.S., about 57%, are female. As of January 2013, women were no longer barred from combat positions in the United States military. The male-female income gap is tightening. Women hold about 20% of the seats in both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives, the highest proportion ever. Three of the last five secretaries of state were women. One of them, Condoleezza Rice, recently became one of the first female members of Augusta National Golf Club, one of the oldest and goodest good old boy clubs in America. Equality of the sexes has long been a goal, and in many ways, that goal is being met. But as you'll hear on this program, the variance between men and women on some dimensions is still large. In other words, women are not men. In some ways, obvious. And in other ways, less so. Patents, for instance. Women file only about 7.5% of all patents. Well, I was amazed because uh, in many other areas, women are really closing in on men, and this gap is just so enormous. That's Jennifer Hunt. She's an economist at Rutgers. She argues that if more women were to patent, it would add nearly 3% to our per capita GDP. And why, we asked her, do so few women patent? Men are more likely to be in jobs involving design work or development work. So the D and the R&D. Let's see, what else can I tell you about the differences between women and men? Did you know that women are far less likely to get struck by lightning? Typically, 80 to 85 percent of the uh, lightning fatalities across the United States are men. That's John Ginsinius, a lightning specialist at the National Weather Service. We think the reason for that is that men 
tend to be outside more than women, and they also tend not to go inside when lightning threatens. Men are also more prolific at drowning. Males have almost four times higher drowning rates than females. That's Julie Gilchrist from the Centers for Disease Control. It's not just that men spend more time in the water. They also overestimate their swimming abilities and they drink more. All right, what else? Women are half as likely as men to become alcoholics, but twice as likely to have a phobia. And women are more likely to kill off a bad marriage. They file for roughly two-thirds of divorces. And here's an amazing statistic I'm sure you don't know. We uncovered one thing that women and men do in exactly the same proportion. They listen all the way to the very end of each episode of Freakonomics Radio. So have a seat. From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. On today's show, we're talking about the ways in which women are not men, for better and worse. We'll start online. Here's John Riedel. He was a professor of computer science at the University of Minnesota. We know that women have been increasing dramatically as a percentage of participation on just about any internet site you can imagine. The retweet, it's like viral gold. I'm going to go through a couple things that you need to know as a new member of Tumblr. Pinterest, the hottest social media site going right now. So for instance, females now outnumber males on Facebook and Twitter. And that's been true just about across any aspect of the internet you can imagine, including much to many people's surprise uh, online games. Here are a few completely incorrect stereotypes about female gamers. We are ugly. We don't like violent or scary games. We're only playing games because we lost our way to the kitchen. <laughs> but there's one online realm where women are not so well represented. Beret Lamb, the editor of Freakonomics.com, has a story. Wikipedia is by far the largest encyclopedia in history. It has more than 24 million articles in 275 languages. Launched in 2001, it's run by volunteers who call themselves Wikipedians. Now, what does this have to do with women? For years, not much. But in 2011, a New York Times article by Noam Cohen argued that only one in six Wikipedia editors were women. John Riedel was a bit skeptical, so he decided to run a study. Much to our shock, we found out that not only was his overall message right on, but that the best data we could get suggests that things were even worse in terms of the amount of female contribution. He had reported that about 16% of the editors were women, and we found that to be true. But we found that those females only made about 9% of the edits, which was even more surprising and disappointing. It might help to explain how editing on Wikipedia works. As a volunteer, you can click on any article, and unless it's a controversial gated article, you can edit it and add new information. But later, other Wikipedians can delete your edits if they don't like your changes. That's called reversion. 
and if your article is deemed irrelevant, it can be deleted. When I started editing Wikipedia, I never really thought that I was the only woman. That's Sarah Sturch. She's been a Wikipedia editor for nine years. Back then, it had a mere one million articles. Sturch remembers the first article she edited. My first article was deleted. I can proudly say that. I wrote it about a guy in a band <laughs> that I knew, and that's、uh, no longer on Wikipedia. This past year, Sturch has been serving as a community fellow for the Wikimedia Foundation. She's been working on the gender imbalance. She's trying to get more women involved by hosting meetups like this one, not too long ago in Oakland. Does、uh, anybody、uh, have any missions tonight? Any specific goals in mind? I'm taking my shoes off and getting comfortable. You put these two equal signs, and then you write references. You're making the reference section basically. I don't know any HTML, and I'm about to make my first article. Booyaga! But why are women so underrepresented on Wikipedia, especially when that's not the case on other big sites like Facebook and Twitter? John Riedel says that the Wikipedia imbalance bothers him because the first place we all go these days is to Wikipedia, and it really worries me to think about half of all of humanity being left out of creating this information resource, which is the greatest encyclopedia in the history of humanity. And half of humanity is being left out of writing it, and we know for fact that that half of humanity is getting short shrift. It turns out that men even dominate the Wikipedia articles that would seem to be of greatest interest to women. Sarah Sturch again. There's the more trivial subjects. Friendship bracelets and、uh, women's films. There's brassiere measurement. Oh wow, this is not what it should be. <laughs> But then there are the things that women know the most about, next to our doctors, so to say, pregnancy, abortion. I just looked at miscarriage. That's, that's opening. That is a huge can of worms. Talking about the pregnancy article, whatever we do, I don't want to talk about that either. Those articles are mainly written by men, and they're a contentious subject. Oddly enough, pregnancy, yes, it's a contentious subject. So that seems odd, especially because one in four American doctors is female, along with half the medical school population. So why aren't women editing Wikipedia? When I've spoken with women around the world, the biggest reason I hear is often I don't have time, and that always intrigues me. I mean, I, I get it. I, I I just wrapped up a full-time master's, working two jobs. You know, I'm busy.、Um, people who have children, you know, I, I, we're all busy people. Men do, in fact, typically have more daily leisure time than women. In the U.S., it's about 40 minutes a day. And women tend to do more housework, so maybe that's taking up their time. But John Riedel has another explanation. We know from a bunch of psychology studies that women tend to be made more uncomfortable by conflict than men are made uncomfortable by conflict. And so one of the ideas is maybe in Wikipedia, where the fundamental nature of the site is that if you want to correct what someone else has done, the way you do that is you delete it and write them a really mean message. Well, maybe that's creating a culture of conflict that is driving women away. They they just don't find it a place that they enjoy being, and so they go places where they're happier. I remember you told me that there were some backlash to your report. Yeah, when we put the report out, one of the things we noticed was a bunch of bloggers, 
all male, we should say, came out and said, well, uh, this is a waste of time. No one needs to be told that there aren't women editing Wikipedia. They uh, they should just suck it up and be tougher and, and come in and join. There are no technological limitations. And so it's their fault for not participating more. But Riedel says there's something else built into the structure and ethos of Wikipedia that might be discouraging women. It's not a model that everybody has to agree on the content of any one piece of information on Facebook. And I think that on Wikipedia, by contrast, there's this very different ethos, which is the job of the community is to make sure that these articles are as high quality as they can. I, I think that's a very good thing. And the way we get there is we delete each other's work when we don't like it. And that creates a, a very different style of site, a place where people are constantly being engaged by other people rejecting their work. I'm not super into it, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I find it not as perhaps rewarding as other people do, but you know, it's cool. <laughs> So John Riedel's evidence suggests that women and men may have very different appetites for conflict, which might keep some women away from a place like Wikipedia. Hmm. Wouldn't it be nice to know if somebody out there had looked at this in the context of, well, of men and women competing against each other? We looked at competitiveness. Ah, there you go. That's Uri Ganesi. I'm Uri Gnizzi. I'm a behavioral economist at the Rady School of Management in UC San Diego. My main research interest is around incentives, you know, how they affect people, and gender differences, some deception, anything that someone can find interesting. Freakonomics producer Susie Lechtenberg has a story. Uri Gnizzi has three kids, two girls and a boy. We really try to raise them in a gender-neutral environment. So we bought our daughter's dolls and trucks, and they were very happy. They put the dolls on the trucks, so the truck was used, you know, as a stand. And my son was also very happy to get the dolls. He smashed them to the wall and, you know, ran them over with the car. But it was unclear to Ganesi how much of this gender difference is nature and how much is nurture. When we drove back from the hospital with the babies, I drove and my wife sat near the baby. So socialization starts, you know, at the hospital or when you leave the hospital, when the baby is a few days old. And it's almost impossible to disentangle this from actual behavior. Ganesi began to think about the salary gap between women and men. It's well known that women earn less. The Labor Department says about 82 cents for every dollar a man earns. But why? Well, there's a lot of research out there. It suggests that yes, there is discrimination, but also that women have different preferences than men, in work and in family. But what if there was another overlooked factor that could help explain the gender gap? We thought that maybe a big and important difference is how willing men and women are to compete and how do they react to competitive incentives. To test if men are more competitively inclined, Ganesi and some economist colleagues wanted to do a field study. 
They wanted to get away from Western society to see how much culture is a factor and how competitive we are. We wanted to go to real cultures in the real world and see how they behave. So we took two very extreme cultures. The first one was the Maasai in Africa, in uh, Tanzania. Inizi and a group of researchers traveled to Arusha in Tanzania. Arusha is near the Kenyan border, not far from Mount Kilimanjaro. From Arusha, they plan to travel to two Maasai villages. The Maasai are cattle herding nomads. They're perhaps the archetypal African tribe with their beaded jewelry and brightly colored robes. And as Origanizi says, Maasai culture is very unkind to its women. Maasai is a very extreme patriarchal society in which uh, if you ask a man how many kids he has, he will tell you how many boys he has. Uh, women cost about 10 cows, so they are the property of, the, of their husband. If uh, the husband doesn't uh, like what the wife is doing, he can beat her, he can abuse her. The men are usually in their late 20s to 30s when they marry, and they often have multiple wives. Their brides, generally teens, undergo female genital mutilation before marriage. Women do much of the hard labor. As one woman said, men treat us like donkeys. Uriganizi has studied competition before. Once, he and some colleagues had people compete solving mazes on computers. He planned to do something similar with the Maasai, except he'd have them solve the mazes on paper, using pens. Right from the start, though, things didn't go according to plan. The very first Maasai woman wasn't having it. She said, look, I'm 30, I've never held a pen in my life, I don't see a reason to start now. Clearly they needed a plan B. The wooden maze that we came up with was the next solution. They spent 12 hours building a maze out of salvaged wood. But I'm not a very good carpenter. I'm happy I'm not a carpenter because that would have been really bad. And were you able to solve your own maze? No, <laughs> no, no, it had a mistake. It was unsolvable. So this was a little bit stressful. Here the researchers were 10,000 miles from home. We have hundreds of people waiting for us in the field and we don't have a task. On the way to the hotel, I see tennis balls in the bucket. Now, who would have imagined that in Arusha you'll see tennis balls and the bucket in a store? But I did. I bought in those tennis balls and the buckets and it turned out to be a perfect task. This is what they'd have people do. Participants were asked to toss a tennis ball, underhanded, into a bucket about 10 feet away. They had 10 chances. They were matched with another unidentified person playing the same game on the other side of the building. The experimenter explained to them the task, you know, throwing the ball into the bucket, and asked them a very simple question. Do you want to be paid, say, one dollar per every success? It wasn't a dollar, but it was equivalent to that. Or you can be paid three dollars for every success that you have, every ball that lands in the bucket. But only if you do better than the person behind the, the corner. Basically, if the player picked the more competitive option, they could get paid three times the amount of money. Ganesi says it wasn't long before word got around that these quote-unquote ridiculous Americans were paying villagers to throw tennis balls into buckets. People came from all over the village to play. And what happened? Many more men chose to compete than women. About twice as many men chose to compete than women did which is very much in line with what we observe 
when we run it in the U.S. or in any Western society. 50% of Maasai men chose the more competitive option, meaning they chose to be paid more money if they made more baskets than the person around the corner. The women had less appetite for risk. 26% of the women chose the more competitive option. Now, this may not come as a huge surprise that men raised in an extreme patriarchy are more competitive than women. So the next step was to go to our anthropologist friends and ask them, what's the other extreme? Where can we find a society in which women are in charge? All of these anthropologist friends pointed to the Kasi in northeast India. The Kasi are one of the world's few matrilineal societies, where the youngest Kasi daughter inherits the family's money and property. Men move into their wives' houses when they marry, and children take their mother's family name. Overall, life for the Kasi women is pretty good. In the Kasi Hills, where they live, they clearly have a much higher stand than probably anywhere else in the world. The women are in charge. The women decide what kind of crops they're going to raise. They're in charge of deciding how to spend the money, the family's money. The household decisions are theirs. They go to the market to sell the items. You know, when you go to visit their home, they will greet you. Uh, they are just uh, used to being considered equal to the men. The Kasi Hills are really rainy. The region holds the world's record for the most annual rainfall. There's something else unusual about the place that Ori Genizi noticed when he arrived. As an economist, I try to quantify everything and try to say, oh, they are nice seven or something like that. You can't, I don't know how to do that, but they were just, the feeling was very nice. So we walked around in the nights in the middle of the rice fields and people are just nice to each other. People are so nice to each other, he says. At one point, I had $60,000 in cash in my suitcase, and I left them with the cook over there in the, in the house that we rented in the village without any worry. You know, the guy could have taken the money. That's like taking $60 million from me and disappear somewhere in India. I didn't have to worry about that. And so, in this place where prize money left untended in a suitcase is fine, and the kindness is unmeasurable, the study began. Same experiment as we did with the Maasai. Everything is the same. We took the same buckets, the same balls from Tanzania all the way to India. They started with two opposing hypotheses. The first one is that culture is not really important. It's the same story as my kids. You know, you're born, we are born differently and we just react to this. And the alternative hypothesis is that when women are brought in a culture in which dealing with money, making decisions, is part of the daily routine, and that's what they observe as girls, they're going to be just as competitive as men. And what did they find? And that's what we found. We found that culture was extremely important. Before we delve into the results, remember how the game worked. Players had two options. They could get paid X amount for every time they made a basket, or they could pick the more competitive option and get paid three times the amount if they did better than their anonymous opponent. So how did the Kasi people do? 54% of Kasi women picked the more competitive option. 39% of Kasi men made the same choice. Kasi women were more likely to choose to compete than even the super patriarchal Maasai men we heard about earlier. So the implications are clear. It's not that men and women are not born differently. 
I'm sure they are. And, and you can come up with good evolutionary stories why men are more competitive than women. What we showed is that that's not the only factor that goes in, which again is not a big surprise, but the other factor, the culture is so big, can be so big that it can just overturn the results. So if you grow up in a matrilineal society, women are actually more competitive than men. So it can completely override any evolutionary explanation, any nature kind of reason. Nurture could be that big. And I think that that's, that's the main result of this study, that in the right environment, women are going to be just as competitive as men. In other words, as Ori Genizzi and his co-author John List say, nurture is king. Or in this case, nurture is queen. So what's the solution? How do we begin to re-socialize our girls? Genizzi says, not so fast. I'm not convinced, for example, that I want my daughters to be more competitive. I'm not sure that it's actually good. Maybe we should concentrate on making boys less competitive. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, we take a look at something puzzling that's happened to women's happiness. Why? First of all, we call it a paradox because we don't know the answer. And later... If you're rooting for women and men to become totally and completely equal, should you root for women to commit more crimes? If you look at all different types of crime that the police enforce, 75 to 80 percent of those offenders are male. From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Today's program is called Women Are Not Men. Now, there are about a million ways to think about that simple sentence, a million ways to argue with it. We're not trying to start any arguments. We are just trying to look at the data that show differences between men and women, try to figure out why those differences exist, how meaningful they are. What you need to know for this next story is that there's a lot of research that ties income to happiness. Generally, more money means a higher level of happiness or well-being. Over the past 30 years, women have made big gains in education and in the workforce, which means they're making more money than ever before. And so, the thinking goes, women should also be happier than ever before. Shouldn't they? Betsy Stevenson is an economist who shuttles between university and government jobs. Along with Justin Wolfers, her domestic partner and fellow economist, Stevenson wrote a paper exploring female happiness. Women are reporting life satisfaction levels that are lower than they were in 1970. Now, there's a couple things to note. One is that women told us that they were happier with their lives in the 70s than men were. So we had a happiness gap in the 70s where women reported greater well-being than men. And what we have now is a new gap where men report greater life satisfaction than women. The magnitudes here aren't huge, 
But it's the fact that the directional shift is the exact opposite of what we would have expected, given that it's women's lives that have really become more expansive, more options, and a greater ability for them to choose the type of life that would make them best off. So how how do you explain it, Betsy? I mean, women were given a larger choice set, which economists tell us larger choice sets to a degree are really good. Women were given an accomplished in a lot of other areas that we would associate with, you know, benefits of different kinds, financial benefits, psychic benefits, and so on. How do you account for the decline? How do you account for the paradox? What are the mechanisms by which that paradox exists? Well, you know, first of all, we call it a paradox because we don't know the answer. (laughs) What we found was this decline in women's well-being relative to men uh, was seen not just in the United States, but was seen in Europe. Um, It was seen in every country where we were able to get um, a long enough time period to be able to look at several decades of of trends and well-being. And it occurred in countries where the gains for women differed substantially. So I know a lot of people would like to say, oh, well, this just goes to show that, you know, women entering the labor force has been very um, difficult for them and it's reduced their well-being. But you know, our research doesn't make that case because we saw the declines in well-being relative to men in countries where women had very little change in their labor force participation and similar uh, changes in countries where women had very large gains in their labor force participation. You, you, you make the point that um, women's happiness declined as they entered the workforce in greater and greater numbers and started to earn more money relative to men, although still less relative to men. Um, and the gains from women yielded greater happiness for men um, relative to the women. Could it be in some way that men get happier for whatever reasons because there are more women in the workforce? Well, let me be clear. We put that out as a hypothesis, Um, not that there's evidence that that's definitely what's happening. I mean, what we know is that the correlation is that over a time period where women have gained more autonomy, more financial power, more market power, more responsibility and power within their families, that they have become less happy and men have become uh, slightly uh, happier. And so one possibility is that somehow, you know, this sort of revolution in our lives has actually benefited men more than it's benefited women. And, uh, you know, the, the comment that, uh, Steve Levitt made to us was, of course, women have become less happy. They're living their lives like men and now they're just as happy as men, which is not <laughs> as happy. All right. So, Betsy, no offense, but this is a little bit depressing. So um, do you have any good news or at least advice about what can be done? What are some things that women can do to recapture or get more happiness in the modern world? Um, you know, I, I, I agree with you that the whole conversation is a little bit depressing. And I, I think that, you know, trying to be maximizers in everything um, might not lead to the greatest happiness. And so trying to figure out what it is that's really important to us and letting other things slide and feeling okay about that, feeling like it's okay that I'm doing the thing that's most important to me um, or that 
you know, I'm not giving my all at work because I'm splitting my energy between work and my kids and I'm okay with that. Um, you know, I, but I also, you know, I also hesitate to say that there's definitely a problem here. Yeah. What about earning more money though? Would that be a good idea? Would the median woman become a bit happier if she were able to earn more money? I think sometimes people get a little bit confused about the data on this, but what we see really strongly in every data set you look at is that richer people are happier than poorer people. And what we see is that over time, when countries get richer, their citizens get happier on average. And so women putting themselves in positions where they have a greater ability to earn income uh, is really important. Now, you know, there is this other thing, which I think I should mention, which is that often women are underpaid and they're underpaid because they simply don't ask, you know, they don't ask for the raise they should get. And there's really compelling research on this that uh, women tend to not negotiate as hard, tend to be less likely to ask for a raise. Um, and so if you could be earning more doing the exact same job uh, that uh, you're doing, I think you'd be better off. So you should go out there and ask for that raise. That was The Economist Betsy Stevenson on the gender gap in earnings and in happiness. Now, there's one more difference we want to look into today, an activity that we should be very, very happy that women do much, much less frequently than men. So where we see the starkest gender differences are for homicide, rape, uh, robbery, those sorts of major felony types of violence. That's Jennifer Schwartz. She's a sociologist at Washington State University. And I study gender and crime, and mainly I'm interested in why females offend, why they don't offend, if they have changed the types or amount of offending that they do. All right, then. How much offending do women do? If you look at all different types of crime that the police enforce, 75 to 80 percent of those offenders are male. There are only two crimes in the United States today for which women get arrested more than men. Steve Levitt is my Freakonomics friend and co-author. One of those is prostitution, and it turns out the other one is being a runaway. If you're a juvenile and you run away from home, you can get arrested for that. And it turns out girls get arrested more than boys for running away from home. Other than that, men run the table on women when it comes to crime. For Jennifer Schwartz, the idea of thinking about women in crime was a natural outgrowth of thinking about the feminist movement. I think the hook for me was, you know, taking the common sense or what seemed like common sense that as women gained more freedoms and as women had more access to opportunities that they would engage in more crime. And that seemed to be what the common sense notion was. But once I started looking at the data, it seemed the opposite was true, or at least there was no support for this idea that women's liberation would increase their offending. Um, and so I think that sort of puzzle made me want to know, well, why are women offending in the first place? And why aren't they offending anymore, given that we think that women have come so far and have so many opportunities? What's holding them back from offending if they're making you know, gains in other avenues in, in, you know, legitimate work. Why aren't they making gains in the underworld, I guess? And so that, that was the hook for me, trying to figure out that puzzle of why aren't women offending more, given that their status in society has, you know, bettered for the most part. Now, to be fair, 
Women have started committing some crimes more often, forgery, embezzlement, even auto theft a little. But compared to men, their rates are still very low. I know I have a little bit of mixed feelings because that's what, you know, when I think about it, I say, oh, I, I'm not rooting for women to become more criminal or to have more criminal opportunities. I guess it's just another forum or another context in which women are uh, blocked from, <laughs> from uh, you know, achieving at high levels. But, you know, it's a, a you know, sort of a difficult thing to unpackage, <laughs> I guess. It may be difficult to unpackage, but let's be clear. It's a good thing that women, having closed a lot of gender gaps over the past few decades, aren't rushing to close the crime gap. There are other gaps that one might hope will be preserved, or better yet, closed, but in the opposite direction. In other words, men should aspire to get to where women already are. Did you know, for instance, that a man is much less likely than a woman to do you a favor? Men are much worse at washing their hands, which, if you're thinking about a hospital setting in particular, can be bad news. There's also research showing that men, if you ask them a question, are thoroughly incapable of simply saying, I don't know, even if, in fact, they don't know the answer. Now, why is that? Let me betray my gender here for a moment and simply say this. I don't know. These episodes of Freakonomics Radio were produced by WNYC, APM American Public Media, and Dubner Productions. Our staff includes David Herman, Greg Rosalski, Greta Cohn, Beret Lamb, Susie Lechtenberg, and Chris Bannon. If you want more Freakonomics Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to Freakonomics.com, where you'll find lots of radio, a blog, the books, and more. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.